She said liar. Are you calling me a liar? No, I'm calling you a waste of bum wife. <laughs> hey, butthead, check it out. <laughs> Shut up, Beavis, you're ruining it. Liar! Shut up! No way, butthead! Don't make me kick your ass again, Beavis! Shut up, butthead! <laughs> Settle down, Beavis! We're missing this video, and it doesn't even suck! Oh, yeah! <laughs>
You just heard Beavis and Butthead, along with Shove and Fast and Frightening from L7 Smell the Magic in 1990. This is a Rook and Metal Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. And this is our uh, Patreon takeover episode, uh, Rebel Girls. Um, yeah, here we are. This is, uh, we're, we're definitely in the great unknown here, uh, kind of probably out of our comfort zone a little bit. Um, I was joking. Uh, we'll hear from our Patreon, uh, Jess, that, that got to pick this show in here in a, a, a couple minutes. Well, I was joking with her when I recorded um, the the little bit with her last night that you were super worried that this was going to be Pantera, that somebody was going to throw a Pantera at us or, you know, just for shits and giggles to make us kind of suffer through having to talk about this stuff. And I said, yeah, so at least it's a step forward from that. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. It's something that's a little bit, I think out of both our comfort zones, but um, yeah, we are here. We are here. So um, yeah, I would say our, um, the thing that's the later on stuff is what I'm not as uh, familiar with or had no, attachment to no context yeah 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 and that's so like all the kind of you know precursor stuff i'm much more i don't know I've, you know we've talked about the stuff in other recent shows and sure you know, at least stuff in that kind of a periphery well luckily this is you know where we're going to be going today like the second part of it that's pretty it's pretty firmly in my wheelhouse kind of the pre uh before i met you and chris wheelhouse you know when i was oh, definitely totally. yeah a kid of grunge and things like that so i can kind of you know add a little bit of it, but I think ultimately, you know, um, you know, we heard these, these pair of L seven tunes, which is a, a, definitely a tip off that we're going to be hearing kind of heavier, um, heavier stuff from a, maybe a female perspective, um, from their second record, smell the magic, which, uh, is kind of a, I just watched an L seven documentary and doing some prep for this. And they definitely hold up spinal tap a couple times and they're singing spinal tap songs in the documentary mm -hmm. so i have to believe that this is a nod to smell the glove um so oh, you that know, makes sense yeah yeah but there's there's kind of winking at the, the audience a little bit with that but well what you know before well, like right before we get into this what what is the um i guess the, what's the idea behind the show just going in so people know right off the bat like are we yeah, talking so, about just female heavy music or what's the what's the yeah i think this line? has been the this has been the 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 tough part you know and this is what you know jess and i kind of got into a little bit and we'll, we'll hear from her in a second here for the clip that we recorded with her um you know she tasked us at first she said well i really love babes in toyland and i love l7 and i'd love to hear like kind of a requiem take on that and i'd love to hear you know like the context leading to some of that stuff. Cause you know, um, I think it'd be an interesting conversation. I'm like, yeah, I think, I think you're right. You know, and I must apologize too. I've lost my voice a little bit from, I had a track meet last night and was yelling a whole bunch. So if I sound uh, a little bit deeper in, in Johnny cash wise or something that I, that's, you know, just people should know that. But, um, yeah, I think that the tricky part with this is, you know, we want to tell the story of the influences. And I reached out to Nick Green from Decibel um, because he's um, pretty firmly entrenched in those kind of alternative metal kind of scenes, which I, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty expert in that as well. But I think he he's kind of a little bit more firmly focused on that type of stuff. And, um, you know, I said, hey, you know, this is the list I have of who I think were probably a lot of the bands that were inspiring uh, Babes in Toyland and L7 and Hole and some of the, the, the sort of heavier kind of 90s kind of thing that was kind of happening. You know, who am I missing? And he filled in some gaps and he kind of pointed out a few things. And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, I never would have thought of that or, oh, really? OK, cool. You know, and so 
I kind of use that. Um, I use some of the literature on the bands, just some of the bands that they've talked about. Um, yeah. You know, there's definitely male bands that they were inspired by too. You know, like Husker Du and you know L7 were huge Motorhead fans, and they all loved Black Sabbath and that type of shit. Um, but like that's the stuff that people out in Requiem Land kind of know. So I thought this would be an interesting opportunity for us to sort of highlight the contributions that a lot of um, you know female artists in the heavier spectrum of punk metal, you know, hard rock, you know. Um, have sort of made without trying to turn it into like a novelty show. And I think that's the the trickiest part. You know, it's something I kind of talked to Jess a little bit about and something I kind of expressed to you that I just want to, you know, try to be good about that as best as we can, because it's like, there isn't really, you know, there's no genre that's female music, you know? And I think that's, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to come across as, you know, being like, this is like a token episode or something. They're like, Oh, we were going to have uh, you know, women in rock and black people in rock yeah or something yeah. you know right. it's like it's that's too much like just like a top five list that you throw on the internet for some you know clickbait type and type i don't thing. think that's what it will be because i think we're just generally above that but again just from the impetus i want people to know that that like you know titling it rebel girls it's just you know um spotlighting and highlighting you know like women in the heavier spectrum whether it be heavier in terms of theme it can be you know and lyrical yeah. theme doesn't have to be necessarily like the heaviest of guitars but you know, women that were, were, were speaking out and doing it for themselves and that inspired the bands that are, we're going to be featuring kind of at the end, the back end of the show, which are the bands that uh, our Patreon picked, you know, L7 and Babes in Toyland, who definitely have certainly really metallic aspects to them, you know? Um, yeah. And, and there's, there's, fall. we'll be talking about, you know, actually like specific female movements as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah and, uh, and I think probably the, the lyrical approach is different. Like the whole thing with, um, I, I think there's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of subtlety to a lot of the stuff. Cause some of the stuff you'd be, we'll be hearing is just like, okay, what's, what does this have to do with, with anything? Yeah. Like, well, you got to put it in context at the time and, you know, being like, like Susie Quattro, for instance, is, you know, a female, you know, front front person. Yeah. For yeah. rock and roll, which is, you know, and being from Detroit and, all that but like just yeah i think so there's like i just wanted to make that clear before we start in because that was my um question like after seeing the playlist i was trying to figure this out without asking sure. <laughs> I, told, I, I think i told jess that too i said sometimes when i create things i forget that people aren't inside my head and and that's a that's a problem sometimes and so yeah it's like the mad scientist kind of part of me that um I know where the narrative's going, but if, like other people like might not be able to like look at the puzzle pieces and be like, what the fuck does this even mean? You know? Yeah. Um, and so yeah, you and I were kind of bouncing some text back and forth about that. But I think like just from the very get go, you know, I'll speak to to the two songs we just heard shove and fast and frightening here. The, here's what I kind of wrote and you can feel free to jump in whatever I said, both address the topic at hand that we are woefully unqualified to try to tackle as two dudes in metal. All right but we're going to do our best you know rebel girls and punk metal hard rock and the double standards and the uphill battles they've often faced at being treated as equals and not a novelty um you know the 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 line and shove is my boss says i should comb my hair some guy just pinched my ass you know so it's like they're they're addressing the the problems within the scene that we're part of you know we've known yeah. that metal and punk and in just rock in general has you know tended to be kind of a boys club at times and so i like that a lot of these bands kind of confront those issues and they they kind of call it out for what they for what it is i think that's yeah. fucking badass you know 
And as somebody that was really young when this stuff was coming out in a big, big way, I mean, I was kind of feminized in a lot of ways by the grunge movement. You know, when Kurt Cobain's like kind of talking, he's wearing a dress on Headbangers Ball and he's talking about like being a feminist, you know, and I'm 13 or 14. Like, I don't really know if I know what that meant, but it certainly like didn't make that word dangerous or scary to me. Whereas like I knew other like dudes that I went to high school with who wouldn't be caught dead, like wearing that word or, or, or like, you know, thinking about even the the context of that word, because they just thought it meant like man hating or something. You know what well, I mean? Well, there's, there's that, yeah, there's that contingent of extreme on that side of, or on side of feminism where it's, you know, where there, it's the man hating, but that's not really what it is at the, the root. That's just the one that gets yeah. the most attention. Sure. It's like the extremes always get the attention on, mm-hmm. on either political end and, you know, that kind of stuff. Of course. You know? Um, but I think the other thing that's really fucking awesome about bands like, you know, especially L7 and we'll, we'll get into some of these others is like, they also have a line in that song that says it's been months since I've been laid, you know, <clears throat> it's like, so there, there's this like, yeah, they're addressing the like issues of equality and the double standards, but they're also like owning it. They're also like sort of saying like, we're just like the boys. We're not different. We're not like a, a genre that's different. We're just fucking, we're like motorhead. We're just as dirty and fucking grungy and gross and, we're, we're we are rock we are metal you know that's what, what I mean? you know and when lemmy was touring what, with uh with girl school yeah he's like jesus christ i like <laughs> i can't keep up with them <laughs> yeah well uh as know, far as talk- exploits on you know drinking and other things you know well like there's a conversation piece that we'll have um in the jess clip where she's talking about the um the oral history of grunge book, which I have, it's great. And she was kind of talking about a, a story in it, uh, but like at sub pop where they were having like bets as to who was like the grossest band. And they had come up with, and I reread the passage today that babes in Toyland was the, like the smelliest of the bands. And then Nirvana was like second. And then I can't remember who was third, but like, so like, again, the girls were just as like debaucherous as the boys. And I think like L7 does a nice job of like equalizing the playing field. And we'll read from their decibel um, hall of fame that uh, Gene Fury did a little bit later when we get to L7. Um, And that's one of the topics they sort of bring up is not wanting to be a novelty act and and, and things and stuff. And so, yeah. So even though we are titling it rebel girls, we're, we're going to treat this with like, you know, respect and, and not try and turn it into like a, girls in metal episode it's more just like here a bunch of like powerful female artists that inspired a lot of the music in the 90s that you and i kind of were aware of that we were like whoa fuck these girls are kind of badass and kind of scary and in a good way you know yeah where did this come from you know like i didn't know where it came from you know not until i got older and then i could kind of put the pieces together and kind of formulate that story that all of this 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 all started you know way back when and it was just one foundation building on top of each, you know, each other, you know, and I think that's cool. Um, that's what we usually find out on these shows is the stuff that like, how does this connect with anything else? You know, sure. all, all the, all the more <clears throat> punk and metal, um, things that are kind of over time are like, Jesus Christ, like that's where it came from. Okay. Yeah. And, and really even like with, with L7, the whole, they're, they're much older than I thought. Oh yeah. As far as like when they started, I, because I, I've always kind of put them in that category of that weird like i don't know like white zombie yeah. stuff you know like because white zombie had what was what was just the what was their big record i can't last exorcisto was their breakout and that was their third okay. record so they'd been around yeah for so they i put them in the same kind of thing as that as well and i think in that documentary they talk about you know we sold like three hundred fifty thousand copies of um bricks are heavy bricks are heavy 
And then, but they don't have, you know, anything to show for it. And white zombies sold 3 million copies, you know, and they're somehow still around. (laughs) They're just still doing their thing. Kind of, kind of the way it goes sometimes, you know, it's kind of sucks. And, and, you know, there was a lot of double standards with the way the rock critics talked about these bands and stuff like that, you know, um, you know, only spotlighting the, the female kind of end of it or whatever. Whereas like a lot of these bands just wanted to be kind of taken seriously in the realm of all rock, not just as a girl band, you know, and then so that's always kind of been like that uphill battle that they were kind of trying to, you know, fight and, and things like that. And well, there's, I think I think, even, was it that same interview where they talked, where they had this uh, PR or this is a different, is the, I forget the, I'm not going to be good with anybody's names, uh, at least from from that band, because I've, I've made so many fucking pages of notes that. Oh yeah, no worries. I've got their names, names at this point, but that they had a PR pe- uh, agency that was working with them, and there was two different female fronted or female, mostly female bands, and they they put them together that they had nothing to do with each other. Um, yeah. On this ad, and it says you know two bands to get you hard or something on it. That's like oh my god, but that's yeah. that's like the crass marketing of commerce and art. Yeah, is that it's really hard to accurately represent what you're trying to, and a lot of stuff like you know you would wouldn't have heard it entombed if at that time, if it wasn't for like that crossover stuff too, you know, like oh yeah. shit, Marvel Comics or there's there's a lot of these weird, kind of like PR decisions and you know business decisions that don't always work, but yeah, sometimes the novelty part does get you the foot in the door, and then hopefully you just discover the value of what the thing is beyond the novelty or beyond what the perceived novelty is, you know, and, um, you know, that's all you can kind of hope for. But, you know, I think like the other thing I want to mention besides shove is fast and frightening. I think for, in a lot of ways has to me, the ultimate like L seven lyric. It's like the thing that to me is like, what is maybe the whole foundation of this whole fucking episode in some ways. And, you know, it's it's this iconic manifesto about being kind of a badass rock and roller when she sings, I've got so much clit, she don't need no balls. <laughs> and it's like, that's it. That's what they, you know, like, fuck you. We could beat the fuck out of you too. You know, like, we, yeah. we can fight. We can scrap. Like, we are equals. And and I, that, I think that's, like, kind of the coolest part about what they were trying to do, you know. And that's kind of the bomb that's being thrown into the sort of machismo of the, like, late 80s, early 90s scene, you know. I think the the irony <clears throat> that I've kind of discovered, and I've I've listened to a couple podcasts on Hole and some other things in the last couple of weeks, and one of the things that kind of came through is even though grunge like made heavy mainstream rock and punk kind of more sensitive in a lot of ways, right? It kind of like purged some of the the overt sexism of hair metal and and whatever that was kind of going on in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Still a boys club, like. Like they still, they didn't want women to do that. They wanted Kurt Cobain to do that. They wanted Eddie Vedder to like feminize things a little bit. They didn't want the women to be equals with them. They still wanted the boys club, even though they were like more sensitive. And I think that's like, there's kind of something sad about that. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? On some level. And like, that was a revelation to me because I think I realized that subconsciously probably because I was growing up in that. But until I like, I heard it framed that way. I was like, oh yeah, you're right. Like, like this was even though like things were improving like everybody was like still pissed off about what pj harvey and liz fair were doing like oh how dare liz fair call her album exile and guyville you know that's a rolling stones record like she's a girl she can't fucking call it that yeah. you know what i mean like people were fucking losing their shit about that kind of stuff like the rock critics and mainstream critics and you know they were really scared by, by it because again they were threatening this like institution of like 
you know, male dominant patriarchal rock and roll on some level. And I think that's cool. It took a couple decades and I think things are a lot better than they were, but like you could feel this like seismic thing starting to happen in the early nineties, you know? Yeah. And we were around for that. And like, I think we were friends with girls that were being empowered by a lot of that music. You know what I mean? I think that was kind well, of the cool yeah, I was, part. I was talking with, um, with Lisa about this too, that um, it wasn't a thing for like we hung out with a bunch of girls that liked the same kind of music and movies we did so it was never like this uh, this exclusivity thing it would be mm-hmm. like people coming back and forth with um and i'm sure that you know it was a fairly unique thing at the time but um yeah like we were just all everybody was you know had the same mindset so like the, the differentiation of like oh this is a, a girl band i don't want to listen to this like i had none of that on my radar but I was not also not reading any, you know, I wasn't reading Rolling Stone or any mainstream publications yeah. talking about anything. I guess it was on my radar because I knew people that were that way. I yeah. wasn't. I was into all this stuff, like w- whatever, you know, like it didn't matter to me. Yeah. But I definitely knew people that were like, like I knew people that like would not listen to whole because they're like, ah, that's just like, that's like girl nirvana. Like I know what that is. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Like, I just would shrug my shoulders. Like, I didn't, I was 15, I, you know, 16 or whatever. I'd be, I didn't really know how to argue with them. I was just like, okay, that's fine. You know, like, but there was definitely like, that was out there. And I think part of it was the tabloid culture surrounding a lot of the scene. You know, a lot of these, oh, of course, a lot of these artists were pitted against each other. And that's kind of like a, that's a whole nother thing that I, you know, I don't know if you and I are really that qualified to unpack it, but like how, like, you know, females are often like pitted against each other you know, in, in a realm by the patriarchy, you know, and whether it's beauty standards or this or that, it's like, here's a few scraps you have to fight over. We'll let, we'll give you 10% of the market share, but you're all going to have to fucking like fight each other for it and like shit talk each other and create feuds and shit like that. What's up? I mean, it's a, it's a ruthless industry too. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that doesn't exist in Toyland and hole. And like, that's, that's all kind of like, I don't know. I don't know how much yeah. of that was, was in the, it was in the media. It was definitely out there. Yeah. Okay. And I'll, when we get there, I'll, I'll, I have some thoughts on that and some things I've kind of discovered that, you know, anyways, but yeah, it's it. And that drew like a spotlight to it. And there was a lot of controversy around. I mean, here's the thing. Let's, let's be honest. Like in the early nineties, like you had outspoken women, you had Madonna, right? Like she was iconic by that point, but there were still a lot of people that hated Madonna because she said what was on her mind. And like, there were a lot of people that didn't like outspoken women that just said what was on their mind and upset the apple cart, you know, and Courtney Love and Kat Bajeland and, and some of those people were like that. And mm-hmm. some people respected that. Some people were scared by it. Some people were intrigued by it. You know, it was like, it was a whole, you know, it's powerful women still to this day scare people. You know, there's like a, there's like an older generation of men that I know, you know, that like, don't really like powerful women telling them what to do like that scares the shit out of them on some level and so you know this was a it was a kind of a seismic event that was starting to happen and again it goes back to the 70s and it was kind of building up but it really started to like peak in the early 90s um in a big big way so yeah i mean with like uh like cheryl crow lannis morissette and jewel and you know all that stuff like the lilith fair thing you know yes yeah there's a funny thing about L7 that one of the things that one of the last albums that they did in the 90s, they were marketing it and they flew like a plane 
with like a flag over the Lilith Fair concert and it says board yet try L7. <laughs> it was pretty funny. And they were just kind of commenting on how like, you know, this is like really saccharine, like watered down versions of what like is actually like empowering female music that's out there, you know? So, yeah, that's that, that was always been my thing with um, like outspoken, at least in music, outspoken feminist stuff was usually music. I didn't like because I didn't like the style of music, not because what they're trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the, the riot girl movement was, was had a lot of uh, outspoken political stuff, but it all made sense. It was kind of like under, you know, it was like the, what the white Panther party did with, you know, with Sinclair or something like here, here's the manifesto. Here's our demands. Like we demand yeah. this and it had an urgency and power to it. Um, but that stuff bored the shit out of me. Any of that, like, uh, God, what is that? The band that everybody, uh, Indigo Girls and Cowboy Junkies and all the stuff that's just oh, like so yeah, fucking boring. Pretty saccharine stuff, really. Yeah. 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 I agree. It was not my, but I think that was like music that wasn't made for us, you know, on some level for True, sure. But yeah. But also, we don't have to, we don't have to like anything. No, no, exactly. Exactly. But I think for like, I, I'm, I'm all about having a, a power, like a powerful message and being outspoken, but also you have to be interesting. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Because just because just because you do a, a movie or write something about a, a really great thing, but you do a shitty job at it does not mean it's good. Sure. Like you, you can do a terrible movie about the Holocaust or you yes. can do a terrible movie about Martin Luther King. You know, yes. it's not the 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 substance of it has to be good as well. Yeah. It's not just like the sacredness of the message. You know? Yeah, exactly. And then we kind of started the whole thing off with a, a pretty choice clip. Um, it was kind of my first exposure to Babes in Toyland was seeing them on Beavis and Butthead. So I thought it'd be kind of funny to open up uh, with their little 40 second clip uh, of them playing Bruce Violet. And Beavis and Butthead loved it. That was the crazy part. I mean, they were kind of like weird tastemakers in that time. Speaking of White Zombie before, they kind of like resurrected White Zombie from the abyss because they like loved um, Thunderkiss 65 and it kind of brought it back into rotation on MTV. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and I mean that like for somebody that was my age that like watched Beavis and Butthead like mindlessly, like if they liked the video, like we liked the video. That was like the weirdest part. Like it was so easy and... I don't know. Like it shouldn't have worked that well, but it just did. Like they were like these weird tastemakers and that particular clip <clears throat> where cat's screaming liar, liar, liar. Well, Beavis like obviously mistakenly thinks they're saying fire. And so in the episode, he just keeps screaming fire, fire, fire. And if you listen to the whole clip, it's like two minutes long, but we just kind of cut it off at 40 seconds. Cause you only hear Beavis going on some rant, but like that apparently clip inspired a guy like a young kid to go out and like fucking set something on fire and uh like he got sued so now you can't actually see the clip on youtube you can just hear the audio now because it's been taken down from social media and all these other things because it's like considered like a dangerous clip and so there you go go figure <laughs> so fucking babes in toyland he was about it just fucking stupid shit so but um but Any, i think anybody that's triggered to do shit like that i don't care who you know what it is you, you know you're a, a weak-willed person or yeah. you're using it as a escape, like, you know, the stuff like the stuff with Ozzy and Priest and oh, uh, sure. all that stuff. It's just it's it's just stupid. It's like video games don't cause children to, you know, it, it's it's every everything can't be boiled down to one thing or the other, you know, just because yep. they went to this school or they didn't have they didn't go to church or whatever it might be like does not mean that that's the one thing that, you know, that would have stopped them. 
or if they just yep. wouldn't have saw Beavis and Butthead, this kid wouldn't have been in jail or burned down his shed in the backyard or whatever. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So it's really pretty funny. So, but I thought this would be a good time to uh, bring in a clip from Jess um, to sort of hear what, you know, why she picked the show and kind of what her journey as kind of a female metalhead and female who's into like harder stuff and punk and things like that. So let's, uh, let's kind of bring in that clip and then we'll sort of come back and uh, start to talk about these influences and stuff. So we are joined by Jessica Shrum, who is our, of course, uh, announced, uh, I guess now it's been a couple months since we announced it because the Venom thing lasted a lot longer than we expected, but uh, our announced Patreon winner. So welcome, uh, Jessica, to uh, Requiem Metal Podcast. Hi. Longtime listener, I think. Uh, also a Michigan native. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, give us a little bit of, I guess, your background and entry point maybe into metal and uh, heavier things and, um, you know, just anything you want to kind of tell the listeners why you why you're a Patreon supporter and, and then we can kind of go into the topic that you end up picking. I don't know. I've, I've just been a huge music fan my whole life, I guess. Uh, metal, you know, I think probably just got into heavier music from my dad. My dad was huge, deep purple black Sabbath fan. So at a really young age started listening to that stuff. And my brother plays in heavier bands and we got our first electric guitar (laughs) handed down to us, I think in, I don't know, elementary school anyway, fourth grade, something like that. Um, and started playing around with that and playing in bands and um yeah just... now were you in bands as well as uh jay yeah i mean i i played with some other guitarists i kind of did my own solo stuff um just messed around but he he was more serious about it and played in bands and um yeah, give a shout out to some of those bands because uh we go we go way back with the, the shrum family to yeah. <laughs> Uh, Mark and I do well, and my my brother Jay. So now he's um, you know, so he was the gunkies back way back in uh, high school, and then and today I wait, um, which was a hardcore band uh, through college, mm-hmm. and we were close in college as well. Um, so I was tooling around with him, going to a million shows, and um. Yeah, he played in that band a long time. A bunch of friends that, you know, from the same area in northern Michigan. Yeah. Then Mean Mother, which yep. he plays with, a stoner rec band. Um, and then he was in a heavier metal band with the same guys from Today I Wait. Um, he's now playing in a hardcore band called Poison Tongues. Oh, cool. And... I'm trying to think of his other bands right now. He's playing in six bands right now. <laughs> yeah. So, so needless to say, you've been, you know, through your dad, through your brother, through all these means, you've just sort of been like immersed in in this stuff for as long as you can remember, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. It's my favorite thing. And I, I just, you know, kind of like Mark, I guess I just tinker around on guitar and I have a piano and, you know, it's it's just fun for me, but um i'm just a huge huge music fan and nerd and geek and i i love it i love learning the history and reading books about it and listening to the podcast so 
And thank you for that, uh, that support. We do appreciate that. And, um, yeah. And you were, you were surprised. You said when you got picked, cause you said you never get picked for anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I never do. <laughs> I am not very lucky. I, I, yeah, I was not at all expecting to, to win. So that That's, was pretty cool. That was pretty awesome. Yeah. So I'm excited cause you gave us a task, um, that I think is a, a pretty big challenge, especially for, for two guys. Um, because you know, we're, we're obviously sensitive to the context of the topic that we're, we're kind of handling tonight and trying to try not to mansplain or to do, you know, anything where we, you know, we're crossing lines and, and trying to be respectful of the, the nuances, I think of a lot of what we're going to be covering tonight. So I guess, why the topic that you picked and the bands that you sort of wanted to focus on and, you know, what influence they had on you and shaping your attitudes or your musicianship or even just your interest in different forms of music, you know, feel free to kind of uh, riff on that for a moment. I don't know. I, I guess I, I love, you know, the bands that should I announce the bands? Have we? Oh yeah. At this point. I yeah. So I should tell our listeners. Good. We're uh, recording this the day before. So, yeah, they will have already heard the the opening L7 songs and, and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I have loved, loved, loved Babes in Toyland forever. Um, they were one of my favorite bands, and I probably wore that CD out. Um, <sighs> See, I wore the tape out. That's how far I go back with that. Oh, <laughs> nice. Columbia House. Beautiful. Yeah. I was running Columbia House scams left and right as like a ninth grader. So that's how I got Beach and Toyland. I remember right. I think at that, you know, young age, when that came out, it just really spoke to me. And it was it just everything that I felt inside. Um angst, teenage angst, right? Um yeah. And, and still, you know, years and years, I, I think it hits you that nostalgia and I, I hear any of their music and it, it just, it still carries me away. Um, and L7, same kind of thing. Um, what is the, the album that has Andre on it? Uh, Hungry for Stink. Yes, that was the one. That was the one that just played over and over and over again. So those had a big influence on me. And then since then, I've just done a ton of reading. I'm a huge Sonic Youth fan. I've read um, Girl in a Band by Kim Gordon. And I've read Patti Smith, Just Kids. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of connecting all these dots of women in music. And I, I just think it's really neat when you start reading and even just listening to music and you know you you hear patty smith and it's i guess you you hear the influence in the music mm. um and then obviously you can read about it and their stories and everything else but um and it just had such a powerful impact and then you can um follow the story and hear them the next artist take it to the next level you know and just feel inspired by that woman um Patty Smith, to me particularly, had such a huge, huge impact. I feel like she, she, she portrayed, you know, she was just herself on stage, you know. And I think starting off as a poet and not necessarily a 
musical performer. Um, she wasn't worried about portraying this like female image that was trying to uh, persuade men or be, you know, this typical blonde bombshell or whatever that men were used to seeing in music. Well, even and, the iconic cover of horses, right? She's very androgynous, you know? That yes. Like yeah. She's got the, the button up shirt, you know, the men's um, dress shirt buttoned all the way up and granted she's really beautiful in her own way, you know, in a, a very different way. Um, but you know, and even in the way that she sings and the way that she speaks, she's not worried about sounding sexy or uh, attractive or anything like that. You know, she's just sounding real and she's getting her point across. And um, I think that opened up the door for a lot of women at that time that they saw that and, oh, hey, we can really put ourselves out there. And And right around that time in 1975, there was a lot going on in New York in that regard too, just a lot of artists um and more people getting into that and putting themselves out there and then you see sonic youth evolve and mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. it's your it's your story you're gonna yeah yeah we're gonna try yeah. and connect it up somehow um <laughs> i guess you know was there a point in your early years like you know maybe your formative years middle school early high school where your interest in the heavier spectrum of things where you did feel that weight of being a, a sort of female fan and feeling like there weren't necessarily as many places for you. And yet, and then maybe you hearing babes in Toyland and L seven and stuff like that, like kind of open doors. I'm just kind of curious of the journey that you had as somebody, you know, I mean, you're, we, we always joke, you're one of our, our female, only female patrons. We have a couple, but you know, like, it, it's it's tough you know metal and and metal more than i think I, i'd say punk has had its kind of sexist you know elements to it that it certainly tried to shed through the years but i guess give us a little bit of that perspective and like what any of this music that we're playing to, you know on the episode like kind of meant for you to like get through that journey i guess if that makes yeah, sense yeah you know i think for me uh growing up where i did and not having a lot of exposure to a lot of um, diversity and that uh, and other like-minded people yeah. um, or women particularly, it was, it was cool to have this outlet and say, Oh my gosh, here's some people who actually think like me and they understand me and they get me, you know, and I'm okay. Cause you know, these, these people get me. Um, so, you know, I, I, yeah, I glommed onto that and I kind of, I dressed like that in, in high school and, you know, um, but it made it okay, I guess, for me to be myself um, and not feel like I had to fit in with the pack that, that was up here. Um, yeah, I definitely never fit in. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a common trait of of a lot of uh requiem fans probably at a certain point you know the sort of outs outsiders music is a lot of yeah. music that we play you know yeah um i guess why do you think maybe for a naysayer or maybe somebody that's perhaps skeptical going into an episode like this why does babes in toyland l7 hole some of these kind of bands why do they belong for requiem 
Give it oh, gosh. Then, I know that's a tough one. I just, I threw a curveball at you. I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, as a fan who was inspired by this stuff. And again, I'm a fan of all this stuff as well. And I know Mark, you know, is, is into some of this stuff, you know, the, there are people who, I don't think a lot of Requiem people, but there are definitely people in the metal community who might kind of be like, ah, L7, babes, that, that stuff doesn't belong in the the conversation of the heavier end of things. Or I feel like it's sometimes unfairly dismissed. Um, so I guess a, yes. a, giving you a forum for that, you know? Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And I, I think that people have kind of forgotten about, you know, those bands particularly. And they made a big impact. And and L7, they busted their ass to make make as big of an impact as they did. And then it's just kind of, you know, now they've made a a bit of a reunion. But those girls rock hard, those Mm -hmm. those women, you know. And they they were way into, like, Motorhead and the Stooges. And they never wanted to be – compared to you know they didn't want to be a female band i I think they even have like a well again it's i don't want to it's your story but no go ahead yeah go ahead you know i i think they only had like a um a male drummer like in the beginning they just they ended up with a female drummer because they couldn't find anybody that wanted to play drums for them yeah like a couple of girls who wants to play drums for a girl band or whatever and uh so you know, but they, they they just wanted to be accepted as a couple of girls who who love to rock out and they're just a rock and roll band, you know, that was, and they do, they're awesome. For sure. And they definitely are overlooked and somewhat forgotten. Um. And same for Bases in Toyland. I, I think her voice is incredible and super extreme. And the guitars are really good. And, you know, there's some some drumming that's really fun and it's super catchy and aggressive. Um, yeah. I think there's some things and I, will, I don't want to go into it too much because we'll obviously get there when we get there. But I forget, I because I love that you know I love Babes in Toyland, but I just forget how heavy they are at times, and it's yeah. like it, it the emotional rage that exists on a lot of this music is as heavy as anything in the extremes that that we've covered on like an episode like this, you know. So it's just different, right? It's coming from a different place and a different POV, and we want to kind of give voice to that POV, I think, and that's that's kind of what you wanted to do, and I think I hope people are open minded enough to like when they hear cat singing and raging, it's just like, it, like the hair in the back of your neck stands up at times. You're like, this is intense as intense as like Jacob and converge, you know, it's got that kind of level of emotional, like catharsis sometimes where it's, it's, it's impressive, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, just out of curiosity, since you were kind of in this realm uh, as well, did you get caught up in all the sort of, crazy media rivalries that were sort of going on. I feel like in the mid nineties between, you know, Courtney love versus the riot girls and the L seven and the beef with babes and toy. Like was any of that kind of interesting remotely to you or did you just not care? And you just kind of liked what you liked and didn't really think about whether it belonged to this movement or that movement. Cause that seems. At the time I didn't really pay that much attention to it. Um, 
Yeah. At the time, I didn't really pay that much attention to okay. it. Just After curious. the fact, reading about it is interesting to me, but. It is. Yeah. It's uh, I think it's unfortunate and it's something Mark and I will talk about later in the episode because I think it's it's a classic case of sort of like the patriarchal media, like pitting like the few really great, you know, that like female artists against each other rather than like trying to unite them. And it's like a weird, I don't know. I, I have some really odd feelings about the whole thing when I look back on it, that it's a lot of sexism, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's unfortunate, you know, and I hope that history is on the side as it's moving the way it is that like, I think that that story hopefully can start to get told in a different way rather mm-hmm. than just a bunch of like, kind of pettiness or like drama, almost like a reality TV kind of thing that seems to like float around some of that, you know, um, right. especially the grunge part of it, I guess, or the riot girl part of it at times, you know, but yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess anything else that you want to, uh, to throw in as in terms of, you know, why you pick this and, and the impact it's had on you or what, I guess, you know, the, I don't know, maybe, the the danger of assigning i think i had some reservations with doing an episode like this only in that i don't want there is no genre called female rock right like that's really important to like get out there that's not a genre of music you know and so i wanted to spotlight female artists and the impact they had on these heavier bands that you you wanted to kind of focus on and so i don't know like how do you, how do you, as a female a fan of this, how, how do you like coach me through this? Like, how do I do that in a way that's like, maybe not offensive? Um, if that makes sense, you know what I mean? Cause we're trying well, really I mean, hard I, to, to I think, not do that. I think, like I said before, you know, it's more um, showing the influences and how different artists pave the way for the next artist to take it to the next level. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well said, well said. I just, you know, like I, I know that like Babes in Toyland were super influenced by like Husker Du, right? And and all that sort of Minnesota stuff. But I'm like, well, we've played Husker Du before, you know, like let's give the spotlight to some of the the other bands that had females in them that maybe people haven't heard before, you know? And that's like, I guess the impetus from our end. And I hope you know, like what we're trying to do. And I hope like any female that like comes across this episode also hopefully understands that, you know, that was yeah. just, it was really in the back of my mind as I put a lot of this together, like, to be really mindful of that, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you again. Um, is there any any last plugs or any last uh cool memories about L7, Babes in Toyland? Anything that you want to sort of share about the music that we're gonna hear, uh, other bands that we're featuring that you just kind of wanna give like a quick shout out in terms of like the you know, the, the impact it has on you today or, or really anything. Your final word, I guess. Oh my gosh, my final word. No, it's been this is this pressure, is intense. I know. Of Lots of <laughs> you don't need to. I just figured I'd uh I figured I'd ask. Um yeah, I don't know. Just keep an open mind and uh I, I, I hope that people actually, you know, take the time to listen to it and you know, you know, just be open to Maybe maybe they'll hear something that they might have just discounted before and uh, hear it with some new ears. You know, sometimes you listen to something that you heard 20 years ago and you were like, eh, this is garbage. And then you hear it 20 years later and you're like, wow, it's actually is 
All right. Um, so give it a chance. And uh, yeah, because I know this is a, a kind of out of the wheelhouse for a lot of listeners, but we tend to go out of the wheelhouse sometimes, you know what I mean? Like it's kind of what people hopefully expect from us. So I hope people will be, I think people. Well, and I wanted to challenge you. So it's a challenge. Yeah. I spent some time on it. That's, you know, I I had, you know, I thought, I thought about some other bands, but I'm like, Oh, that's too easy. It's too easy. (laughs) Well, you're, you're the first Patreon to ever pick an episode. So of course, like now the bar has been set. So now like (laughs) we do something like this again, people are going to like, Mark's nightmare of like, oh, they're going to pick Pantera. I know they are. That was his big like existential fear about this whole contest. He's like, these motherfuckers, they know, they know they're going to pick something. I said, no, our Patreons are kind people, though. So so thank you for not picking Pantera. Although I'm fine to talk about Pantera. I'd love to contextualize all that, but you know. All right. Well, cool. Um, I do, again, appreciate uh, your support as always. It's uh, really awesome. And I hope that we make you proud and congratulations on the win yet again. And uh, that's cool. This is like a episode for for you and for for Requiem fans and for, you know, just fans of heavy music. And I hope that anybody that maybe is unfamiliar with this scene and maybe or has like avoided it because of whatever reasons, you know, the second you hear Handsome and Gretel, you're, you'll just be like, fucking A, this is as heavy as the Melvins. Like, what have I been doing by not listening to this shit? You know what I mean? So um, that's my hope. You know, I mean, like the first time I heard Bruce Violet, it was like a game changer. Um, and it, honestly, it probably was Beavis and Butthead for me. You know, I think that was for a lot of people in our generation, like seeing that video and the fact that they endorsed it was so huge. And um I didn't care that they were girls. I was just like, this fucking rips, you know? And so, um, yeah. So anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that people will keep an open mind to this stuff as well. So. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you doing it. All right. Well, thank you again for your, your Patreon support. We, uh, we appreciate that. So that was cool to hear from Jess there. Um, you know, our first Patreon takeover for, of course, people that don't know what this was all about. Last summer, um, Andreas, uh, our very first and best patron, um, he'll love to hear that, um, <laughs> offered up a, a kind of matching donation sort of challenge. And we we sort of did, a, it was surrounding our three-part bolt thrower um, uh, memoriam kind of episodes that we were doing. And um, basically everyone that kind of made a, a big donation that he matched, we said we'd put all their names in a hat and draw them out. And uh Whoever that patron was could pick a topic for an episode. And so, yeah, so just uh, just got that. And um, she sent me a couple more thoughts um, this morning because she kind of, I think, just, you know, was was trying to think on the spot. She's not like you and I where we just do this for, I guess, a living. I don't know. But um, we, we make some money on it. So we make the money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, as a teacher, I'm always thinking on the spot. Like I, that's kind of my whole life is chaos and, you know, think, you know, just making up shit as I go. Well, yeah, uh, that's, that's me too. <laughs> that's it. Exactly. So she said, couple more thoughts. <clears throat> I think I talked about Patty Smith in the past tense a lot, but she's still super active touring, playing music, writing poetry, creating and totally inspiring and relevant, even in her seventies Two, I'm super excited for those that don't already know about them to hear the gets. I discovered them in high school and absolutely adore Mia's rocking Joan Jett-esque vocals soaring over energetic punk rock anthems. Mia's premature death also sadly highlights what women were up against. 
<clears throat> Despite all her talent, some demented asshole looked at her like an object for the taking, stalked her after a show, and destroyed everything in one horrible night. Three, I played music a lot throughout high school and college, wrote my own music, <clears throat> played gigs when I could. I know that life. As a woman, it's different to be on stage and be judged by an audience. I ended up pursuing a business degree in school and in uh, one of my HR classes, I remember we were talking about gender in the workplace. One of the guys in my class actually said that if his boss were a man, then he would automatically respect him. But if he had a female manager, she would have to earn his respect. I never heard anyone articulate it quite fr that frankly, but as a woman, that's what I've been up against my whole life, whether competing in a male dominated music industry or for a place in the upper management. It's 2023 and I still feel it. I think it's really important thinking about the historical context of what these women were braving in 1975 and 1985. These are these women are fucking warriors armed with guitars, fueled with rage, playing their hearts out and putting it all on the line. I really can't think of anything more metal than that. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is terrible. But um, so I thought that was kind of a cool little after statement from Jess that kind of adds on to kind of what she was talking about in the, the piece that we did last night. So, yeah, I feel like <clears throat> for some reason we were lucky for the most part with our friend group where we didn't have a bunch of like meatheads that had those types of attitudes. <laughs> sure. I couldn't imagine saying something shitty like that. Like I, I would, I, I, somebody, no matter who it is, needs to, you know, demand my respect or earn my respect. But to be so like, I don't know, that's, that's, that's really unfortunate. Anybody's got to deal with that. I mean, I have one of the the biggest issues that's kind of going on with like high school boys right now is like, especially in middle school, they're all sort of discovering like Andrew Tate and they like live on his website. Who's Andrew and Tate? So Andrew Tate's like the, the sexist guy, the sex trafficker that got arrested like in Romania and stuff like that. Um, I have no idea who this is. So, Oh, you're lucky. So he's like promotes like rape culture and like hating women. And he's like a huge YouTube personality. Um, and like all these like 13, 14 year old boys think he's awesome because he talks about being an alpha and like, you got to be yeah. the alpha. You got to tell the woman what to do and blah, blah, blah. And they love hearing that because it just like, it feeds into their worst impulses. And when you're 13, you have a lot of really fucking bad impulses. Right. And so like, sure. Well, and, and a lot of like, it's the antithesis of, mm -hmm. um, you know, any, any of the other sexual conversations going on right now exactly. that they're hearing. Exactly. So it's, you know, so, so they teenage love kids. It's, it's like, when we first heard Andrew Dice Clay for the first time, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was like, yeah. you know, this terrible, stupid shit. But yeah, at that, that's the age it grabs you. And, and so like, you're dealing with a lot of that in high school where these kids have to almost like be deeper programmed a little bit from that, because that's what like, sort of like shaped their values about how they think about women and stuff. And so it's, it's just a lot, you know, like these kids that are basically growing up with the internet, they they can find everything and anything. And that's good and bad, obviously, you know, so it's like a minefield out there. So yeah, that's the existential, existential crisis of the internet is yeah. all the information's there and all the information's there. Exactly. It's both. You know, it's also like both. if you want to see the worst sexual act as a young kid, you can find stuff everywhere. Like there's also no, found every book that's ever been created and all the great information, you know, just yeah. depends on what you want to use it for. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. Crazy. So I guess, you know, <clears throat> in putting this together, I think I, I wrote some thoughts. I said, we're going to kind of try and take a minimalist approach and build some context for L7 and babes by highlighting and spotlighting some of the female artists that paved the way or directly inspired them with a lot of research or scholarship to keep things moving. 
Um, just again, another shout out to Nick Green. He really, you know, helped a, a little bit with that um, for two reasons. One, I think this subject, if you wanted to do it dead end justice, deserves its own series by people more qualified than Mark and I. Um, so less is more out of respect. Uh, this is not venom or neurosis, you know, yeah. so we're just kind of like grazing the pasture a little bit here. Well, it's an and, incredibly broad mm-hmm. subject. For uh, sure. I mean, you know, you could, we could Patty talk Smith about deserves their own five hour episode. You yeah, know what I mean? Easy. Like, yeah, yeah. Our, you know, like a lot of these bands do. And so it's like, how much do you, you go into it? So I think just kind of highlighting that is, is going to be kind of our approach. And then the second thing, as I said, it's a Patreon takeover. So we're up for the challenge, but I think we don't want this to be kind of a female genre episode, right? Because most, uh, if not all want it, that feminist goal of being treated as just another band, not just a girl band. So yeah, that's, I think the, the two things that I kind of like, you know, had in my, my own manifesto for how to approach a show like this, I guess, you know? So, um, yeah. So anyways, let's, uh, let's hit it. So I guess in this set, what we're going to be looking at is kind of like the 70s kind of hard rock uh, kind of influences that were going on. And some of these bands kind of towed the line of like proto-punk as well uh, with Patti Smith and Blondie. But, um, yeah, you know, starting with Susie Quattro, as Mark kind of mentioned before, and, you know, she was out of Detroit and, and at times Canada, too. She played in some bands across the, the river. And, um, you know, people, a lot of people knew her from Happy Days. She played Leather uh, Trocadero uh, or Tuscadero. Sorry. On that, that was show. her pink, pinky duskadero. Yeah, that was her. <clears throat> yep. <laughs> so um, I knew her more from mm-hmm. that than than as a best actual musician. So yeah, I think I a used lot to of watch people. that like every day after school. She was in some bands with some of her sisters that um, I actually checked out a few years back. I picked up some of the reissues. One's the Pleasure Seekers, and the other is Cradle. They're actually pretty cool, like '60s kind of like proto metal stuff. Yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome actually. Um, you know, and she was linked to the glam scene a little bit. She, obviously, when you hear, you know, Shine My Machine, you can kind of put this along with Sweet and, um, you know, the Slade and, and some of the stuff that was going on in England, obviously, at the time. And I think a healthy dose of Seeger. Yeah, that's definitely there. You know, she definitely she's singing about Motown and different things like that. that are kind I of think that's on. what it is, is like the, you know, the people kind of pulling in Motown elements into their into their music, soul elements. Yeah. And it's funny because I originally wasn't going to put Susie Quattro in until Nick Green was like, you got to put Susie Quattro in because that's who the Runaways were trying to be. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, OK, interesting. I, I I don't know if I knew that or maybe I had heard that before, but forgot. But I was like, that makes sense because she you know, she dressed in leather. She kind of had the style, this look to her. And she even though, edge. yeah, yeah, she had an edge. She's not heavy at all. You know, it's not mm-hmm. what I call like proto metal or anything, but like as like a inspiring person for where all of this is going to go this is kind of like the origin point is somebody like a Susie quattro you know so well, especially um, for i would say for rock because at this point like it, it had female fronted bands wasn't a new thing but for for hard harder rock harder edged rock that's you know yeah really yeah you on. obviously had the, the girl groups and soul music and and all that stuff that was really huge you know in the 60s and, and stuff we should but, take uh, a, a second just to say uh you know oh, good, right. goodbye tina. to uh, tina turner yeah uh river deep mountain high man that's uh one of the great live performers of all time certainly and um you know just uh kind of a legend it's weird because like you and i growing up like knew her as like this completely different personality from you know mad max and kind of her like second run as well, you like, remember kind of- her uh, pantyhose commercials 
for legs. I mean, yeah, I mean, I kind of remember all that <laughs> stuff, but I didn't realize how like how old she was, right? You know, like that. Oh she yeah, that was that was a big deal. Act. That she was kind of her second act. <clears throat> yeah, but uh, yeah, definitely uh, yeah, kind of a, a a sad one. But you know, she for having such a tough life, especially early on, you know, where she ended up is is pretty remarkable. So it's pretty cool. So. Yeah, I just watched that documentary not too long ago. To the I think it's the HBO documentary they did about. Oh, her. okay. I haven't seen that. I've it's just seen good. the the Angela Bassett movie. What's love got to do with it, or whatever? So okay, I, Ike's not a good guy. You know, he's a dick. They had some. They made some incredible music together, but everything else was very turbulent. <laughs> I mean, it's it's weird because Ike Turner helped write the first rock and roll song ever, and so it's like it's such a weird thing. He he basically wrote Rocket eighty eight, which was like the yeah. You know, sun first record rock and roll song. Yeah. And it's like, ah, damn it. Why does this guy have to suck so bad? You know, well, but the thing that's... is like a lot of really nice people don't have the gumption to do anything. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, uh, <laughs> that's yeah, a good we, point. yeah, we have, um, uh, people are complex. So, yep. you know, it's, uh, yeah, you are. can be a shithead, but you can also make something awesome and inspiring. Yep. You just yep. don't have to follow their, their, uh, their morality, <laughs> their morality. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then we go from Susie to, I think <clears throat> probably the most important artist of the whole episode, I would say in terms of like who had the most seismic effect. And I think it's gotta be Patty Smith. Um, yeah, I would say musically and just artistically in general, like attitude and look and yeah. And all, like her gender expectations and her all. singing voice too, where she, she has a great voice, mm-hmm. but she, like she can do an affected voice that's like you know growly and you know ugly, but she she just has this span that's really really great. Yeah, no, I mean you know this garage rock sound that she brings in her lyrics or poetry, you know, like we talked about, like the way um, Jess even brought up when we were kind of talking in the clip before, you know, the androgyny of how she dressed like on the cover of Horses and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like, you know, heavy street cred too, the other thing that's going on, you can kind of hear it a lot, especially on Radio Ethiopia, because this is when she's dating uh, Alan Lanier from Blue Oyster Cult. Mm-hmm. And so she was like writing lyrics for Blue Oyster Cult at this time. And I think like you can like hear some of the guitar stuff on Ask the Angels. It really reminds me of those first three Blue Oyster Cults, like in terms of like that kind of heavier sound that was also like super accessible you know yeah yeah i mean the, just a great like garage rock vibe and um i mean i can totally see why you know her and fred sonic smith got together yeah, got together <laughs> what a what a great combo for like for musicians the other thing that's kind of cool about the blazer cult thing is that like he was kind of one of the ones that when she was starting to write some like lyrics for early blazer cult albums he like encouraged her to find her own musical voice and and like that's kind of one of the reasons that she you know kind of put together the band to start you know to do horses and stuff mm-hmm. so i'm not saying it's because of blue oyster called or anything but like it's kind of cool it's like a weird like metal patty smith kind of connection i guess there you know yeah um, kind of shaped i think a lot of you know trajectories for a lot of like uh i would say less traditional female singers well i think that's the thing i i wrote her vocal approach and attitude i think were huge for like babes whole l7 a lot of those bands in terms sonic of just, youth the kim gordon for sure yeah, kim gordon absolutely you know so that's that's a big one so you know <clears throat> if you don't know who patty smith is as like maybe just a diehard you know metalhead that's never really gone down that route 
you know, I encourage you to check out um, her 70s material quite a bit. Um, it's all super great Easter horses, uh, Radio Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's different. It's not going to be punk in the way that like, you know, Sex Pistols or The Clash and the Ramones were punk, but it, it definitely has like roots in garage rock and art rock and, and some other kind of velvet underground and, and some of that kind totally. of stuff. Was, you know, punk uh, and spirit, not necessarily in, in sound. Because at that yeah. point there was... Mm-hmm. There was, it was no more point. of an idea than, yeah, exactly. than, than a specific yeah. like trait of like, oh, this is a black metal band. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, speaking of a band that kind of got put under the punk tag, but probably wasn't truly punk by like, our, you know, the definition that we kind of have today, Blondie. And, you know, Blondie was a band that was inspired by what, you know, they were seeing at CBGBs and Max's uh, Kansas City, you know, mm-hmm. which is where Eddie Smith got her start. And. You know, I mean, that the self-titled record in 76, a year after that, that Patti Smith record that we're, we're just playing something off Radio Ethiopia. And I think Horses was 73 or 74. So two years basically after Patti Smith got started, um, you know, the self-titled, it's, it's, I guess, punk, but I'd also say it's new wave. It's got keyboards and, and different things like that. Um, There's a lot of keyboards and a lot of this early stuff. I think that it was less of a divisive instrument <laughs> in the yeah. 70s. <laughs> Well, you know, Suicide was doing stuff with keyboards too. Oh, you know, totally, I mean, there yeah. were like a lot of really interesting bands that, like, I guess were basically if you were doing it yourself, if you were kind of left of center and weird and avant a little bit, like you could be called punk. You know, Talking Heads, Television. You know, all those. Yeah, it was more like yeah, like your attitude. Like even back then, it was where you played. You know, CBGBs and those areas had you know they had a really diverse, eclectic kind of group of bands coming through there. Sure. Yeah. But uh, the song we're going to play, Ripper Shreds, or Ripper to Shreds, sorry. Um, you know, it, it it's kind of cool because it kind of deconstructs the massive hypocrisy and judgment that's placed on, like, women's looks and fashion and things like that when they're, like, you know, singing, come on, Ripper to Shreds. And they're talking about she looks like a groupie, she looks like this. And I think that's kind of like, you know, Debbie Harry and and the guys, you know, the other people in Blondie just kind of like, winking at the audience like you know this is how rock and roll sort of is and like are you going to do this to us because we have this like kind of beautiful singer who's also kind of edgy but also Mm -hmm. pretty cool also pretty fashionable you know and it's like i don't know i think it's it's really like kind of uh self-referential and and kind of subversive in in a way if once you pay attention to the lyrics like musically it's not like gonna blow your mind or anything but i think like the thing to pay attention to in a in, in a show like this is so much of the words and the message of a lot of these songs right i think that's kind of yeah the, yeah absolutely like blondie's kind of doing here you know because uh, yeah because really blondie's a mm-hmm. you know a, kind of a, a pop facing band but it's the content yeah. and the content and some yeah. of the more you know dissonant aspects that kind of make them more be thrown in that in the punk tag well, the fact that they were playing at CBGBs and all that stuff, like people were scared that Debbie Harry like had like a knife on her at all times. And she's just like this cute bubbly blonde. She's like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. I mean, I remember listening to like the that sort of like audio documentary series on Ramones. And they were saying that one of the reasons the Ramones wouldn't get booked at gigs, even though like their songs were so fucking catchy, is everybody thought because they were punk, quote unquote, that they were like banishing like weapons and they would start riots at their shows and they're like we're just <laughs> they doing bicycle chains in their pocket or something yeah we're just doing fucking like bob bubblegum pop like sped up like what the fuck and like in a way the ramones probably should have been way bigger than they were but a lot of doors were shut to them because people were just scared of the idea of what they thought punk was you know yeah, so, yeah for sure kind of, kind of too bad 
but um definitely a huge foundational band along with the ramones blondie in the you know 76 you know and then we kind of get to you know i think the other band that's probably from an image wise and, and even to some extent a sound had quite a bit to do especially i think with probably like a band like l7 um on some level and that's uh you know the cherry bombs themselves right uh the runaways mm-hmm. and they're kind of the prototype for so many of the kind of hard edge kind of grungy female punk hard rock sort of stuff um even if a lot of what the runaways were doing was kind of cultivated by kim kim fowley who was their manager and mm-hmm. i think he he kind of was doing something to like promote this image of who they were i think you well, it's you kind follow, of the gimmick too because they're all so young yeah exactly they didn't it was know like the that. idea of like uh like you know like a boy band or why don't I, I don't know if there's what's the equivalent of we don't usually call them girl bands right like spice girls and that shit no but i think it's the same as yeah spice girls and and all that stuff is that kind of same idea weird. where it's a cultivated thing for sure but they actually had some pretty ripping music Oh, fuck. that's the thing. I mean, you look at the quality of musicians. You got, you know, Lita Ford ripping on a you know, lead guitar and fucking Joan Jett, you know, mm-hmm. what she's solo wise and stuff. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, like, you know, it's Sandy West on drums. Joan Jett uh, was the rhythm guitar player, uh, Lita Ford, Sherry Curry on vocals. And then you had Jackie Fox on bass. And um, the original singer, actually, I didn't know this. I just found this out today was Mickey Steele. Um, they were a three piece. And then she left and then she sort of joined up and started a band called the Bengals. So <laughs> really interesting how all these things are like kind of interconnected, you know, so it's kind of a, a fun yeah. one. But um, Dead End Justice, the reason I picked this is this has always been one of my favorite runaway songs because it's uh, it does a couple things. One, it sort of plays off those like early 60s, like playlets that like bands like the Coasters did and like the Shangri-Las mm-hmm. where they're almost like staging like a musical theater kind of performance or something like that yeah but it also has like fucking awesome riffs all over the place you know like you gotta it, certainly the first half of the song is just a normal song but then that last minute 15 just fucking rips with these like stooges kind of riffs and like leads from lita four that are pretty killer and um yeah, at like 3 30 it kind of breaks into a kiss song for a minute well, yeah, it breaks into a kiss song and then it becomes like a play of them being like trapped in prison. That's like the whole playlet kind of like almost like a theatrical performance. Yeah. And then like it kind of breaks out of that at the very end. And that's when it goes back into like kind of Stooges MC5 kind of stuff. And Some um, good gang vocals happening. Yeah, exactly. You know, but they're they're definitely going to get justice, you know. But um, but I think like the runaways from an image standpoint and all these other things were so crucial to the next wave, even if like. I think they're like kiss in a way like even if you saw like the artifice that they were kind of like not completely serious or that there was a little bit of novelty to what the runaways were doing they're still inspiring people especially women to like pick up guitars and like start bands and shit like that because it's like you know representation matters if you can see yourself doing that stuff and have like an all-girls band that's just like dressing cool and cool haircuts and being you know with this kind of attitude like that's that that does stuff you know what i mean it changes people's lives a little you know yeah for sure so um yeah and then we're gonna end with heart um you know who knew we'd get to play hard on requiem but here we are um i've always loved heart i don't know what your feelings are on them but yeah um, i've always i've always liked the 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 sisters like the i don't know like ann wilson's voice is incredible she fucking wails, dude. She can. Um, her whole like kind of like connection to some of the Seattle stuff and Allison Chains was always interesting. 
Yeah, I think that's that's the one of the reasons I wanted to sneak them in is because a lot of the bands, especially in like the later sets, are kind of centered in that Pacific Northwest area. And I got to believe that they they knew about Heart and the fact that Heart's on, you know, the you know, Alice in Chains sap and, and things like that. Like they're part of that, whether like those bands wanted to admit it out loud. The fact that you had this badass fucking band that was fronted by two women on lead guitar and, you know, vocals that had to inspire a lot of those those riot girl bands and some of those Olympia bands and Seattle bands, even if they didn't want to own it the same way that like kiss inspired people. And then people didn't really want to admit it, you know, until they sure. got older and kind of comfortable with it. But I know for me, like, you know, the Wilson sisters had to be an inspiration, you know, to impressionable, like everyone, right. Like growing up with MTV and seeing like most female artists, like your Madonna's or Cindy Lopper's, they just seemed to like dance around. They didn't really like play instruments that I saw very often. Mm-hmm. And so like seeing heart videos with like fucking Nancy Wilson, like shredding, like that kind of broke down some, like it demystified a lot of the like barriers of like maybe some of my own perceptions of what I thought like rock and roll was. And I think that's cool. You know, yeah. like even if it was subconscious, it, it was still doing that a little bit for me. And um, yeah, it wasn't just a novelty. These were like people that were, you know, like kicking ass, you know, even if like maybe their 80s stuff is not as good as their 70s stuff. But um, well, they had, you know, you know kind of a renaissance. So they're pretty fucking popular in the 80s. Yeah, they sort of brought themselves back. They kind of found a little bit of hair metal ish, you know, pop kind of like a mixture of those two elements and kind mm-hmm. of found their niche again, you know. So um, yeah, just like yeah. Yeah, White Snake or. Aerosmith or any of these bands that had some success in the seventies. Yep. Yep. And then, you know, you hear a song like devil delight and I mean, it's got some fucking doomy riffs and some cool, like melodic passages. I mean, heart could rock, you know, they could yeah. hold their own with all those bands. Some scorpions in there, I think some early scorpions yeah. kind of vibes. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's kind of fun to spotlight like this kind of some of these hidden gems maybe from the seventies that, you know, I don't think a lot of people know devil delight doesn't get the play on, on, um, you know, mainstream radio the way like crazy on you and magic man and some of that stuff barracuda, barracuda yeah and those are great i mean barracuda is like a fucking riff you know i mean that's mm-hmm. that's a metal riff basically you know so but um yeah so i think this is a good foundation to kind of start off with to sort of like show where maybe some of the inspirations for a lot of the bands that we're going to be spotlighting in the second half probably got their start or, or definitely you know I remember reading a lot of these bands the first time they heard Patti Smith, like they started a band, you know, or the first time they heard Blondie, they started a band. So Mm -hmm. it definitely mattered, you know? So, all right. So what we're going to hear is we're going to hear first shine my machine from Susie Quattro from 1973 from the Susie Quattro self-titled then from uh, 1975's radio Ethiopia. We've got the Patti Smith group with ask the angels, then ripper to shreds from Blondie's Blondie. Dead End Justice from the self-titled Runaways from 76. And then from 1977's magazine, we've got Hearts, Devil Delight.
cheap rundown teenage jail, that's where. Oh my god! Yeah, blonde, you're gonna be here till you're 18, so get used to it. Behind the bars, there's a superstar.
Devil Delight from Heart, Dead End Justice from The Runaways, Ripper to Shreds from Blondie, Ask the Angels from Patti Smith Group. And then we start off with Susie Quattro's Shine My Machine. So we're just going to keep the train uh, a rolling here, Mark. Um, As Ursula says. Yeah, that is true. I guess kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, what's your take on the role that punk rock played in terms of 
I guess democratizing music a little bit more for women. Do you see that as like kind of a big step in terms of getting a lot more like women involved in kind of harder music and, and, you know, that kind of thing? Or do you think that's an overstated kind of narrative? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. It was something I was thinking about. Are you thinking the stuff from the, from the late seventies? Yeah, I think, you know, seventies, early eighties, you know, like, um, because the of DIY the, kind of attitude that like you know everyone can do it including women you know patty smith's doing it blondie's doing it and so like it kind of opened the gates for some of that i don't know i think the, uh, i mean this the the scene was so kind of fractured anyways there wasn't necessarily like a guiding force um under the whole thing but because re- really we didn't see i mean outside like x-ray specs there's a handful like in the cramps and but all that stuff is thrown under this umbrella that I don't necessarily know if it all deserves to be there. No. Um, but it was definitely like it was outside voices and with a lot of women in it. I don't know if because punk seems in a lot of the stuff that I was reading and and just from um, like the whole uh, Riot girl movement, uh, sure. it was becoming very like they were outsiders in the whole thing. Like women were marginalized and you know, not really feeling part of, of that. But scene. I think a lot of that was more the eighties hardcore scene. Don't you think that got really machismo and like, you know, brutal pits. And I feel like Probably. there was a moment in the late seventies where it was like more artsy and more open-minded. And maybe there was a little bit more room for women, but. Well, that's, but the, I, I think that's the big extreme on all this stuff is the more artful stuff like Patty Smith. And then there's, then there's stuff that's more, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think what's it's not like the antithesis of of intelligentsia or anything but it's like kind of more like visceral eh, some of some of it's like whatever the the um female version of machismo is okay um, yeah okay you know like with like 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 the renegades that kind of you know had a little bit of that vibe going on oh, the runaways you mean runaways yeah what did yeah. i say the renegades which i'm i'm here for the renegades i'm thinking about sergeant slaughter's renegades or something but (laughs) (laughs) i think we should start a start a renegades band i think that would be a pretty killer fucking rock band name yeah no i think you're right though the whole the you know and like hardcore didn't last long and it started all the stuff that kind of splintered off from that was was much more of the you know kind of the bro core um side of the aisle i think where it was much more about fucking people up and yeah um you know which is weird because like black flag was a huge influence on l7 babes whole like they weren't that but like a lot of the bands they inspired unfortunately or that grew out of that were like i don't know way more bro-y you know the agnostic fronts and, and some of that kind of stuff that just well, got there's a, a lot of that too is uh as a cultural thing like new york cultural thing which is that you know we don't really understand with like if you weren't tough you got fucked with yeah. Like it was a survival mechanism. So yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on there, but I think you're right with uh, the 70s stuff was much more um, democratized coming into the 80s because it was much more broad. Yeah. You know, That's with uh, yeah, with just all, all the different stuff, like the, the punk and post-punk kind of banners were just so diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it was like the, the late 70s, early 80s stuff is just incredibly creative period and all kinds of like, you know, goth stuff coming in and um yeah all the post-punk stuff and yeah yeah. there's so so much like that's i think i'm more drawn to that kind of more um the arty more dissonant stuff 
you know, sure. like, like what, you know, Sonic Youth kind of came right out of that thing too. With the, the whole, uh, yeah, the no wave, no, scene. no yeah. wave. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So I guess that leads us to sort of the, this next set. We're kind of looking at bands that quote unquote would kind of fall under the punk post-punk uh, kind of new wave kind of scene, you know, that grew out of what Blondie and Patti Smith and, you know, Ramones and all the other New York bands were kind of doing. And um, we start first with a couple, a, a trio of bands from uh, England, which is X-Ray Specs, the Slits and the Raincoats, who were all kind of happening between 78, 79, kind of in that realm. And, um, I'm pretty familiar with the slits and I got into the raincoats quite a few years back through like Kurt Cobain and, and some other people like kind of talking a lot about the raincoats. I picked some of that stuff up. X-ray specs I've always known about, but I haven't spent a lot of time with them if I'm being honest. And um, germ-free adolescence is the only full length that they ever put out. And then they had some other like singles and, and things like that as well. Their kind of first big kind of single, um, it, was, it was a band that was formed by polystyrene. Uh, um, and Laura Logic, who um, they the formed. Sax player? Yeah, she was doing saxophone. Yeah. And um, they formed in 76, and they kind of burst on the scene with a feminist anthem called Oh Bondage Up Yours, which actually wasn't, it was kind of hard to get. It was released as a single, but then when they put the Germ Free Adolescence kind of album out, I guess it wasn't on there, and people were kind of annoyed with that, but it is what it is. And um, I Am a Poser is a song that comes from their, their really their only full length Germ Free Adolescence. And I, I dig it. It's, it's cool. It's very energetic. It's got like a, you know, a good feel to it. Um, the saxophone part is, is kind of interesting. You know, it's not overpronounced or overused, at least on this song. I don't, I don't know their whole catalog very well, but yeah, I don't I mean, know. I think the, their, I, the whole kind of attitude is punk, but it's, I think it has almost more to do with like reggae and glam music. Yeah. Uh, as and far as the, is a big, much bigger part of the, the British scene for sure. You know, yeah. um, and for people that don't know why, I, you know, to, not to go kind of too into that, but like when the punk clubs were kind of opening up, they were always, all these punks were gathering in these clubs. But the problem was, is the bands were playing live, but no one had any songs out. So like there were no songs in the jukebox that were punk. So the only thing that they would play on those jukeboxes is reggae music. And so reggae they thought was cool because it was anti-establishment down with the man it was you know middle finger kind of you know rebel music if you want if you will and so like okay. reggae colonial was, music <laughs> yeah it is it sort of kind of started to bleed into the the punk scene that way and then bands like you know the clash and x-ray specs and the slits and you know the specials and all those bands kind of took it and of course you get ska that comes out of that and yeah. whatever but um yeah so definitely like the the use of you know saxophones and, and some of these other kind of aspects to it are, are pretty interesting. Now, now the slits were a band that I was way more into. Um, I don't know how I got into them, but I have them on vinyl upstairs and I talk about them in my, my punk part of my class that I teach. Um, you know, so I'm always been a little bit more familiar with them, even though I'm very aware of X-ray specs yeah. as kind of an influence. Um, they basically formed around a Patti Smith gig. Um, so speaking of the influence there, it was uh, Ari Up formed them in 76 when she was 14 years old. And she met up with one of her friends, uh, Paul Mollive, um, and they formed the band in 76. And three years later, when she's fucking 17 years old, they're putting out uh, typical girls and, and cut. And um, it's pretty crude. Um, very primitive. They didn't know how to play any instruments at first. That was kind of something they prided themselves on a little bit. Yeah. It was kind of interesting because that would get kind of into the 
uh, Riot Girl Manifesto a little bit too, you know, in terms of like simplicity and, and you know, economical music. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mick Jones kind of started teaching them how to like tune their guitars a little bit. And that helped get them the sort of uh, opening gig for the Clash's White Riot tour in 77. And that's what kind of like put them on the map. So they're playing before, you know, the Clash when the Clash was kind of starting to really break out. And um, yeah, anyways, it's, it's kind of a, that's that's kind of where the, the slits kind of come out of. And what I've always found kind of fun about Typical Girls is the lyrics. They're really this sort of clem- clever, like kind of feminist deconstruction of like female cliches, um, you know, of what this girl's supposed to be and what this girl's supposed to be and what a typical boy that would be into like the typical girl. Yeah. Because like if you looked at the way that the slits dress, they definitely didn't dress typical. They were dressing very um anti-feminine and wearing whatever the fuck they wanted and dreadlocks and all kinds of crazy shit and so again just from a lyrical standpoint it's probably more interesting to a lot of people than maybe you know some of the reggae kind of laden music is but um this also does has a fair amount of reggae breakdowns in it absolutely definitely hugely reggae kind of stuff look thing going back real quick to x-ray specs um polystyrene's whole look was like she had she like created her own clothes and um had like this very specific weird like she had there's a i don't know if it's on one of the albums but she has this thing that almost looks like a a big like can big green can that she's wearing oh really that, that has almost like uh like little straps on the shoulders and then like some type of little hat but she was just going for completely kind of like bonkers look yeah and she was i think she was part i don't know if she was part jamaican or if she was she was half half black Okay. Um, so she, no, she definitely dealt with some, some shit over that. Yeah. So she was, yeah. she kind of like created this whole new identity for herself and as the front woman. Oh, wait. No, Ari Up is not Jamaican. Ari Up was German. So the lead singer of the Slits. So she mm-hmm. was like half German, like half British, maybe or something. So, okay. like when you hear an interview, she has like a really fascinating accent because she's also like way into reggae. So mm-hmm. it's like reggae, German, and like English accents like mixed together. Like it's fucking weird. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't quite wrap my head around it. And then we go to the third band that's kind of part of this like British trio of kind of female punk that was kind of coming out around this time. And that's the Raincoats and um a tune called Fairy Tale in the Supermarket. And they were formed in 77 by Gina Birch and Anna De Silva. And they had more of a much more of an artsy, dissonant kind of post-punk thing kind of going on, I, I would say. Yeah, um, lots of Velvet Underground and like early U2 riffs and stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. Definitely not coming from the Clash Pistols kind of school of thought, but much more the atonal, like you said, Velvet Underground and, and some of that kind of stuff. Um, and Fairy Tale was the first single that was put out, and it was put out by Rough Trade, um, the, the, the kind of, didn't they have something to do with Napalm at one point? Rough I think Trade. they were a distribution company. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, and so, yeah, if you kind of got distributed by Rough Trade, it was kind of like a little bit of street cred for you. But like raincoats were fairly, I don't, they they did definitely didn't get the attention that the slits and maybe x-ray specs got until the late 80s, early 90s, because it was actually Kim Gordon and Kurt Cobain that started to like talk up the raincoats. And when like Kurt Cobain th- like talked about the raincoats in the incesticide. I think it was the incesticide, like liner notes on Nirvana. Like it drew a lot of eyes and attention back on, on them and people were trying to track them down. And then Kim Gordon, like, you know, like would always would talk up the raincoats. And so I think it's cool. And I think it's 
it's one of the things like, you know, people who maybe like slag on like Kurt Cobain or Nirvana or the grunge thing, but like, you know, you know how powerful it was like when you were getting those early death metal, you know, tapes and CDs and stuff to look through all the bands that were being thanked. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. you would almost make like a mental note of like, oh, that's a, that, that sounds like a cool band. I need to check them out. And like the fact that like Kurt Cobain had a forum to like be like a tastemaker and he was like spotlighting like the meat puppets and rain raincoats and um, the Melvins. And, you know, he was doing a lot to shine attention, you know, flipper, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. like on bands that probably never would have ever gotten any kind of attention. They would have like kind of faded into like somewhat obscurity. A lot of them are too, are too fringe for any type of, you know, mass appeal. Exactly. And so, you know, he probably upped their fucking album sales by like a hundred thousand or 50,000 or something like that, just by him talking about them. And that's cool. You know, like good, good for him, you know, to, to use his forum for like the powers of good, I suppose. But uh, yeah, pretty interesting. And that's kind of how like a lot of people found out about the raincoats again. Like, I think they had like a a moment in the late seventies, but it was like not a big moment, you know, per se. So, yeah. um, then we moved back over into the States, um, to a band that had a, a huge influence, especially in L7, because L7 was a band that hailed out of Los Angeles. And so they really did look up to bands like X and a lot of that punk, like, uh, LA kind of Cali, um, punk scene that was kind of going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, Los Angeles was kind of their, their debut masterpiece. Um, it was produced by Ray, Ray Manzarek from the doors. Um, pretty controversial title track because they're kind of talking about like <clears throat> different stereotypes in Los Angeles. And so they use some fairly kind of crude language, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not playing the title track. We're playing uh, Nausea. But um, again, here's the uh, here's the connecting tissue for X. John Doe and then uh, Exine Cervanka uh, discovered punk um, through Patty Smith. So that's what kind of like got John Doe like into punk was listening to Patty Smith records. And then that's when he met uh, this woman, Christine uh, Servankova, who changed her name to Exine uh, Servanka. And uh, she wanted to be a poet, kind of like Patty Smith. And they dated, formed a band and eventually got married. And uh, they made this hugely influential, pretty badass punk record. Um, and like I said, this had a, a big impact, especially on the sound of like L7 uh, kind of down the road and stuff like that. Um, were you ever into these guys? Chris True is really into X and I never really got into him as much as I probably should have. If I'm no, I, I mean, at the, when I was working at the, uh, the record store down, down in Detroit, um, or Detroit area, um, not the, not the record store we talk about usually, which is no, not the one from Mount Pleasant, but, uh, that I was just listening cause there was like a, an edict not to play any extreme metal. Oh, okay. At the For store. Sure. So yep. I would go through, that's like, I'd go through and listen to like, you know, UFO and like all this, like, you know, rock stuff. But then we put on, you know, stuff like that. I didn't, I, you know, I never really listened to much of X or like, even I know like a handful of Ramones songs, but not listen to the whole record, you know? So I'd be uh, pulling in a lot of that kind of stuff. That's the first, probably 10 years ago. I first listened to it a little bit. It's okay. There's a, something about LA bands that rubbed me the wrong way. Really? Okay. So you never like, got like the germs or, or any of those kind of bands. Germ, germs are okay. Um, but there's like a very like LA m- mentality. I, I, I always think back to like the, uh, the East coast versus West coast of, you know, like, uh, what was happening with like MC five and velvet underground the yeah. stooges. And then what was yeah. happening in California that seemed less interesting to me. Okay. It's, it's like a, uh, 
don't know because just like going through and when i'm like writing some notes on the bands like okay they're from they're from la that's what there's that certain thing like how yeah. the, a lot of the cock rock from la was just like sunset strip stuff there's a certain level of like sleaze to it sure. no matter what yeah. it is um yeah. just because that city is kind of like the it's chinatown you know what yeah. i mean the, yeah it's like a dark <laughs> dark underbelly of like gross weird shit going on it's yeah. ball and drive you know all that stuff yeah 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 i think that that's yeah. kind of what it, that bit of bit of sleaze but not not quite as interesting as the more caustic stuff to me yeah yeah i could see that yeah there's i i've grown to really appreciate especially this record i'll be honest i haven't listened to a lot of x past it but um yeah i've kind of really grown to dig los angeles quite a bit um and nausea in particular is, is cool you know I, I like what uh what xine does on the song it's, it's she's got some kind of cool approach to it you know like what's well, kind of the driving driving force of the song the drums are so fucking simple yeah, um, yeah i don't think they change or even have like a even have like any kind of like uh crash hits or anything yeah it's it's pretty like velvet undergroundy you know from yeah. that standpoint you know keyboards so. and some deep purple kind of organ yeah. grinding stuff yeah i just think it's it's pretty unique for like a punk band to have like they didn't sound like a lot of the other punk bands i i suppose so i, I give them that they kind of had their own kind of sound you know yeah um, i think everybody at that t- point kind of had i think hardcore is when everything kind of started sounding like okay this is a like this is a genre purified. yeah it got purified yeah. no sound yep and then we go to a band that we recently talked about actually on our uh Sal-Hain episode which is the cramps and mm-hmm. um this is them doing uh, uh you know it's another gender diverse punk band from this era with lux interior and uh christy wallace who uh, most people know is poison, poison ivy. ivy yeah and i think what's cool about the cramps is like she's rocking on guitar and uh, i think it's cool that you didn't have to a lot of you know a lot of the bands we've been kind of spotlighting so far are the vocalists right you know mm-hmm. at least the vocalists, if not the whole band but but often only the vocalists you know and so it's cool that like you had a male vocalist and a female guitarist and that was kind of breaking some rules i guess or some standards back then yeah i would think um, that like there was more um if i had to like armchair quarterback what i think why that it was it was uh i think that there was there was way more opportunity to sing for women in sure. traditional life you know church or whatever it might be and like guitar was a very not really a instrument that many people played until like the you know all the garage band stuff started happening but 60s. I, I, yeah i feel like i feel like women probably weren't really clamoring to do that either it was kind of an outsider thing well i think too there's there is like a it's there's a weird i was i was at an orchestra show for the school i teach at the other night and it was um one of our listeners um who just graduated uh who's been a long-term you know long-time Mac requiem uh listener he he was playing like a oh boy was it bach he was doing like a guitar solo. It was pretty ripping. And he's mm-hmm. like, hey, I want you to come. You know, I was like, oh, I'll go for that for sure. And uh, it was awesome. But when I was sitting there, I was like watching the different people playing the different instruments. And I thought to myself, like, there were no girls playing tuba. And there were only girls playing flute. And I kind of started thinking hmm. about, like, there's this weird gender dynamic towards instruments sometimes, maybe in terms of like the instruments we guide different people towards maybe at a young age without maybe even knowing that we're doing it. Sure. I think think tuba tuba in general is one of those things where you got to be able to handle that thing. So you got to have a certain amount of girth. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But there's like something like cello though. That's also a pretty good size instrument that I think has a lot of, has more female 
Yeah. Violin. Violin. Tends to be a lot more females, at least at the high school level, you know. But like uh, like drums, you don't, that's not quite as, as common. No. I'm, I'm talking like classical stuff. You know, I sure. usually see like more, you know, um, I think string instruments. Yeah. In, in, in a very general sense, I, I'm not like a a regular uh, attendee. No, we're, just, we're making some, yeah, we're making some kind of broad generalization. But I'm thinking here. more from watching um, like a lot of behind the scenes stuff for movies. You know, seeing that recording setup and how how that. Works, I just don't but. think I just don't think maybe like a lot of doors were open to push like girls and women, young girls into like you know learning guitar and things like that as much. Or maybe if it was, it was like oh, you, you play acoustic guitar. And sing, you know, use your beautiful voice. Singer songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit more of the, you know, the Joni Mitchell, Carol King kind of model. But um yeah, it's interesting. You know, we're like, still, you know, seventies and eighties, there's still a lot of uh I think eighties is is when a lot of the, the gender role stuff started to break down a little bit. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I think before that it was probably like, well, that's not a feminine thing to do. So you, you know, Should we'll, we'll get you piano lessons. Yep. And uh, one of the reasons I picked this cramp song is because, again, kind of like playing heart in the last set is the kind of Seattle connection that they're doing like a, a you know, a cover of the Sonics, uh, probably one of the, the the foundational garage rock bands out of Seattle with their their cover of Strict Nine. And I thought that was kind of a cool connection to where the, this episode's kind of heading towards, you know, which is a lot of that Pacific Northwest kind of sound, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, good, good stuff. I always, always love to spotlight the cramps a little bit. They're a band that I've in recent years, I've kind of grown to appreciate. I think I thought they were something that they weren't until I start hearing some of their older stuff and was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, I associated them more, I think with people I thought were annoying. Yeah. yeah um, like people that were really like into like, I'm not a really a, a rockabilly fan in the sense of like anything that's not, you know, sun records or something. Sure. Um, but so they had a little bit of that vibe, but then it was like, no, this is like fucking horror rock. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I did they have a, more to do with the misfits than they do with like, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know, modern rockabilly stuff. I can't think. Of I, I don't know any of those bands, but when I hear it, I'm always just like, Oh, it's like stuff you play at a tiki bar or something. But, uh, but yeah, I did a comic of, uh, about the cramps. I don't remember what the hell it was about. It was like a two page comic I did about 10 years ago for a, a magazine. Yeah. And so I did a lot of research then and I started to listen to it and I was like, oh, this is, I really dig this stuff. And sure. they're from like Ohio, which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird. Like he picked her up as a hitchhiker is kind of how they met and stuff. It's just a very strange, yeah. like he found <laughs> LSD or something and he picked her up and it's just like how the band met and their whole like origin story is really fascinating. So yeah, nobody but, sounds like him. No, that's, that's for sure. And then we end with the, the go-go's and, um, Personal favorite of mine, and I'll be honest, Nick Green and, and his final moment, his last Hail Mary, when he was like brainstorming, he sent me one last message and goes, oh, and you got to play the Go-Go's. And I was like, Nick, you motherfucker, I love you. Because I didn't think there was any, you know, once Nick Green lighted it, I was like, okay, if Nick says it's okay to play the Go-Go's and that they were an influence on some of this, then like, I'll. The Nick Green light, yeah. Yeah, the Nick Green light, there it is. Yep, <clears throat> that's, uh, that's, that's a new feature of the Requiem, Requiem Metal podcast here. But uh, it's probably the only time we'll get to play the Go-Go's on Requiem, so I'll just relish it for, for the moment it is. But um, definitely, you know, they were the biggest, most popular uh, all-female group to emerge from, the, I guess, the punk new wave scene, um, certainly. Um, they really like benefited from the birth of MTV, uh, beauty and the beast, uh, beauty and the beat, excuse me, their debut record came out the same year that MTV, uh, came out. And so, uh, you know, they had videos around MTV for right from the very beginning. And, and they were playing around too with uh, a lot of their image. 
yeah, know, like, sure. like the the cover of of, um, of that's just like them all sitting around in robes with like a uh, what do you call it? like that night cream on their face and stuff. Yeah, like yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep. And um, you know they they could write fucking catchy bridges and hooks, and they want to be taken very seriously by the establishment. They weren't. They didn't have like maybe the punk ethos necessarily that like some of the British bands had that were more probably like uh, you know staunch about like per, you know being perceived a certain way. I think they were they had more of their eyes on the prize, and I think that's cool because I think that's where I think that's where like bands like L Seven were going for too. You yeah, know, I think they they kind of had like that uh, irreverent, silly thing going on. Yeah. There yep. wasn't there wasn't it wasn't overly serious like some of the. Yeah, some of the exactly. stuff can get <laughs> wasn't politicized and, and some of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think there was something about seeing like them doing it for themselves and kicking ass that probably would have been, you know, was definitely inspirational to like younger, you know, female bands and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I don't know if they were, um, you know, again, they didn't want to be like just kind of a female novelty. And I think they did a nice job, especially the first half of the 80s and being kind of, I think, taken fairly seriously as like, you know, along with the Bengals and a few other bands as being one of the the go to kind of like female rock bands that were kind of doing stuff. And even though they kind of did some poppy stuff, they also could fucking kick ass a little bit, you know, um, I mean, a song like Tonight. I, I just, it's one of my favorite songs. Um, I think it was on my Spotify top five for last year. I just, I play the shit out of it in my classroom and stuff like that. It just kind of makes me happy when I hear it. But, you know, when Belinda Carlisle like slashes into that part where she goes, there's nothing, there's no one to stand in our way. And that fucking rhythm section is just like going for it. I'm like, it's tight. It's like they, they put a really tight, like pop punk kind of thing together here. And um, they're good at what they do, I guess. You know, if, yeah, if you're it in- feels, it feels very, um, you know 50s mm-hmm. pop music revisited mm-hmm. kind of yep. kind of vibe um some good sad guitar yeah you know, yep. going on there that's, but, but with a little bit of like raw edge yep there's a little bit of that sort of like yeah early u2 that's the sort of like you know post-punk kind of thing that's just barely there it's like underneath the poppiness but it's there you know even yeah, like the- roxy music was doing that shit too and you yep. know in the 70s Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. So let's get into it. We've got uh, I Am a Poser from X-Ray Specs from the Germ-Free Adolescence record 1978. From 1979's Cut, we've got The Slits with Typical Girls. Uh, Fairy Tale in the Supermarket from The Raincoats, self-titled from 1979. From Los Angeles, also from 1979, we got X's Nausea. Then we got Strict Nine from The Cramps from The Songs the Lord Taught Us from 1980. And then from 1981's Beauty and the Beat, we've got The Go Go's with Tonight.
That was Tonight from the Go-Go's, Strict Nine from the Cramps, Nausea from X, Fairy Tale in the Supermarket from the Raincoats, Typical Girls from the Slits, started off with I Am a Poser from X-Ray Specs. Are you a poser, Mark? Uh, like, I've been called a poser before. Have you really? No yeah. shit. Huh. Everybody was a poser in the in the early 90s. Yes, we were. I don't know. Maybe I was I ever called? I'm trying to think if I've ever been called a poser before. Hmm. I don't know. I'm sure we, we used to get, you know, we used to hang out in the the little pool hall that used to exist in Mount Pleasant. Rack them. Did they think you guys were like, yeah, oh yeah, rack them. That's where all Did the unsavory metal, people hung metal out. Metal posers? Is that what they were saying? Uh, I think it was just because we had a uh, difference of opinion on certain, like we didn't just listen to one thing. Like, oh, oh you guys are listening to, you know, NWA, you know, what do you oh, posers? you're not true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I probably have. But also called. people, we just got like accosted by people constantly because we were like you know out of maybe four people that had the the metal look or like the extreme metal look <laughs> you know like the punk guys would try to like lighter ponytails on fire and shit so i mean rackham was also like an unsavory place in mount wasn't it was a weird it was a shithole yeah it was a total shithole but it's where like you know underage kids there was no booze there but you, everybody sits around and smokes cigarettes and you know plays pool and gets some fights in the parking lot and stuff yeah like I was scared of Rackham when I was young, but then like we would pop in like, on occasion. Um, yeah. Well, there's like, like video games there and stuff too. So it was like yeah. a place we could smoke cigarettes and, you know, play, play some, golden, uh, what the hell is that called? Golden Axe or something. Oh yeah. Golden Axe. Is that the four player one? Right? Yeah. They, they used to have, it was always at Seven Eleven, and it was, somebody was always on it. And I was like, God, I just want to, I wish I could just have this game. So our Seven Eleven uh game of choice was man i don't know if i pump more money into street fighter 2 or mortal kombat the first one but that was like right in our middle school like early high school realm so like we didn't have cars so we would walk to like the 7-eleven sometimes from track practice because we had middle school track at the fancher track so mm -hmm. then we walk over from the fancher track and get big gulps and we would sit there and just play mortal kombat or street fighter 2 um at the I think we paid played most of that at uh at the mall shop or okay. there was one up in jesus like the stadium mall area i don't remember what it was called but that's where i would that like just coin it might have been i just would play that robocop game over and over and over the side scroller oh yeah yeah one time uncle john uh where we recorded at uncle john's cabin the the satiricon anthrax and morbid angel shows um for a long time requiem listeners but one time he gave me a, a ten dollar roll of quarters and he goes go beat double dragon today <laughs> rode my bike down to dolphin coin and that's a, that is a cool uncle and i was like holy shit because ten dollars and quarters was a lot of fucking quarters in like 1988 or whatever you know 19 yeah it was still just a quarter to play yeah it was beautiful so i don't know if i beat it i i'd like let's just say for the sake of the narrative i did but i'm not 100 sure how i did so but uh yeah yeah, definitely. Rack them. Good memories there. All right. <laughs> um, so for this kind of next set, one of the things I kind of wrote, as I said, you know, punk and hard rock were, were filled with rebel girls that would inspire the next generation, especially the Gen X people. Um, but like the gleam of the sort of screeching feedback and snarling, angry vocals and dark, often uh, more overtly sexual lyrics were still sort of missing. 
And so I think that, that that's kind of where this next kind of uh, phase that we're about to kind of go into is kind of adding another layer to the, the mix, you know, the noisier parts and some of the more chaotic parts that, you know, Babes in Toyland and the Riot Girls will like draw from this pool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think punk opened the doors for more for more extremes, you know, like hardcore um, grind. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, longtime list, you know, Requiem people will know how much we love fucking disrupt and mm-hmm. especially like Alyssa Murray's vocals on disrupt. Right. And yeah, so fucking blood curdling screams. Yeah. You know, where's she getting it from? She had to learn it from somebody. And, you know, so she's taking it from some of these bands that we're, we're building up to right on some level, you know? Um, I mean, one thing like in doing research for this is like Courtney love was fucking huge into grindcore, like huge. She loved grindcore in the eighties and stuff. So like, you know, like, regardless of what your opinions are on a lot of this stuff, I'm sure people have strong opinions about it. Like all this stuff kind of mattered. And I think, you know, like the doors are being blown open in the late seventies. And like you said, so many different like movements are going to sort of grow out of it. You know, some like uh, the importance of college radio too. Yeah. That's really emerging the sort of left of the dial, you know, uh, college radio movement in the eighties for sure. Um, noise rock is emerging the no wave scene that we're going to be talking about here in a second. Um, not to mention the, you know, goth punk, uh, post-punk. Um, and I think it's interesting too, that like goth and post-punk were often, they leaned away from a lot of the, the machismo kind of rock posturing. And they were probably the two kind of punk movements that were the most, I guess, feminine or at least emotionally deeper. On some yeah, level. I would say the, the most like internal, mm-hmm. internalized, yeah. and, and less about. It wasn't really about um, any kind of like political stance or or anything. It was usually always about internal struggles or you know stuff yeah. that a lot of like metal actually kind of leans into now. Yeah, and that's one of the things I kind of noticed a lot in when I was deconstructing some like Babes in Toyland stuff later is like there's a lot of Bauhaus in like some of the weird patterns of songwriting and some of the stuff that babes was doing i was like oh okay that makes sense you know that they were like probably drawing from that pool too because bands like bauhaus were probably more in touch with a different kind of like rage and energy than like the hardcore bands were you know what i mean that could yeah, have i mean it was there was that stuff was definitely like the on our radar too like you know um bauhaus, like the goth stuff seemed to like marry in pretty kind of seamlessly with the extreme metal. metal and then yeah. you know like some hardcore stuff and all the stuff we listened to in high school like that's when i started listening to like sisters of mercy and fields of nephilim and all that kind of stuff it just seemed it seemed important because of yeah. how it sounded <laughs> not about necessarily what they were saying you know well and that kind of leads us to to Susie sue and uh Susie and the banshees because you know she had obviously one foot in the the sort of uk punk scene obviously where she sort of grew out of but she obviously emerged to become kind of the one of the spearheads of what became kind of the, the gothic punk movement or the gothic indie rock movement or whatever the hell you want to tag it as yeah um you know and in a lot of ways she's really kind of the bridge between like patty smith to like the kate bushes and the tori amos's and the pj harvey's and the bjorks and you know some of that stuff mm-hmm. that really emerged like she's kind of almost like artists in the middle. I mean, Kim Gordon probably too. You could probably put those two like right in the, that kind of eighties realm. But, um, you know, in terms of like introspective, sensitive, you know, kind of dark stuff, you know, she, she was good at it and she really, well, this is, yeah. Like darkness is something that's kind of missing in most of this music for, yeah. for, for my, for me. Um, yeah, I could see that. 
like uh yeah like it's much more it's either about humor uh like say having a message but saying it was some type of humorous or you know sarcastic or yeah some some type of edge like that or it's like you know putting some type of veneer of you know pop music or something that's there's there's all this stuff but there's no i wouldn't say there's much of any darkness in this music at all I guess I would disagree when we get to like Hole and Babes in Toyland because I think there's some really dark, disturbing shit kind of going on there underneath the surface. But it's like less. Well, I think of- lyrically, but not music-wise. I think that's where I'm coming from. Like the um, the emotional stuff is great. Like yeah. the, the my one takeaway from this is uh, unfortunately is that I, I think Hole is actually really good. Oh. Well. <laughs> Uh, I'm a huge hole defender. So don't worry, we'll cross that bridge. And I'm really happy to hear that because I think holes fucking amazing and super underrated. And I have a lot of thoughts when we get there, but anyways, okay. that's uh, interesting to hear. Yeah. But, um, yeah. There's always a surprise, you know, yeah, there's always a surprise. That's why we do this. It's just revisit stuff. I, I kind of found some stuff that I liked more than I thought I liked it from doing this as well, you know, or yeah. things that I really know much about. So but yeah, when we get to, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to play Night Shift from the Juju record from 1981. But, um, you know, again, Susie, what she represented is kind of a strong, independent kind of female artist in very much in a boys kind of hard rock kind of punk scene. Um, you know, Night Shift from Juju has this incredibly dark, I think this song in particular, it's funny you kind of mentioned that because I think this is one of the darkest songs we play in mm-hmm. terms of like, this kind of dark, beautiful energy. There's a lot of like industrial kind of post-punk dark wave stuff for, for metal heads that the, they should be able to enjoy this song. I think, um, oh, yeah, the dissonance and gloom to the whole thing. And it just, yeah, just the fucking dark cloud. Yeah, for sure. And that's, you know, when Susie's at her best, this is what she kind of does, you know, stuff like this and spellbound. And, and, um, um, this is the album Juju. I think where she does the Iggy, uh, passenger cover. That was a uh, pretty, pretty awesome. So, but um yeah so Susie's definitely a a, a a foundational element to kind of what's going to come later I, I think um this is kind of a late ad that we're we're kind of throwing in this is sort of a jess suggestion i kind of checked it out a little bit today and it's only 90 seconds long so i was like ah fuck it we'll throw it in but um this kind of i think helps introduce the no wave kind of thing and one of the early no wave bands was lydia lunch and the teenage jesus and the jerks and I think she came out of like the no wave scene along with, um, oh boy, James Chance. And I'm trying to think who else was kind of part of that magazine. Was it? Uh, there's, there's a few. I, I don't, I'm not really uh, too, <clears throat> too good on that. I mean, outside of, you're talking like the, the kind of pioneering feature or. Yeah. Just some of the early of kind of thing. That were quote unquote, the no wave scene. I mean, obviously Sonic Youth is going to take the baton and they'll become like, I think the biggest of the no wave bands, at least in their early years. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. As far as I understand. But I think like no wave <clears throat> was interesting in that it like sort of rejected both rock and punk in a lot of ways. And this was sort of a quote that I found from Lydia Lunch. And she says, I hate it almost the entirety of punk rock. I don't think that no wave had anything to do with it. Um, who wanted chords, all those progressions <clears throat> that had been used to death in rock to play slide guitar, use a knife, a beer bottle, glass, glass gave a best sound to this day. I still don't know a single chord on the guitar. So like, okay, I believe it. <laughs> that's kind of what no way it was, you know? And well, it's like, it's like anti-music. Yeah. Yeah. There's like an art aesthetic to it, I guess. You yeah, know? It's, it's like, um, you know, it's, it's crass and uh, dissonant and 
not pleasurable to listen to oh it's not not a it's 90 seconds so that's why i was like okay we can we can throw it in um screaming and you know yeah but i think like one of the things that's really interesting is that you know you got these pulsing kind of industrial beats in this song where you hear baby doll but like they were playing cbgb's a lot in this era uh, 1979 1980 and that's when Lori, the drummer from babes in toyland was going to cbgb's quite a bit and living in new york okay and so you know They've also like talked a lot about how like Cat Bajellan's vocals owe a lot to Lydia Lunches too, and I can definitely hear that when you hear Baby Doll. There's like a lot. Sure, of, like, I was, her. yeah, so her and like Wendy Williams and you know a lot yep. of the the good screamers. Yep. Exactly, and and of course this scene is also going to birth Sonic Youth and Kim Gordon, and that's really more part of the narrative where where this sort of goes. So I thought we'd at least kind of just mention uh, you know the the Lydia Lunch kind of kind of connection, and then speaking of Wendy O Williams, Mark, yeah. We get the plasmatics and um, who don't really fit into any scene like motorhead they, they don't yeah i mean i guess i would call them punk metal i mean this is like fucking epic heavy metal this yeah <laughs> I, you know, but people like i've always struggled with like what to, to do with the plasmatics you know i mean yeah, like she is on a like total you know punk rock her, her approach her vibe everything and then the, the band is kind of they're kind of just like a metal band yeah, they're just fucking ripping off metal riffs and shit. I mean, it's like I, I said, the music is moody, heavy, primitive, yet strangely dynamic, right? It's like, yeah, all there's the- great leads and shit in the two. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, her fucking snarl just fucking peels paint, too. For she like cannot. One- yeah, she has not a traditional singing voice in any stretch of the imagination. Um, yeah. It's almost monotone, but the what she does with it makes it interesting. And I think like Wendy also like her approach in terms of how she acts and behaves is really inspirational for like a lot of these future bands because well she was really aggressive too she was like, like a male terrifying. rock star yeah that's the yeah. thing like she was like fuck I don't you're not gonna treat me like like some fucking second class citizen I'm gonna mm-hmm. demand like Iggy I'm gonna demand like your attention you know and and yeah. you you know. And I think L7 kind of acted that way. Like they were like, fuck you. We're not going to like placate to like what you think like females in rock are supposed to be. And so I know L7 were huge fans, especially Jennifer Finch of, uh, of the plasmatic. So, you know, it probably like bled through into some of the attitude that they had, you know, when they were kind of doing some of the stuff that they did. So, um, but yeah, anyways, um, then we get into a trio of tunes from Sonic Youth. And um, we've got um, kind of like early Sonic Youth from 83 from Confusion is Sex, where they sort of do like a like an avant intro, like Lamont Young uh, kind of like atonal thing with Freezer Burn before mm-hmm. all of a sudden like a cover of Stooges' I Want to Be Your Dog kind of comes in. And that's really like for Kim Gordon, it's kind of like a coming out party for her, I think, on this record where like people like. She didn't sing a lot on Confusion is Sex, but like here she's like really going for it. And um, wow, <laughs> like like if, you know, for there wasn't a lot of females like doing stuff like what Kim's doing with the Stooges cover, I would say, you know, I mean, besides maybe Wendy O. Williams or Lydia Lunch. Sure. Um, yeah, I was I always think that Kim was the most interesting person in that band. Yeah, she's she's dynamite for sure. Like vocally, band. like just like every like what she did especially like later on too. And even like into some of the 2000 stuff before they broke up, like the, her song or the ones where she was singing were always like the ones I went to. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I can't think of what some of those later on records were, but. Well, you know, later on, uh, we're, we're going to jump from 83 to 88's uh, Daydream Nation. And, yeah. um, you know, that was kind of their big, big breakthrough record, obviously, with, uh, you know, Teenage Riot and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I came across um, a, a Spin Magazine article when I was kind of initially trying to put this set together. And it was called uh, 13 Essential Sonic Youth Songs That Put Kim Gordon Center Stage. So <laughs> kind of cool. Uh, it's from 2019, written by Andy Koosh. And he wrote about two of the songs that we're going to play here, Across the Breeze and Cool Thing. And I thought I'd just kind of share his thoughts with it. Um, so it says, on this landmark 1988 fifth full-length, Daydream Nation, Sonic Youth used the ugly, beautiful textures they'd begun perfecting on Sister to build compositions that were far more structurally and thematically ambitious than anything they'd attempted before. Cross the Breeze is among the grandest gestures. It barrels forward with the furious kinetic energy of a hardcore punk song and never seems to stop, stretching endlessly towards a far-off horizon instead of petering out after two minutes like standard mosh pit fare. It takes about that long for Gordon to enter as a vocalist. By that time, the titular breeze has gathered into an apocalyptic storm. She's cool and collected at the center, providing the album with one of the catchiest half-shouted hooks. I want to know, should I stay or should I go? If previous references to punk classics were a way for Sonic Youth to declare an affinity for songs of the past, this one served to show just how far they brought their music forward. So I thought that was kind of probably better than anything I could say about the song, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I've always loved this record, and that song in particular is, is one of the highlights. But um, when there's some like the most like quintessential indie rock riffs that you know they're real kind of like jangly. Yeah. Um, I would. I would they are. I, I wouldn't know right? how to. Yeah, like that. But but like like that is like when I think of like Pavement and some of these other bands that you know kind of do that same similar you know thing less maybe less artfully what's well, like but, angular uh, kind of stuff i mean fugazi did it you know but oh, like totally, totally. Youth really started it you know in a lot of ways you know yeah. dinosaur years taken from them you know everyone's kind of stealing from from what they're doing sure um and you know and just kim is a beacon of cool i think that's mm-hmm. the other thing. i think i think in a lot of ways kim is like the 1980s version of patty smith like when yep. you see Patty Smith, Patty Smith just like has coolness about her. Like she could just fucking, she holds her own. She's not there to impress anybody. And I always got the feeling like that's how Kim kind of carried herself. And I thought that was really fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we get to Goo, uh, 1980s Goo and the song Cool Thing. And uh, I love the story behind this. I don't know if you know it, but it's it's one of the reasons that I remember. I always love this song. So Cool thing. Uh, here's what he wrote. It says the terminally catchly cool thing serves as a brutal subtweet to LL Cool J, a rapper that <laughs> Kim Gordon previously admired. Her opinion of him took a dive after Spin Magazine tasked her with interviewing the rapper before this album in order to get her feminist perspective on the genre of hip hop. The two failed to connect during their discussion, and Gordon was particularly put off after LL remarked that a man, quote, has to have control over his woman. So Gordon funneled that frustration she felt into Cool Thing, and then she brought in Chuck D to kind of play the role of LL Cool J on it and do like the <laughs> hell yeah, like all the like rap cliches and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so Gordon saying like, are you going to liberate us oppressed women from blah, 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 blah. Like she's the whole song is like fucking tongue in cheek. It's like her trolling LL Cool J the whole time. And I think it like, 
the message of this episode that we're trying to do is these sort of like liberated women like speaking out against like the fucking structural patriarchy like this is it right here and even though it's not like the power yeah that's it even though it's not like the the heaviest song sonic youth kind of you know wrote it's still like thematically like fits with like like somebody like kim gordon just in all her coolness just fucking like like raining down like thunder on LO cool j and writing a really catchy poppy song that's it. Yeah. It's, it's very, very funny. And I just love fucking Chuck D as well. I'm a huge public enemy fan. So it's cool that they got him on board with it to sort of like mock. Cause you know, say what you want about public enemy. They're not, they're not like that kind of a hip hop band. They're, they were not like uh misogynist, you know, like a lot of the, the gangster rap stuff kind of came off like a certain way towards women and, and some other Oh, parts sure. of hip hop did, you know, but public enemy kind of stayed uh, away some, from that. Some of easy E's catalog on easy does it. Yes yes uh for sure for sure <laughs> oh man but uh yeah so we've got this trio of sonic youth songs for i think people to kind of you know sort of hear some of the highlights of, of some of the stuff kim gordon did in the early years of, of them um she's no longer part of the band she's kind of since left uh which is you know whatever i don't think the band exists anymore do they i'm not sure if they if they're still doing anything but i know for a while she left and i think the band did continue for a bit without her yeah, I, from what I understand, it's the the band doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that would make sense. You know, it's kind of hard to do Sonic Youth without Kim Gordon. If I'm being honest, I mean, like, honestly, without yeah. any of the guys, yeah, like the, the, no, the original, it's all the original people, right? Yeah, Steve on drums, Lee Ronaldo on guitar, and then yeah, Thurston. Yep. Yeah, so, I think that's like one of those bands that you can't really, you know, you got to call it something else if somebody leaves. Yep. They've had a pretty good run too. I mean, they've been around since the early '80s. So that's a that's a four. Yeah, I mean, they had like a forty year career ish yeah yeah better than most bands that's for sure yeah so um so yeah and then we're gonna end with the pixies but we'll kind of talk about the pixies when we kind of come back that'll be sort of our launching pad into some stuff so we've got night shift from Susie and the banshees juju from 1981 from 1979's uh baby doll seven inch we've got lydia lunch's teenage jesus and the jerks then we've got from coup de grace uh 1982's uh plasmatics with the damned then from 1983's Confusion is Sex, we start a trio of Sonic Youth tunes with Freezer Burn, I Want to Be Your Dog. Then from 88's Daydream Nation, we've got Cross the Breeze. And then from 1990's Goo, cool thing. And then we end with Gigantic from Surfer Rosa, 1988's Pixies record.
Yes, I know his teeth as white as snow. What a gas it was to see him walk her every day into a shady place with a lip she said, Hey, Polly, 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 let's have a ball. Hey, Polly, 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 let's have a ball. Hey, Polly, 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 let's have a ball. Gigantic from the Pixies from Surfer Rosa. Then we had Cool Thing, Cross the Breeze, and Freezer Burn, I Want to Be Your Dog, all from Sonic Youth. Then we had The Dam from The Plasmatics, Baby Doll from Lydia Lunch's Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. And we start everything off with Susie and the Banshees and Night Shift. So, uh, yeah, it's about the big, big love, Mark. Are you into the big, big love? Um, I used to like the that Bill Paxton show. Yeah, yeah. I 
I don't think that was about the same kind of big love, <laughs> if I'm being honest with you. Um, I never you know, even looked into what I, I didn't think about what this would be. Yeah. So it's it's so about massive donks. It is. Kim Deal singing one of the all-time uh, penis songs, uh, The Big Big Love, The Gigantic. <laughs> um, and apparently it was inspired by Crimes of the Heart, uh, which is this like movie about a white woman that falls in love with a black teenager. And I don't know if Kim <laughs> Deal was like, watching it and she just thought it was like, a funny premise, you know, or whatever. So, well, the Pixies uh, are known for their uh, kind of absurdist lyrics. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of that. You know, it's almost like some of the stuff like L7 will will sing about too, and, and some of these bands. I feel like there's a lot of Dead Kennedys in some of that, like the like absurdist humor sometimes, you know, or whatever. Um, yeah, the dark political humor. This isn't political. This is just them having fun. I think, but um, it's fucking catchy, man. It's all there, right? The the quiet loud mm-hmm. Kim Deal. You know, I mean, we could have played a breeder song too, but the real uh, Kim Deal. Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I think that that uh, that record was pretty fucking huge. Yeah, Surfer Rosa, absolutely. Steve Albini production. I mean, that kind of helped put him on the map in a in a bigger sense um, outside of the Chicago area because the Pixies were a Boston band. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's just kind of a another. You know, Kim Deal. I think along with maybe lesser than than Kim Gordon, but she was also I think seen as kind of like an indie rock hero to a lot of you know like aspiring female artists. To, to I, I think she was probably on the same level to be honest. Yeah, I just think Kim Gordon had a longer stretch, right? Like they were, you know, Sonic Youth already had five or six years before the the Pixies kind of showed up, you know, so they kind of came True. a little bit game. Uh, but but like as far as like influences, like readers, know, yeah, big. going that, I mean, that that record was pretty fun. The rotation that uh, the Cannonball had on MTV was insane. Yeah. And, and then the fact that like the Breeders, it was her band, too. It was her band. Yeah. Yep. And so she was kind of leading that. So, um, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a good point. You but know, that whole, I think that whole dynamic between her and uh, and Frank made the band. Yep. That kind of like pull, push and pull between the two. Kind of like Thurston and Kim in a way, right? Mm-hmm. There was kind of that dynamic, you know, there. Um, absolutely. So. I don't know. The, the Kim and Frank thing seemed more, you know, antagon- antagonistic. antagonistic. Yeah, I more. Uh, it was like young people with egos. More, more John and. Uh, Paul kind of, you know, like kind of butting yeah. heads a lot. You know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, knowing I mean, that they had, him and you know, Bruce power and love, bands. So, you know, that's yeah. a different dynamic. True. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, yeah, so now <clears throat> now we've kind of like laid the foundation of, I guess, the the more angry, metallic, noisy, kind of indie sort of thing that was going on throughout the, the 80s and early 90s. And now we kind of get uh, to move over towards the, the Pacific Northwest, um, especially Olympia, Washington, um, which is where the, the sort of birth of what's kind of known, I guess, is the the riot girl scene uh, kind of comes about, you know, led by bands like, you know, Bikini Kill or Huggy. Uh, well, Huggy Bear is a UK band that, uh, you know, was kind of part of that as well. But uh, Heaven's the Betsy and, um, you know, there's a lot. The Gits were kind of part of that. There, there's a mm-hmm. lot of bands kind of part of it. Um and you know, Bikini Kill, of course, <clears throat> was Kathleen Hanna and uh, Toby Vale, um, and they're going to have this weird interconnection to the sludge scene, to the grunge scene um, that would kind of coalesce around Seattle as well. Because Toby Vale, of course, dated Kurt Cobain. Um, mm-hmm. He broke up with her when he kind of started dating Courtney, um, or like near that kind of era. Um, 
Yeah, so, so there's a lot of weird sort of interconnections that like is is going to kind of come out of this, I suppose. Um, I mean, <clears throat> do you want to talk about the manifesto first? Um, do you want to, you know, let's, you let's have, just let's play that clip real quick. Of just okay. we've got we've got a clip of uh, Kathleen Hanna basically uh, going through. It's like a four minute clip going through the whole kind of riot girl manifesto. Yeah, I think um, that would be good. And I think it'd be better to for her to do it instead of us to do it. <laughs> For sure, yeah. <laughs> but a little bit of like the whole the whole idea for this was, and you know, I was talking. Me and Lisa talked a lot about this kind of era because this was the more kind of her wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm kind of curious what her wanted to kind of make sure that that we got this part right because because I was like, I don't I don't know what exactly that was before I I texted you about the yeah about like what what are we doing with this episode exactly because <laughs> that that's <laughs> well, going to dictate a lot of things. And uh, at that point, yeah, the hardcore scene was becoming kind of like toxic and fractured. And um, this was like the first time there was a, uh, a a movement with a manifesto and ideas about um, being based. It's for women um, being like positive to women, encouraging of women artists. And also it really reminded me a lot of the... Uh, uh, what I mentioned a little bit earlier were the, the John Sinclair, the white Panther parties where it was the 10 point plan. Yeah. I got, yeah, I have a couple here. Where did I put that? Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, fighting for a clean planet, free of political uh, prisoners, rock and roll, dope, sex in the streets and the abolishment of capitalism. That was yeah. the white Panther party. Well, I think like too, they said free education for all, uh, you know, there was, there was some other, there was more, this is the kind of truncated, um, version of this for sure. But, um, but this all kind of also came apart, came around at the same time as like the third wave feminism, like the whole, like Anita Hill trial that was like really kind of visceral and raw. And she was kind of dragged over the coals pretty bad. Uh, and it was televised. So that, that was kind of a, uh, another, like, this this I is think from that's, that's part of the context of that yeah I've, yeah like Rebecca Walker is this uh, yeah was was the, these are the kind of things like confluent probably in retrospect you go back and you see that this is the stuff that that really kind of in a public way like seeing seeing a woman be dragged across the coals and against you know with a man in power and just kind of like nobody cared yeah it seemed nobody cared in the government you know but it was just very kind of like you know all anybody ever talked about was the you know the the pubic hair thing. Yeah, and that that's it's just a very uncomfortable <laughs> situation, and it was so public. But I guess this is like you know what when was OJ trial ninety two? No, OJ trial was ninety five. Ninety five. Okay, so this yeah. is like early on, and I think seeing like seeing public stuff on TV about you know seeing uh, court cases being publicized and ba- basically being turned into entertainment. You know, sure. at the, at the, on the back of these these people. So, but uh, I yeah, too, like the 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 OJ thing as well. What was kind of fascinating about that, and um, the ESPN documentary OJ Made in America does such a great job at really getting into this. But you know, something people forget about with OJ trial is that there was this long litany of evidence of OJ domestic abusing Nicole throughout the eighties and early nineties, mm-hmm. and there was conversations being had about like how she was weak because she didn't leave him. 
And it's just like really fascinating, like how the the tenor and tone of like how the media handled that stuff, like the Anita Hill and 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 just any, you know, anything that deals with like abuse and, and rape culture and sexual assault and sexual harassment. It was just, it seems such like, you know, we were so young then, you know, we were not like really like completely rooted in that stuff, obviously, but it was, you know, something I think both of us were probably aware of on some level, you know, we hear, Oh, totally. Yeah. There ain't live talking about it or whatever. Like it was just like, it was there in the zeitgeist of, of the energy, but like, I wasn't in the workforce yet. I wasn't dating people then. Like, you know, like I didn't, I didn't have like a full understanding of like, sexual politics and, and stuff quite then. But I think looking back on it now, it's just, it, it really does leave like a bad taste in your mouth as to like how the media treated a lot of that and how just, you know, people weren't believing women. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's like, when, well, when it all, it, that's it. You know? And it comes, yeah. It also comes down to like the, the media and who controls the media yep. and like uh, advertisers, you can't criticize people that advertise and like, or, or people in power either. Like an OJ was a fucking, pillar of that you know like he was super famous you know yeah this uh not only like you know with his like my experience was more i didn't know him as much as the football guy but as you know norberg from naked gun yeah, naked gun yeah absolutely and i would he, you know, or like some of the disaster movies in the 70s and stuff yeah yeah but so, uh yeah let's yeah. not let a, let's not let a man hijack this conversation let's uh, yeah, get let's, to this clip let's do it i'm kathleen hannah and i'm gonna read something from the Riot Girl Manifesto. It's actually the whole Riot Girl Manifesto. But um, I wrote this in 1991 for the Bikini Kill fan scene, Girl Power. We're Bikini Kill, and we want revolution! Girl Storm This is a piece called Riot Girl Is. Because us girls crave records and books and fanzines that speak to us, that we feel included in and can understand in our own ways. Because we wanna make it easier for girls to see, hear each other's work so that we can share strategies and criticize slash applaud each other. Because we must take over the means of production in order to create our own meanings. Because viewing our work as being connected to our girlfriends, politics, and real lives is essential if we're going to figure out how what we are doing impacts, reflects, perpetuates, or disrupts the status quo. Because we recognize fantasies of instant macho gun revolution as impractical lies meant to keep us simply dreaming instead of becoming our own dreams, and thus seek to create revolution in our own lives every single day by envisioning and creating alternatives to the bullshit Christian capitalist way of doing things. Because we want and need to be encouraged and to encourage in the face of all our own insecurities, in the face of beer gut boy rock that tells us we can't play our instruments, in the face of authorities who say our bands, zines, etc., are the worst in the U.S. and who attribute any validation or success of our work to girl bandwagon hype. Because we don't want to assimilate to someone else's boy standards of what is or isn't good music or punk rock or good writing, and thus need to create forums where we can recreate, destroy, and define our own visions. Because we are unwilling to falter under claims that we are reactionary, reverse sexists, and not the true punk rock soul crusaders that we know we really are. Because we know that life is much more than physical survival 
and were patently aware that the punk rock, you can do anything idea, is crucial to the coming angry girl rock revolution, which seeks to save the psychic and cultural lives of girls and women everywhere, according to their own terms and not ours. Because we are interested in creating non-hierarchical ways of being and making music, friends and scenes, based on communication and understanding instead of competition and good-bad categorizations. Because doing, reading, seeing, hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and sense of community we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodyism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism, and heterosexism figures in our own lives. Because we see fostering and supporting girl scenes and girl artists of all kinds as integral to this process. Because we hate capitalism in all its forms and see our main goal as sharing information and staying alive instead of making profits or being cool according to traditional standards. Because we are angry at a society that tells us girl equals dumb, girl equals bad, girl equals weak. Because we are unwilling to let our real and valid anger be diffused and turned against us via the internalization of sexism as witnessed in girl-girl jealousies and self-defeating girl-type behaviors. Because self-defeating behaviors like fucking boys without condoms, drinking to excess, ignoring true soul girlfriends, belittling ourselves and other girls would not be so easy if we lived in communities where we felt loved and wanted and valued. Because I believe with my whole heart, mind, body that girls constitute a revolutionary soul force that can and will change the world for real. So when it comes to Bikini Kill, um, you know, the two songs we picked out from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah from 1993, um, which was a release, I think, on a compilation with their their first two albums were kind of put out, I think, on CD um, together because I think they were released as two records. I it's think actually it's Yeah, of- Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, how many yeah's did I say? You did three, th- which is the other band. Uh, that's the band. Yeah, yeah. sorry, it should have been a fourth. Yeah, <laughs> I'm screwed. I fucked up. Um, but I do play Rebel Girl in my rock history class when we get to kind of the '90s section, um, and we kind of analyze the lyrics a little bit and kind of talk about like what this song might have been like having heard it in 1993, especially as like a younger female what it makes you think about, you know, and so we have some kind of interesting conversations and I think it's hard sometimes for them to imagine what their early nineties is like, you know, just based on the previous conversation we were having a couple of minutes ago about, you know, OJ and Anita Hill, like we live mm-hmm. in different times, you know, they, they don't fully comprehend how much things have evolved, you know? Um, I mean, I was just having the conversation with my kids in my horror film class about like Rosemary's baby that like, when her husband like essentially drunk rapes her right and that's mm-hmm. what he claims to do that like it wasn't illegal to rape your wife in 1968 and they were like staring at me they're like what are you talking about i said yeah it was like legal as a husband you could like not be punished for raping your wife well i didn't think they thought that it was uh antithetical to being married that you could do that yeah exactly yeah. and so like the kids just couldn't really wrap their head around that i was like that's not that long ago you know so like it's really fascinating how think how much things have evolved since the late sixties, you know, when, when like 
the first wave feminism movement kind of really started to to gain some traction but technically um, first wave feminism is like 1917. yeah that'd be the suffrage movement you're right yeah so second wave feminism i should know that as a history person i did know that as i said well i i didn't know this but until i (laughs) I researched so because i because i like uh we're me and melissa were talking about it and then i said oh so was the right girl thing like second waves like no no no, that's like third third wave wave. it's like okay okay yep and, you know, there's something about we're, we're going to hear, the, you know, Rebel Girl and White Boy to kind of open up this sort of set. And I think these two songs, um, you can dissect a lot out of them. But Rebel Girl, there's so much fucking power in Hannah's voice, especially in the second verse when she screams, I taste the revolution. And her voice just goes into this like shrill scream that like Sleater Kinney will use that a lot in the future uh, and a lot of the stuff that they do. And it also makes this kind of rallying cry, not just for women, but it also sort of addresses LGBTQ in a way that like a lot of stuff wasn't doing then either. You know, now it's pretty common to like kind of talk about that stuff. But like back then um, it was more the queer movement. Yeah. And this is this is like kind of like flying the flag for everyone that everybody's kind of safe in, in this kind of thing, you know. But it was a very female dominated like that was that was the point. Yep. Yep. And there, yeah, when we talk about LGBTQ, we're talking mainly, you know, lesbians, you know, it's kind of yeah. what the, they're, they're flying. Those, the flag yeah. These, that. those, the terms of today didn't, the communities weren't quite as large and, uh, as they are. Or as you know, shorter. Yes. They in, some, short. in some aspects. Yeah. And then I think, you know, with white boy, you know, you get this essentially this like incredible diatribe against rape culture and, and what that must've been like to hear this song. Um, I, I don't know if it would have been as a female, like a, you know, especially like a, you know, older teenage or, or college age girl, you know, getting a hold of bikini kill and hearing a song like white boy, would it have been refreshing and scary that like they were talking about this stuff so openly? I mean, it's, this is very much a very pre, you know, hashtag me too kind of culture. Um, I mean, it was very like kind of upfront and honest about what it was talking about. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't, I think it was, uh, I think all those things they talked about were problems um, at yeah. the time. And people probably were aware, like we, you know, we were a little too young for just to have that kind of scene or to be, you know, really understand too much about that. No, I, I was just going into high school when this happened, you know? Yeah. So. I was my, I was, my interest was, uh, was completely elsewhere, but I, you know, years later finding out about them and, um, how like the, there's also like a lot of femininity in the movement, like embracing everything feminine, even like including um, like dressing ridiculous. Like I don't know if you've seen some of the outfits that Kathleen Anna wears. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like some of the big T-shirts and like no bra underneath. Like in talking, like being open about like you know sexual conquests and things like this. Um, being and that every- goes back to the beginning of the show with the the fast and. Uh, frightening L7 song, you know, about yeah. just like owning the sexuality in a way. Well, and, and, and talking about every aspect of, of a woman, it's not, there, there isn't just one aspect, you know, they're, they're multi, every, every woman, every person is a multifaceted um, she absolutely, person, yeah. but we don't like, we, we had these, you know, media ideas of what certain things should be or what women shouldn't talk about, or, you know, the, the double standard of, uh, you know, a guy that has a lot of Miranda conquest is a stud and a woman's a slut, that kind of shit. So um, kind of taking well, a lot of that stuff back. Yeah. 
I mean, like when the the sample of the guy at the beginning says, "These dumb hoes, these slut rocker bitches walking down the street, they're asking for it. They may deny it, but it's true." I mean that that's like the birth of this like toxic masculinity. I mean, I was talking about Andrew Tate earlier, who luckily you don't know who he is, but like that's when he like becomes like the final boss. Like he's he's who they're trying to defeat in a weird way, you know. And I think it also like addresses this double standard of how these female punk metal grunge artists and how like the way that they dress was always going to be sexualized, no matter what they did. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and that's something that comes up with Hole and Babes in Toyland and L Seven. It's like you know. Like, like, but it all it also it is a unique hot? are they it, hot you know it, it's it's a uniquely female thing too um, yeah the sexuality component because it's it's powerful but it's also can be uh, perceived as like a limiting factor like where yeah. this is like you're just based on your your looks or whatever and the I was whole like, say it, it's it's a currency for a lot of history you know in it a is lot of ways. it is yeah. but it's also it's a powerful thing that um, I think should be uh, like that I think that this kind of um, Rigra movement embraced as well, even into the like Babes in Toyland and, and whole like taking that uh, that kind of there theirs was much more kind of cynical with the uh, you know the baby doll dresses and the smeared makeup and um, what they call it Kinder Kinder Core Kinder yeah. Whore fashion or something like that yeah. something like that I think I have it written down somewhere but yeah but yeah that was a very uh, definitely an aspect of it sure. Now, did you, I didn't, I knew some girls, like I, I remember dating a girl who made a mixtape for me um, and she was younger, but she was pretty politicized and that was cool. Um, her name was Reagan um, and she puts Huggy Bear, Bikini Kill, Heaven's the Betsy, um, all that stuff was on there and I liked it all. It was all mm-hmm. cool. I think the Bikini Kill song was Suck My Left One, so it wasn't Rebel Girl or White Boy, but um you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Because I was in a hole and I was in a Babes in Toyland at that point. So it all just seemed there. I didn't know anything about the manifesto or, you know, any of that stuff. But, like, were you hanging out with people? Because you were, you know, of high school age in 93. You were, you know, senior year. Um, mm-hmm. Was this around in Mount Pleasant amongst, like, girls in high school that you were kind of hanging out with in the punk and metal scene? Or I wasn't. Honestly, it wasn't. The stuff that most of um... – like kind of the the girl contingent of the the skate crew or whatever it was yeah uh it was more it was more like um i would say more like 80s stuff it wasn't as contemporary so there's um i would say like susie and the banshees and bauhaus and sisters of mercy and um ministry and you know more more kind of like harder edged stuff because i didn't really know much about i think bikini kill until I would say the early two thousands. Okay. And then the, the one show that you weren't on were the metal and punk unite. What I do with my friend oh, yeah, across, yeah. um, yep. we talked about bikini kill on there a little bit as well. Um, cause I, I didn't at the, you know, at the time you don't back then you didn't know, you couldn't just go Google real quick and see, like, give me like a, a paragraph on what this certain scene was or band was about. Like you had to know somebody or you'd have to buy the thing and read the liner notes and, you know, put your fill in the, in between the lines there a little bit but yeah yeah i don't remember much about about that it was more of like bad religion was a big deal at that point sure um yeah. some some of the more contemporary stuff like just before green day broke like a lot of those type of bands were were kind of that was more the the scene because i don't know how what kind of distribution kill rock stars had at the time 
I mean, and how like I, I don't yeah. remember seeing that stuff until way later. I guess by the time I started to hang out with like older cool girls in high school, that's when I knew about some of this stuff too. I think like the the Polinas of the world were listening to this. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that crew that were a couple years older than me, that were a couple years younger than you. So you kind of knew them briefly, you know? Yeah. Um, also, we were sometimes like two or three years behind certain things. Yeah. So I, internet, think this, so I think like 95, when I started to like hang out with that crew, they knew about Bikini Kill then, which was yeah. like two years after. Right. So mm-hmm. like right when my like sophomore year was happening is when I was like starting to kind of find out about this stuff, you know, but I think the riot girl thing had like gone and passed probably by then, you know, in a weird way. But well, we it was, just, it wasn't like a, a, a specific there. I don't know how many people were called that outside of, you know, bikini kill and a handful of other, like, uh, like was a brat car. Was that one of the other ones too? Was brat mobile, brat mobile from DC yep. Slant yep. six. Yep. Um, Oh There's shit. Some... I just found in my notes. Uh, also let's, uh, take a moment of silence for Mark Adams from St. Vitus. Oh yeah, we had yeah. two two very opposite deaths this I week. I shared uh, I shared our Mar- our Saint Vitus Part One uh, on the feed in honor of Mark Adams nice. the other day. So, but uh, yeah, if you uh, if you don't know that we've done two parts on Saint Vitus, uh, scroll back and, and find those episodes. It's quite good. We got uh, we had um, um, who was on the episode? Why can't I draw a blank? <laughs> Dave. Uh, Jesus, I should know that main guy. God damn it. I can't think of his name. Yeah, uh, I'm in like, I'm in the, I'm in a different mode right, space now. right now. I know. I want to say Dave Chandler. Is it Dave Chandler? I think it's Dave Chandler. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's Dave Chandler. Okay. Yeah. I've, yeah for some yeah. reason that sounded like wrong in my head, but yeah, we had Dave Chandler on for both parts. Yep. So yeah, I'd missed through a St. Vitus journey. So, um, and yeah, so, you know, then we, we cross the, uh, cross the ocean over to, uh, to England with England's kind of biggest, I guess, quote unquote, riot girl band, which is Huggy Bear, uh, tune called her jazz from taking the rough, uh, with the smooch, uh, which put out 93, same year as yeah, 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 yeah. Did I get enough? Yes, there. I think. I yeah, did. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, they were a UK riot girl act that grew pretty infamous, um, uh, because they performed the song, her jazz on a British TV program called the word. Have you heard the story yet or no? Oh yeah, I think so. Okay. And, um, then they stayed in the studio to watch a report on the American, uh, do you remember the Barbie twins? Those two, uh, like plastic surgery kind of like, I don't, I don't know if they did playboy or whatever, but they were pretty like, Oh, I think, yeah, they, they were, they looked like they didn't look like human beings. Yeah. It was, it was a weird thing or whatever. And um, the the fans of uh, Huggy Bear and also the band themselves started heckling and shouting at Terry Christian, who was the host of uh, the the Word program, and they got ejected from the studio. There was like a, apparently a fight that ensued. There were rumors that like somebody from the band's fan base like bit one of the producers in the face and like all this other crazy shit. It got them the cover of Melody Maker because of this controversy. And um, it kind of helped them in a weird way, like in terms of publicity. And they kind of compare it to like the 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 notorious incident where the Sex Pistols did the the Bill Grundy show mm-hmm. and scored with Susie Banshee and and you know all those other people that were like Johnny Rotten was like high on um, some kind of amphetamine of some sort. I think he took like anal nitrate or something. I don't know, but he was like 
he was like fucked up. And so anyways, that's, that's the, that's my huggy bear story. That's all I got, Mark. So, <laughs> so but again, it shows you like that they were like putting their money where their mouth was, right. They were going to speak out against kind of shit that they thought was kind of anti-feminist or like bullshit, you know, and I, totally. I get credit for that, you know? Yeah. So their, they, their sound is, uh, you know, it's great. I mean, just a very kind of dissonant, not, not necessarily what I would have thought with a band name. Yeah. Because all I think yeah. about is uh, was it Starsky and Hutch. Is that their like, informant Hutch, or something? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think so, it's who Snoop, Snoop Dogg played in the remake was he played Huggy Bear in the, the remake a couple years or a decade ago or whatever that came out. So who's in that? That's the one with Owen is it I think it's Owen Wilson and uh um oh my god, I can't think of him. Tropic Thunder, dude. Um Oh um Dodgeball yeah dodgeball i can't think of him he hasn't done much lately jerry i'm thinking of his dad uh, yes jesus we're bad at this. ben stiller yes thank you ben's fucking stiller yeah they <laughs> i never saw that people. so <laughs> it's actually pretty it's fine it's not it's like a good like if you have nothing else to watch on hbo you know like turn it on lay on your couch kind of movie it's not like great watch it on an airplane or something yeah it's a good airplane movie i'd say that so but um yeah, anyways, yeah, that's what I think of with Huggy Bear as well. So other than like I said, that mixtape that I that that girl I dated gave me. So that mm-hmm. was a that was like I I'll be honest, I hung out with some pretty cool girls um that were probably a different generation than the girls that you probably you were hanging out with. This was like Yeah, I would hope so. Because at that point it'd be weird if you're like 18 hanging yeah. out with 14 year olds. Yeah, no, no, no. Um no, but they were older. It was older girls that were getting me into like some cool shit. So okay. like Leslie McIntyre and Mr. McIntyre's daughter, our math teacher. Um, yeah. She was like the one that turned me on to Sonic youth as like a freshman and stuff. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know? So like, um, and I think through her, I got into like maybe some of the, the riot girl stuff a little bit as well. So, but um, yeah. So then we go from huggy bear to the gets and um, they were a Seattle garage punk band that was led by Mia Zapata. And she was uh, incredibly charismatic. And their debut record was uh, Frenching the Bully in 92. But they had quite a bit of momentum kind of leading into that. A lot of people thought like they were going to be kind of like L7, that they were going to be one of these bands that was going to like kind of break through, you know, after, you know, um, Nirvana and some of the other bands that were kind of paving the way a little bit. And um, they were on the verge of breaking out in 92, 93 until uh, Zapata was raped and murdered. And um, that kind of, you know, inspired a lot of dialogue in the Seattle kind of music community about uh, issues of violence against women, especially in light of, I guess, the police kind of handled it pretty poorly. They basically claimed that um, the only victims or only suspects that they were focusing on were like her degenerate friends and peers in the scene. And, yeah, I mean, it went on for like years and years, like mm-hmm. nine years or something. So I don't think anything was ever, or no, there was a DNA thing. Yeah. Up, they found like ran on a random DNA test. They found some dude that, um, that, that, you know, rang some bells or something, but actually yeah. they're from Ohio as well. Oh, they are. Did they relocate then to Seattle? Uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio is what the wiki says, okay. but they did relocate in 89. Yeah. Just, just okay, yeah. I was going to say they got big in Seattle. So but that's kind of... that, like the same with, <laughs> with the cramps is that they yeah. started in Ohio and then they got big in New York. Yeah. Or they got a, they got a found in New York, I guess. Uh, poison they were a pennsylvania band and they went Oof. out to 
Sunset that's tough Strip. putting them in the same categories. <laughs> I was just I was just thinking of other bands that did like a relocation to like a scene that's geographic. Cannibal um, Corpse. Yeah, Cannibal Corpse did it. Um, who else did it? I don't know. Anyways, yeah. So that's another show. Yeah, that is another show. Um, but yeah, I've always liked the Gits. I, I don't spend a lot of time with them, but they're definitely a band that got mentioned a lot as being incredibly both I think contemporaries of Babes in Toyland in L7, but you know, part of that sort of North Pacific Northwest thing that was kind of starting to happen. Um, yeah. Also uh, based on a Monty Python skit. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. I didn't the know. Sniffling that... Little Rat Face Gits was the, their original name. Is that where it came from? Okay. Got, got so it. That's, that's, that's my notes here. Um, and then we go from the Gits to seven year bitch. And this was a band that was definitely inspired by the Gits. Um, they um it's interesting that they write this song in 92 because their next album is going to be a tribute to mia zapata and so you know it's called dead man don't rape from the sickum mm-hmm. record 92 and um you know it's just a, a really incredible like i don't know the foresight in the song is is pretty interesting in terms of what it's talking about and and some of the like the issues that we've been unpacking, you know, this whole talk set, I think, you know, that this is an incredibly charged uh, group of songs that we're playing here. Um, and, you know, I don't want to like overanalyze or underanalyze it or, or whatever from our perspective, but it's just, I think it's pretty overt with what it's kind of t- trying to talk about. Yeah. I mean, that was such a, an affront to the whole movement too. It was just like completely, I think really kind of sh- like, grabbed everybody by the throat <laughs> like well, holy don't shit think, what the fuck happened it doesn't that doesn't happen to like you know the male rock stars no you know what i mean no like, yeah you don't not, hear about brett michaels you know being raped and somebody yeah, taking his insulin or some shit it's, it's like it's not exactly it's not it's not gonna happen and so you know they actually recorded a tribute second album uh to mia from the gets called viva zapata i think in 94 i think but mm-hmm. um you know this is uh, the last album, I think, that had their founding guitarist, Stephanie Sargent. She also died pretty tragically, I think, the next year, 93, um, from heroin and alcohol on her way to the party or, or her way home from a party and stuff. So they were, there was just like, it seemed like a lot of bad mojo that was kind of going on in the, the sort of Seattle sort of girl-fronted scenes that were kind of happening at the time. And people were very outspoken about a lot of intense feelings, I think. And, and that comes through in a lot of this music. And um yeah, I mean, this this whole like you know right girl and right girl adjacent stuff was such a uh, like a grassroots kind of movement, you know, created by um, similar like the whole like DC hardcore yeah. kind of thing. Um, yeah, K, K Records was part of this too. You know, the beat yeah. happening, and it didn't really ever like what the I feel like the the kind of stuff that they were starting to espouse and you know talk about and perform and that kind of ethics behind it all got gobbled up by the commercial machine a couple years later yeah and they kind of like pull all that in and like that they make money out of it yeah you know the the same with like the you know cramming all the different uh you know seattle portland all these other bands together as some type of unified scene when it wasn't like the commerciality starts to come in with someone that you end up like you know three four years later with creed you know exactly you've got these bands that are like creed and uh what's the canadian one Nickelback and Nickelback, like these bands, I could not tell you. A, I mean, I could tell you a Creed song for sure. That whatever that's the the big one was uh, on such rotation, but it was so just like a blatant ripoff of 
like the worst parts. Of, like it was a stereotype of the good stuff. Yeah, and, it was a derivative of a derivative. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it made like it made what Stone Temple Pilots do on the first record seem like, like really, high art. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and I like Stone Temple Pilots, especially their second record. But like again, they weren't like reinventing the sun. You is know? that core? Is is that the second one? Or is the first record? That's the one that's okay. really recycled grunge. Second record's actually pretty like that's where they actually became their own band, Purple. That's like Interstate Love Song and, and some of that stuff. But um Is it the Dogs Will Find You at Song? Is that on that album? That's no, that's on core. That's plush. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that was on so much. Yeah. That was everywhere. I mean, that was as ubiquitous as a song in my I think it was eighth grade. That was like middle school, like everywhere. You couldn't escape that song. Yeah, that was so, when I was I was like had my own apartment and MTV, yeah. and that's all they were fucking playing is that yeah, goddamn song. Playing that all the time. Oh man, well, Alice in Chains too. So it wasn't it wasn't all. Yeah, I mean there was but... there was a lot of stuff going on. It was a really interesting time period. So, but um, yeah. But one thing I would say about Seven Year Bitch for Metalheads is they're pretty heavy. Um, if you li- if you go deeper cuts than just Dead Man Don't Rape. You know, um, songs like Sync and other things had some pretty doomy vibes to them. They definitely were probably a little one step closer to like what Melvin's and Tad and and some of those bands were kind of doing than maybe say like what Bikini Kill was doing, for example, in terms of musicality, you know, so um, definitely we're checking out some of those kind of deeper cuts on that stuff. And um, finally, finally, Mark, my dream has come true. Fucking Sleater Kinney. I get to play a goddamn Sleater <laughs> Kinney song on Requiem Metal Podcast. If you had told me this 15 years ago, I would have told you you're a fucking liar. So um, people that know me know I've always been a, a, a stand for, for Sleater Kinney. Um, goes back to uh, my friend Chris True, who is an occasional listener of the show, but um, he's a guy that was really into X. Um, but he got me into Sleater Kinney in college. And I've just, I they're always my favorite band of this movement, I guess. And they're, they're kind of post riot girl. They they sort of. I, I think so. I think they're more. Um, I think there's a definite division there between well, think, the, uh, them and the 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 earlier part of the movement. They weren't quite as. I don't think it was. It was more. In, it was on the indie rock side of things. Yes. Yeah. And they were musical. They were like much more interested in being like I think dynamic musically. In it wasn't some about politics or about ethos. I think it was much more music musically based. Sure. I think. And they definitely had some very like charged songs. They are a very political band in some ways, but they're not as like militant maybe as like what Bikini Kill and some of those other bands were doing. You know? Yeah, yeah. I would. I think they're kind of like the next. You know, the 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 younger sister of that movement. Yeah, they're like a they're like post punk to Riot Girl or to mm-hmm. Riot Girls punk or something. They found like a pathway out to like be creative and not get trapped in like conventions and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But they're definitely, you know, um, unique sound, twin vocals and twin guitars, no bass player. So you've got Corinne Tucker um, doing the very high vocals and Carrie Brownston, um, who came from Heavens to Betsy. Um, so she came from another Riot Girl band to form mm-hmm. Cedar Kinney. And a lot of people know Carrie from Portlandia, if you're a fan of that show. Um, alongside for most of their career, they had one drummer, Janet Weiss, and she was just like, she kind of had like a Mo Tucker vibe. She just beat the fuck out of the skins. And she's a really impressive drummer. If you kind of like listen to a lot of their, their catalog, she's uh she's good stuff, but um, no bass high pitch vocals are their defining features. But um, man, those guttural screams near the end of call the doctor. Uh, those are, 
those are those are real you know and that's the thing about Slater Kinney is like they're all about energy and emotion and intensity and um yeah if you've never if you're into this stuff on some level maybe you're new to to a lot of this music but you kind of find some of this fascinating they are definitely worth going down the rabbit hole with um I would recommend dig dig me out probably is a good place to start that's kind of considered their masterpiece but um even one beat one beats my favorite of theirs that's their kind of post 911 um record that they kind of wrote about you know post 911 american culture and stuff mm-hmm. like that um that was one of the cd's that i had with me uh, one of 50 cd's that i took with me to live in england when i was student teaching there so i just remember walking around london a lot like listening to Sleater kinney sometimes you know so on your uh, cd walkman that had uh, skip protection that's it, man. And I mean, I lived basically with just 50 CDs for four months. So yeah, I, that's I, get good. To I think when, when we had like fewer, we didn't have, you know, Spotify and YouTube and all this, I think you kind of digested stuff more. I think I, I, I will always remember those, those CDs and, um, the hundred that I took to Italy for six months as well. Those are always like very intimate records for me, you know? So sure. yeah, I actually wish there were like less choices. I, I wish like they, <laughs> like took some of the selections off, you know, and just said, here's, here's your options to listen to and watch and things like that. Yeah. I'd probably be your happier human. So, all right, well, let's get into it. Um, we've got rebel girl and white boy, both from bikini kill from the yeah, 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 yeah. From 93. Um, then from huggy bears, taking the rough with the smooch, uh, her jazz. Then from Frenching the bully 92, we've got second skin from the gits dead men don't rape from seven year bitch from the Sikkim uh, record. And then Call the Doctor, the self-titled song from Call the Doctor from 1996, Sleater Kinney.
don't think it's a problem because most of the girls ask for it. Uh -huh. How do they ask for it? The way they act, the way they... I, I can't say the way they dress because that's an own personal choice. Some dumb hoe that you butt rock your face is walking down the street. They're asking for it and they deny it, but it's true.
that was Call the Doctor from Sleater Kinney. Then we had Dead Man Don't Rape from Seven Year Bitch, Second Skin, The Gits, Her Jazz from Huggy Bear, and then White Boy and Rebel Girl from Bikini Kill. Uh, here we go, Mark. Here's where we get into the, the weeds, uh, I think, a little. Um, perhaps for some people. Because, um, all right, I'm, I'm going to share my thoughts. Um, okay. I, wrote, I wrote some thoughts down. Feel free to interrupt me. But I just I was kind of like just doing some things. Okay. All right. First off, I think it should be known from my perspective that I am an incredible whole and Courtney Love fan and have been for for decades. All right. I was uh, at Lollapalooza when they headlined with Sonic Youth. I had a fucking whole like button up uh, fucking bowling shirt or whatever that I bought there. <laughs> yeah, I was in high school. I didn't know any better. But like, it is it's okay. Bowling shirts were a thing for a while. They were a thing. Yeah. Um, I never really got caught up too much in the bad press, and I've even come to appreciate Celebrity Skin, their third record, as um, kind of an interesting aspirational mainstream rock kind of, uh, you know, minor masterpiece that it is. Yet at the same time, it's this sort of like slick kind of mainstream rock record that's also masking a lot of mourning over her dead husband. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really like interesting it's just, it's interesting. It's something I don't think I understood when it came out, you know, at the time. Um, Courtney Love had an insane childhood. I mean, like, we could unpack a lot of this. We don't have time. It's its own fucking episode. Um, you know, involved, like, fucking hippies, perhaps being fed LSD at, like, the age of three by her father. Um, topless dancing in Japan. Um, like, lots of things. Just a lot. You know, she was in Sid Nancy. Um, she was an actress, you know, she was doing like a lot of like kind of crazy stuff, um, in terms of her musical journey, you know, she hooked up, um, with Roddy bottom and convinced him to let her sing for faith no more, uh, as their vocalist in 1982. Um, I did so not know that. Yeah. So, so she was at, for, at one point, a vocalist for faith no more way back in their early, early days. Cause she was kind of hanging around the San Francisco scene at times. She was bouncing everywhere. She was like living in multiple countries, New Zealand at one point. She's just, like I said, her childhood is really pretty fucked up. And, How was and she able to be the, was it like military family? Like what's the. No, like parents got like, she, um, she lived with her mom until she emancipated herself. She did like the Drew Barrymore thing. Um, okay. That was, that was big back then. Yep. Yep. Um, I don't know how old she was when she did it. And then she basically set a goal for herself that she was going to be famous by the age of 25 or she was going to jump off her bridge. So she just fucking like went for it and she just kind of like went all in. Um, in 1984, this is kind of like the, the crux of our episode right here. In 1984, she met Kat Bajellan, um and they formed a band together called Pagan Babies. Mm -hmm. um, and they moved to San Francisco where they recruited a bassist by the name of Jennifer Finch and um, built this band in late 85. Uh, Courtney Lovell moved to Minneapolis, kind of following Kat. Cat um, moved from the Pacific Northwest uh, back to or over to Minneapolis. Um, and that's where Kat hooks up with Lori Barbaro and they form Babes in Toyland. And Kate was a drummer, right? Yep. Yep. And she was the one that was living in New York, watching like a lot of the CBGB shows in the late seventies, early eighties and stuff. And um, I think, you know, Courtney and Kat, like Courtney, like I think jammed with babes in Toyland, like at a session or something like that, but nothing, nothing ever really serious. But I think like Courtney and Kat Bajellan have this, like, 
I think a lot of people think they hate each other. And the way I heard it put like recently when I was kind of listening to some podcasts is they're this really interesting pair who seem to have this like bitter rivalry, but in a lot of ways, it's more of like a hyper competitive sisters. Um, They're both like incredibly like type a, they're both front women. Mm -hmm. Neither can be in a band with each other. And there's a lot of like jealousy between them kind of the way that like, again, I have a lot of ants on my mom's side. And so I see a lot of the hyper competitiveness amongst like the sisters. Um, I think it's more like that. It's very like love hate in a lot of ways and stuff. So I think a lot of the controversy that's like surrounding like how, you know, babes in Toyland versus hole and, and some of that kind of shit. I think the media played into that a lot because it was a cool story for them to like sell magazines or to like create whatever hype around this shit. Well, yeah, um, I think there's a lot of animosity too. I was, watching an interview with cat about uh this is like this is contemporary like something from uh-huh. two years ago or something and the kind of, like she she doesn't have any like ill will but she's like you know she wanted to be famous i wanted to write songs yeah like there was a def- definitely some different motivations happening there and you can i mean you can tell that from the output yep and the next thing i wrote it's almost like you read my mind mark so congratulations. Um, <laughs> I've I known you for where, a while. Yeah. I said, whereas babes seem content with their position in the heavy rock, grunge, sludge, punk scene, love wanted to be taken as seriously as the men in her life. Billy Corgan, Kurt Cobain. Um, she didn't want to be a, a girl band or a grunge band. She wanted to be like an eternal band. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard it put this way the other day and it kind of hit me and I was like, man, they might be onto something. She might be the last rock star. Cause she outlived Kurt. Obviously she's still alive, but like in terms of how she carried herself, her controversy, her, you know, her antics, like she's kind of like in the late nineties when she was still doing some kind of wacky shit, she was still kind of almost like this rock goddess, rock God kind of persona that like doesn't really exist anymore because we don't have those kind of bands anymore to like rally around. And so like, that's how she thought of herself in a lot of ways. And that's how she carried herself, not as like kind of a female artist representing kind of that perspective, you know, but as like somebody that wanted to be a stadium rock band. No. And I think that that's like, I think like, I think I thought of whole differently, or I think I thought of them the wrong way throughout the years, you know, if that's the case. And if that's like really where she's at, then, um, you know, she wasn't content with like the kind of Olympia scene or the, the riot girl manifesto. She wanted like hooks and bridges and choruses and fucking big songs. And, um, you know, and so like a lot of her beef with the riot girl thing was a philosophical belief, not necessarily, I think Courtney's a feminist, but I think like, she thought that the riot girl thing was probably limiting musically and she wanted to have like poppier songs or she wanted uh, to write what uh, songs she wanted to write, you know? Yeah. I, I would think that, I don't even know if she even thought about it. I think it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't like a fast track anywhere either. Yeah. It was yeah. a very, um, and cause she, I think she was going, she was cultivating this, this like, you know, cult of personality. Um, yep. and it was about her, and about i mean all the songs are about her it's a very like band that's it's about personal shit it's not about ideas like yeah you know like a lot of the um uh the the riot girl stuff was more sure. idea based than like you know personality based or or uh, i was trying to come up with some type of 
very succinct term <laughs> about that. But that that was kind of my takeaway is from like out of the what made the, the whole and her whole thing so different was it yeah. was she was a pure cult of personality person. She was like what Bowie was doing with Ziggy Stardust or something with yes. you know this 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 like alien. <laughs> well and I think too like Courtney like Bowie was like ever changing you know, like she did not want to be limited by anything she never sure. wanted i don't to want to put her in the same category yeah. as bowie but i think in no, a general I, sense you could as far as like uh approach but what i mean is like the the musical approach because like pretty sure. on the inside is this like really like caustic noisy record and then you know live through this is something different and if you continue through the trajectory i mean you probably don't know celebrity skin that much because it came out in 97 and you were probably I know some a couple of the hits on it or whatever or the yeah. singles or whatever and, and they were really slick and kind of like poppy and stuff and there 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 are songs that aren't poppy on that record but like she was willing to like morph into whatever and she didn't care she just was writing songs whatever came to her came to her and she didn't care if she had to change genres or change styles and that's what i mean by like the bowie thing you know yeah like, yeah nobody ever accused bowie of selling out when he like switched to electronic music and then the pop music they, they were just like oh that's just fucking david bowie True. and that's how she always wanted to be taken and she was really i think frustrated with the fact that like there was this weird expectation that she had to be something because of how her image was so she had to sound this way and she's like no that's fucked up like you know and she well, fought the noisier it. stuff was like you know people really push back when they yeah. you know change their sound a lot as well so it's yeah. um and i think a lot of her visceral too stuff towards like the there was a lot of animosity yeah. between like bikini kill and hole uh, probably more than than even the the babes in toyland kind of stuff and a lot of that had to do oh, with I'm like sure, yeah i mean Toby Vale was still writing letters to Kurt while like Courtney and her were married and Courtney, Courtney and Kurt were married. Mm -hmm. Like Courtney was fucking pissed about that. Like she was like, step off bitch. Like, this is my man. Like you gotta like get over this. And like, I get that on some level, you know, because I've, so I've heard a lot. I mean, there's, there's lots of different, uh, ideas about all this stuff. I don't know what's true. <laughs> sure. And a lot of it's um, tabloid and, and yeah. And there's a lot of it that's, gospel. you know, that's the, that um, that's, uh, Courtney was jealous of uh, Toby Vale as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's well, like I mean, it's it's a you know it's it's all it's personal you know stuff at this point. Like nobody's gonna exactly know, but what what they what she did with that band was only possible in the nineties. Yeah, why why you say that? It sums up every like there there was not we have not had any type of like that culminated the whole quote-unquote grunge movement yeah you know that went as far as it could possibly go against all odds too yeah i think in live through this the second one mm -hmm. Sorry, well, yeah i mean live through this is like um well i guess we'll mention it teenage whore um the first song because i want to get to live through this but you know lots of noisy feminist anger on that song um you know it was produced by kim gordon so you know that's kind of a cool connection so like mm -hmm. you know their heroes are coming out of the woodwork to do their stuff. And we'll see that Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth is going to get involved with Babes in Toyland. And so, like, it's kind of cool how all this, the, the, the narrative of this episode starts to kind of merge here. But um, when she put something in the flyer to find the good, you know, to find a guitar player to start a band with, she basically said, I want, I'm, I'm into Big Black, Sonic Youth, and Fleetwood Mac. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that like in a lot of ways that is whole, right? Like she wants to be the rock star that Stevie Nicks was and write those big fucking hooks, but she also likes the noise and the chaos and all that. And so I think that's kind of her personality. And that's how she got Erica or er- Erlinson uh, to be on board. And he's the only guy that stuck with her through her whole career. So like he, you know, they've gone through a lot of bassists and drummers and different things like that, but it's been like Courtney and him the whole time. And uh, that's pretty cool. And so then you get lived through this, obviously, right? This, this record that I think, and you know, the timeline of this record, right? Like mm-hmm. the weirdness of it all, you know, coming out um, a week after Kurt killed himself. And yeah. so, you know, that's a lot, that's a lot for her to deal with. This is her like kind of work of art. And she had to kind of like fight through the perception and a lot of the the stuff. And I just recently heard an interview with her that was like, look, if Kurt had written songs on this, like I would fucking be talking about that today. Like, why would I hide that? She's like, first of all, I wouldn't let him because I need it to be, I need to like do things on my own. I needed to be famous on my own regards. And I just wanted to be taken as seriously as him as a songwriter. And it used to piss me off how like, how easily he could write songs and like how frustratingly long it took me to like do this shit. And so like, that's her like blood, sweat and tears. And the fact that like it came out in such a weird fucking nexus of chaos, you know, with her husband dying and all the rumors about, you know, like, I mean, just the rumors that she had something to do with it and like all this kind of stuff that has evolved through time. Like, I think it's took all the the Yoko stuff, you know, that, that she basically destroyed destroyed him and used his you know notoriety to propel her own career and there's stuff with billy corrigan and with uh trent reznor and i mean there's definitely uh there's lots of different ways to look at all the 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 whole thing but the thing that you can keep as a testament is you know the couple records yeah everything else like i as a person i do not like her she in she seems to inhabit a lot of disingenuous aspects of people that I don't like, <laughs> but I, I can't deny that. I think she did some really, some really good stuff. She did some really good music, but personally, she seems like a nightmare. I think she, like I said, I think if you like, if you read up on her childhood, it, it may like, she shouldn't have even lived. She shouldn't have made sure, it this far. But your, your childhood like doesn't dictate your life. No, I agree. I agree. Either. So I just, I think she's, she's messy. She's definitely a messy person. She wears a lot of things on her sleeves and stuff. And I would not defend everything Courtney Love has done. Trust me. Um, well, and just where she's come lately, like what, what even is like, you know, she went straight into acting and yep. seemed, to, seemed to abandon music altogether. So like, there's a lot of ideas where you're just like, eh, I don't know what's, you know, was it an accident this happened or no, I don't, I don't think so. I think she's been kind of culminating and working towards a lot of this, you know, this record as well. Um, I mean, I think the thing that like you have to think about, about live through this is this is an album about what it's like to live with a person who you love, who's slowly trying to kill themselves and give up on life. And I think that's like, what's really fascinating. So like live through this is like, it's about Courtney's life, but it's also about what it's like to like be with somebody that's like on a suicide mission essentially. And like how you get through that, you know, and you're, yeah. you're sharing a child together and there's a lot of that in here. Like there's a lot of that anger and a lot of that animosity in there. There's, there's still some feminist bits in here. I mean, Jennifer's body inspired a movie um, because of what it's, you know, kind of talking about doll parts and miss world and all the, 
the stuff about like the judgment of females and like, you know, um, I think it's there. I think there's some spirit of that, but it, I think it's looking beyond. I think maybe she saw Riot Girl as limiting and and for, for good or bad or whatever, you know, right or wrong. We don't have to debate that. That's how she saw it, you know, and that's yeah. that's just her perspective on it. But um, I well, mean, she's she, always been she's the she's the personality of the band. That's all yeah. it's about her. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and she's definitely had her eye on the prize. She's never mm-hmm. apologized about that. Like she wanted to be she wanted to be taken as seriously as like Billy Corgan was or Kurt Cobain. Like she wanted to be. She didn't want to be a girl band. She wanted to be a rock band and like she wanted to be a rock god, you know, like her own version of like Robert Plant. Like, why can't I be that? And like, that's kind of cool in a way. Like, I get it. Like, that's almost as feminist as anything else that we've been talking about. And she kind of got character assassinated by that in a lot of ways. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about it is like, you know, I think critics hate it more. I think they hated her more after his suicide because she didn't like just kind of roll over and go away. And I think that's also like something that like has hit me like lately when I kind of think about that, I think like she didn't die with Kurt Cobain. She didn't just like kind of like fade away into the distance that she like was like, no, I'm going to like persevere through this and I'm going to maintain my career and I'm going to keep my eyes on the prize. And I think there were like rock critics or maybe, you know, that, that didn't like that on some level they thought like well, I think she on a was gut dead. level they wish she was dead yeah Instead, on some level <laughs> yeah, you know like like, they, like everybody uh, loved kurt i you know i don't know as much i don't really uh i respect what they did but nirvana was not like a defining uh, sure. band for me by any that, a lot of this stuff that's it's weird because i had this kind of parallel trajectory with all this stuff like yeah i don't i liked you know i really liked like the the second Soundgarden record, the first Smashing Pumpkins record, um, just bits and pieces of stuff in there. And I was never, I I didn't really care about a lot of the stuff. It was all kind of periphery. So like I'm coming at it from a totally different um, vantage point than like some of the stuff was like very pivotal to your like musical history. Live Through This is like such a, like I sat with that record a lot. And in a lot of ways, that record and i think little earthquakes from tori amos probably more than any two like kind of female artist records like shaped the way i think about maybe like certain gender politics and like if it kind of feminized me in 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 a weird way like and it's hard for me to articulate that because it's such like a being a teenager but like it it forced me to kind of consider a different perspective in a way yeah it's almost well, like all those, those both those records are very raw yeah and i well, and I, and I was drawn to raw right and i think that's why i eventually end up at death metal you know on some level yeah. or extreme metal because like i just i live for like raw emotion like i like really fucked up movies that go like into you know places mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't want to go into because to me it's like i don't know you're getting closer to like a truth a universal truth on some level and so um i don't know so like that was very interesting to me i don't know I didn't have a spirit guide through it either though. I didn't have like, uh, I didn't have like females that were sitting there listening to that record with me, like explaining like, Oh, when she makes this reference, she's talking about like this. And that would have been helpful probably. So I had to make sense of it from whatever I could make sense of it with, you know, like, like I had no, there wasn't a ton of criticism about this stuff early on either. You know, it's like, it takes time. 
Yep, absolutely. I'm not like knocking myself. I'm just saying like, hey, for whatever it's worth, like they were important records to me, but I'm not going to pretend yeah. like I, I'm, you know, some kind of expert on it or that I understand like the female experience because I don't, you know, but I can sympathize with it and I empathize and that's all I, you know, be an ally and that's all I can try and try and do, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I knew that there was like gold here, you know, like I, I, that's all I could explain. And like, I knew I had a lot of friends that didn't like whole, um, just because they didn't, because I don't, I don't know why, maybe sometimes that, you know, they didn't like female vocalists or they just, they didn't like Courtney. I like, think a lot of people didn't like her personality. She was brash. Yeah. Um, yeah. She came off, uh, arrogant. Yep. Um, you know, she was doing, she was doing the rock star thing. You know, she, in the seventies, she would have been somebody throwing TVs out of a hotel window. Exactly. And I, um, think so it's a kind of like taking, take, you know, grabbing that traditionally male held thing. And also like, you know, like, uh, uncomfortable sex appeal. Yeah. I like, 100%. uh, you know, like just, yeah. You know, like being, being as like, you know, pushy as guys would be. Yeah, on stage and stuff and just doing controversial ish stuff. But I mean, Iggy Pop used to talk about like, you know, like when he was playing on stage, like, you know, he wanted to make powerful music to go and like, you know, it like go take the woman, like just mm -hmm. go out in the crowd, you know, grab the woman, you know, like, like Cake it man was, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what Courtney was doing. And I think that's what Babes in Toyland were doing and L7 were doing and like, like to a certain crowd like that that was like scary you know especially like depending on what you're you know especially a male audience maybe wasn't some male audience <clears throat> members were probably not into that you know and and that's that's just what it is you know i think there's still people that are very scared of of strong strong females probably but but i think like it's interesting because you you kind of mentioned the double standard because i think if courtney had been a male like no one would have batted an eye at anything she was doing or anything she was do, you know, like the way she was acting. It it was no different than like Axl Rose or or someone else that was moody and a difficult musician. Yeah. Yeah. And and so I think I think that's one of the double standards about that. And that's something I've kind of like learned to maybe appreciate about them is she was just like trying to fight through that as much as she could. And I don't think she always did it the right way. I think it was messy. You know, I think she made some mistakes. I think she had addiction issues too. Oh, of I course. Think. I mean, I'm, she did stuff. She did stuff to fuck with people. Yeah. She was an antagonist. Yep. Yeah. So uh, like, like, you know, like the, <laughs> going back to the, you know, people that make interesting art aren't necessarily always good people. Yeah. No, no. Don't follow like your, your ethical standards on stuff, but it's interesting, you know? Yeah, for sure. But, uh, but it's too like gutless. <clears throat> I mean, that's like, that's just got power. You know, and I mean, we could have played a lot of songs, you know, some of the more hits or whatever, but I thought Gutless was probably the best song for the Requiem audience because it's just like fucking boom, punches you in the face there. But there's, you know, something about like the line, I don't really miss God, but I sure miss Santa Claus. I mean, that's like, that's kind of like brilliant. That's like a Bob Dylan type line <laughs> in a way. Because like you're you're kind of like offending like organized religion and like the idea of like you know like it's all there and and stuff. But um, well, and like you know, it's like a, a bit of innocence there too. With you know, yeah, I want to go back. Stuff. Like yeah, like that's I think that's what going. If you want to go back to the childhood stuff, like that's it seems like a, a thing that people go back to for solace is that the innocence of childhood. Well, and supposedly those ideas. As, as, as I've come to understand, it, I'm probably like wrong on some detail here that like originally 
Courtney was think wanting to title this album in utero. And she talked about the idea of like crawling back inside to your childhood and going back to your past or whatever. And Kurt kind of was like, Oh, I sort of like that. Like, could I use it? And like, she kind of conceded or whatever. That's again, who, I don't know if that's out and, you know, Kurt Cobain's said that out loud, or that's just another like kind of Courtney tall tale. Um, but it, it would make sense because that's kind of the sentiment of of some of the things that she's talking about on this record, you know, obviously. But uh, interesting, you know, again, there's a million Courtney rumors and that's not what this episode's about. But um, yeah, so I think Hole is definitely like part of this, you know. Um, but again, the episode that we want to really get to is is these last two bands and that's Babes in Toyland and L7. And so, you know, they're connected. Um, you know, Cat comes from you know, starting this band with Courtney and then kind of going off and babies and yeah, going back to the, the, the era or the, the home of Fusker do. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And a lot, probably one of the biggest bands in this whole, I don't know that whole, like going from punk to hardcore into like this melodic new stuff, them and Fugazi maybe. I think them, yeah, Fugazi, I think, uh, you know, the replacements, um, there, there mm-hmm. are a handful of bands that were kind of doing a lot of that the stuff. Replacements, I think are also from Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yep. Yeah. They're part of that yeah. whole Minnesota scene, you know, but Kat was a huge growing up before she discovered punk. She was really big into rush, mm-hmm. um, plasmatics, kiss and captain Beefheart. And okay. I think that that's super interesting because one of the observations that i made when i was kind of revisiting a lot of this babes in toyland stuff over the last couple months is how much especially on like the early babes records and even a few things on fontanelle remind me and this is i'm about to fucking freak you out here so just be, bear with me a voyevod and what i mean by that is some of the weird strange like dissonant <laughs> riffs that are sort of there and i don't mean like early voyevod i mean like kind of the you know angel dust and 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 some of um angel rat, angel rat sorry um not the german power metal band um but like some of that kind of era nothing face just these like things that were you know Lori's drumming is really like kind of interesting i'm not saying she's like at the level of a way i would never compare that but like it's some of the weird dissonant things and also like, you know, the Bauhaus kind of riffs that are kind of in there as well. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense that she grew up with rush and beef heart and plasmatics and like things that were like off kilter and weird and progressive, but not traditional, you know, and that, that like mm-hmm. led into like how she kind of constructed riffs a little bit, you know? So anyways, I don't know. She might not give a shit about Voyevod or have even heard of her, heard of them or whatever, but it's just this weird parallel there. And I think like too, another Minnesota band was um I think uh Dykreitzen is Minnesota mm-hmm. as well. And they were a huge inspiration on Voyevod. So like something was kind of happening there in like the the you know Midwest Canada kind of connection that was maybe happening between some dissonance and anyways. So that's my that's my profound weird metal thought is like listen for some weird Voyevod riffs that you might hear, you know, in like Dust Cake Baby and Matt Pilot and shit so you, like that. You were you were into Babes in Toyland as well as a I was. teenager? Yeah, okay. uh, especially Fontenelle. I didn't know Spanking Machine or To Mother, though. I didn't hear their early stuff, but I had Fontenelle on cassette tape from Columbia House. Um, okay. I, the second I heard Bruce Violet, it fucking was like a game changer for me. Like, I just was way, way fucking into that record. Um, 
Well, that song's supposedly about Courtney. It, it is, although it's come out now that it's not. Cat has kind of come out and said it's not about Courtney, that it's actually like a mutual person that the two of them actually knew. So, but yeah, we'll get to, we'll get to Bruce Violet for sure. But um, yeah, what were your thoughts on Spanky Machine? The the two songs, um, Swamp Pussy and, and Dust Cake Baby, which by the way, Swamp Pussy, one of the great titles of all times. Uh, it sounds like a Melvin's album or something. It, it's like completely there. Um Again. I I find a lot of this does not age well for me. Okay. Uh um, I can see that. This is yeah, this is this is my contrary take on the thing, but like I didn't I didn't have much outside of like Bruce Violet, I think is uh, you know, it was the probably the, the biggest their biggest. That was hit. a big song. Yeah, it was a huge um, hit. And actually has a lot of like subtlety in it that is lacking in some of the other songs. Mm-hmm. I found a lot of it to be kind of um uh like repetitive. Uh, I'm trying to f- think of way- things that don't sound super critical, but um, it just, it seemed really dated to me in a way that um, like Pantera is dated to me. Okay. Um, yes. Like it, it was almost kind of and the same with um, uh, L7 okay. seems dated to me in a way that like Pantera, like it's, it's for teenagers and yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting it. Like the, the anger, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't identify okay. with, I guess. Probably um, if you don't don't find this stuff at the right age, it's it makes know, a big difference. And I think there's certain a lot stuff. Of it's same with like uh, like uh, like White Zombie. Yeah. I don't ever have any want to revisit all that. It's kind of that weird '90s era where I felt like the stuff that I was listening to is way more interesting. So like, why why bother? Sure. You know? Yeah. But like you know, ten years earlier, I was like you know I thought NXS was like the best thing ever. So it's like. It's, it comes down to personal taste for sure. And when you discover it, you know, what age. And when you, yeah, exactly. Some, some yeah. people would, would hear, you know, fucking, you know, I'm trying to think of a a band that might be a slightly divisive <laughs> back, back then. Um, Jesus, I don't know. But just that I, I have, I think I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about some of the quote unquote grunge stuff too. Uh-huh. Because I felt like the stuff that was happening in extreme metal was more interesting because I was invested in it. Yeah. Um, I can completely see and that. And that's why like I, the, my, the whole like, you know, mind fuck of the episode is that, Oh, I think holes pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not write, what I, that's not what I expected for this. They write universally great songs beyond, because I think they were looking beyond the scene. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they were trying to, she was trying to write universal songs that were like bigger Fleetwood Mac, you mm-hmm. know, like whatever, like that's it, what it totally makes sense. Yeah. And like, like, like babes in Toyland was, there's like some good little bits, but everything is like, seems very kind of percussive. It's almost like the, the chorus of, um, uh, what the fuck burst it at? No, I forgot something Violet. Bruce Violet? Bruce Violet. Like where there's a dun, 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 dun. like there's so much of that in like this kind of like percussive all the instruments at once doing this thing yeah it just it didn't there's something about it like didn't hit me like some of the other stuff did like you know like Allison Chains or Soundgarden or you know fucking yeah, Green no, River or any those, of that stuff you know it was I like those bands were trying to write beyond like Allison Chains wasn't necessarily trapped by grunge. Yeah, I mean they were they had one foot in fucking hard rock. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So maybe this is like 
I, I'm not, I don't know exactly what genre any of this stuff is or like where it kind of fell. It was a weird thing. L7 was an, an anomaly yeah, at the time because they were kind of more marketed as like a metal band when really yeah, they're, they're, they have a lot of like long, stoner yeah. elements. Like they sounded more like trouble on the first record than they did. Oh yeah. They got a lot any of kind fun. of alt stuff, you know? Yeah, definitely. They were all, they're all fans of Sabbath, you know, and Melvin yeah. and all that sort of stuff, you know? Um, I mean, Spanky Machine was recorded in Seattle. So, you know, even though they're a Minneapolis band, you know, it's got Jack Andino who did Bleach mm-hmm. and Mud Honey and early Soundgarden and that sort of stuff for people that don't know. Um, it did catch the year of Sonic Youth. They loved it. And so they took them out on tour for the, I think the Goo tour probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, what you get with these two songs is, you know, I mean, you get Cat kind of doing her. I think it kind of matters like, what your thoughts are on Kat's kind of vocals. Cause to me, like her vocals kind of become like a lead instrument. And so yeah. like, if you're into it, you're into it. If you're not like, I can see it not being that interesting. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Uh, and so like, that was always like the fascinating thing for me. It's probably why I got so into like Royal Thunder at first. Cause yeah. I heard a lot of like Kat Bajellan in some of the stuff that, um, what's her name? Millie. Um, I forget her name from Royal uh, Thunder. Starts with an M. Mini, Mini, as I was, yeah, I, I thought what I say, she, she reminded me of Ann Wilson. Yeah, she's got like Ann Wilson mixed with a little bit of like cat kind of stuff because she could okay. do the baby girl vocals sometimes, yeah. sort of innocent stuff, and then like the fucking like really like big voice coming out of that. And I think well, that's something. Yeah, I feel like that that uh, uh, the baby, the quieter baby girl stuff or whatever it was it was more interesting to go the go back and forth. Yeah, with that yeah. stuff, like uh, how Bruce Violet is, and I don't at least i didn't go i didn't listen to full albums i just listened to what we were talking about in the show yeah um but i don't feel like they really did that very much yeah i think fontanelle she does it the most that's the most dynamic stuff definitely going on um and i think that whole record holds up pretty well and they're all like kind of short digestible songs but um yeah there's definitely a lot of like i listen to all spanky machine a few times to try and pick out like the best songs there's a lot of sameness you know it's 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 kind of that um, but there's also that's that's a kind of a, a part of that era of music there's that is, it was like yeah. this kind of like new stuff happening and being trying to be like abrasive but there's all this abrasive stuff happening in other areas like you know jesus lizard and stuff too like there's all this abrasive music mm-hmm. and a lot just like some for some reason this reminds me of um of like like very teenage high school memories for me yeah which i, I think kind of like colors some of this too it's like you know like the the brattiness of some of it which i didn't take as being feminist as a kid i was just like oh god like come on like being See, difficult I, found, <laughs> I kind of found the brattiness to be really attractive um okay i was i uh, to say that i i definitely had a weird crush on courtney love and cat bajellan like i definitely did you know i was like 14 15 there are these sort of like angry snarling women on MTV that were wearing these like baby dresses and shit. And I was just like, and they were kind of pretty, but kind of scary. And I was confused by it all, but I kind of liked it all at the same time. Cause I didn't really know what was going on. So well, I think that was the, that was probably the motivation for sure. It was be confused and, and like, make you yeah. feel weird. Like, why do I feel, you know, why am I attracted to this, to this, you know, person's attitude or their, Scared. whatever it might yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, and it worked uh, for me. I was uh, the I was the right target audience. <laughs> yeah. I was the right target audience. You know, yeah. 
But, um, you know, here's a, this is from Mark Denning, uh, or Deming, excuse me, of all music. He said, Spanking Machine sounds like the blueprint for the music that Love would make during Hole's first incarnation, the um, Pretty on the Inside, their first record. Mm-hmm. He says that Spanking Machine is more compelling and emotionally powerful work as Kate Bajellan's songs pull no punches. So, there, you know, I think it's maybe a better debut than Hole's, but it's also like not their best material at the same time. You know, I mean, I think um i can see exactly your critiques you know i I think i probably i like it probably more than you do it's not like my go-to stuff that i'll I'll say that but you've got an emotional connection because that was one thing i i put in here is um like i don't i don't have any like when i talk about like you know last episode talk about entombed i have an emotional connection to that stuff that definitely uh changes you know, the, it might not, some people might hear it and think like, this is just trash. Yeah. Like I have an emotional connection to this that kind of like caters how I feel about it. Sure. Yeah. I can't say this is objectively good. Only in my opinion. <laughs> it's, it's very much like, I think you're right. It's very much of an era. It's very much representing a very specific point of view. It's sort of yeah. like, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it's, I think a lot of early nineties, the sort of like early grunge stuff is like, it's like late sixties psychedelic stuff. Like you had to be there and it doesn't, it doesn't always age. Well, you can sometimes apply historical context to it, but like some of it's a little fruity in the like psychedelic stuff because it's like, okay, all right, this, this was probably weird and experimental in 1967, but now it just kind of sounds a little hokey. Sure. Um, like you said, maybe like some of the anger now seems kind of like not empty calories. Cause I think it's real anger for what it was, but it's very, it just useful. reminds me of, uh, of Pantera anger. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a little like, useful. that's what, like, I, I can't revisit Pantera without feeling like, like teenage angst yeah. and vibes that I don't have any connection to anymore. Well, it's like why emo bands probably shouldn't be in their thirties. Or, like you can't, or Jonathan you can't Davis emo. should not be, you know, singing about the exactly. stuff he did in his first record as a 40 something year old guy. Yeah. Like it's just, it's the weird <laughs> thing about art, right? It's a weird thing about music where that's like so personal. Yeah. You know, um, and some, I think some genres are less cringy than others, but it's still, yeah, it's just a lot of, I mean, a lot of this is just about, you know, personal, yeah, personal preference and what else, but like, you know, it's weird in a historical context as well, because the, I, I don't know how out of the whole like grunge movement, which is a weird, it's not even a, it's not a cohesive thing. No. No. Um, like some bands, you know, had big strides and did, did way better than they probably should have for what they were. And then bands like, you know, like the Melvins and Tad are kind of relegated to this other just weird thing. Yeah. And then some other bands come in that, you know, trying to make the meat puppets like some huge, you know, pop act almost later on down the road seems like a weird choice. <laughs> like they were just trying to, they were like grasp the industry. People were trying to grasp at whatever was around there to get that magic. And it was just like a really weird time. I can't think of another. I mean, that's why people, there's probably like, you know, hundreds wow. of books on this era is that it was such a, a, like a redefining of popular music in a way that we hadn't seen since like the seventies. And that's why it was such a formative era for me to be like a middle school into high school kid. Cause I was like, I was mm-hmm. living it all, you know, like I missed spanky machine. I was too young for like early, early stuff, but you know, 
come 92, 93, I was pretty fucking plugged in. Like I mm-hmm. knew exactly what was going on within like the MTV alternative nation headbanger ball culture, you know? Sure. Um, but I wasn't into like anything that far beyond that yet. That that would take probably another year or two before I kind of started to discover, you know, Tiamat and Entombed and the earache Columbia deal and you mm-hmm. know that thing. So it was just a weird, yeah, it was in a, like a weird sweet spot where this is like some of this music is at a perfect time for me, you know? Well, and yeah, it's funny that it happens that, you know, that's when like death metal really hit too. Like yeah. all of this, like really kind of radical music happening at it. Like what do we have now that's, especially on that level on like a a mass appeal level yeah we don't have anything like that like pop music now seems to be just like the most simple simple sim, like really simplified boring repetitive stuff it's like it's like kids music that would be on like teletubbies is how i feel about it right now i mean i don't like know what you I hear on the radio that. or like yeah, I, maybe I, don't, I don't know what there is yeah, yeah. but there is no rock stuff. music in popular culture no no that that's it's all hip-hop or derivative hip-hop you know like post malone stuff that's the most boring shit i've ever heard in my life yeah uh taylor swift like all this stuff is just like what what what's there i mean taylor swift is what you get like taylor swift's doing like stadium rock that's like what like is the equivalent of like def leppard in 1987 is what like taylor swift's doing it's stuff like it's just so not exciting stuff yeah i i mean I, you know, I don't hate Taylor Swift. I don't really like care one way or the other. I get it because my students are all into it. Well, my niece is really into it. We're trying to figure out ways to, you know, give, turn around to different music, yeah. which I'm yeah. not really good at. So I'm just like, like her Christmas list had a bunch of Taylor Swift stuff. And I was like, man, if you were into something else, I'd love to buy you some music and a record player, but I'm not going to buy that. <laughs> yeah. I guess the one thing I'll say about that without going on to two, too much of a you know it was cool to see all my like students like super excited about trying to buy taylor swift concert tickets and like it's cool that kids are going to like live music at least because at least that's a door like that you know it's something it's better yeah, but than, like, that's also like a like i remember on the local news they were talking about how this is such a big deal just to get tickets to the show sure like how expensive everything was too and i was just like yeah, I mean that part. Sucks, What's the experience like? You, is there explosions? Is there like? Oh yeah, I think she does like the full the full thing. I think it's like Garth Brooks in the '90s type shit. You know, but like that, yeah, that also makes you know that's like a wet fart to me. Yeah, it's not our thing. Like, <laughs> like, a, a Garth Brooks show, like the you know Thunder Strikes or whatever that song was. Thunder rolls, baby. Thunder rolls. Like I, I would rather see like you know Def Leppard. You know, well, sure, do, do of something. Course, like, that's crazy. our version of it. You know what I mean? but you know? uh yeah just the excitement level is just like oh so like the 90s definitely had an up on that for like it's yeah. probably the last oh. time we had like pop music that was actually good well and like i said that's the that's the nirvana factor is that nirvana like broke through and like made it like so that weird shit was going to be popular for like at least like two or three years and then the corporations caught up and figured out how to like control it all but for a while it was like the end we'll to ruin it yeah you know it's like that was a sweet spot to be like to be like watching mtv when it was like why the fuck is like this being played on mtv and i love it like you know what i mean like i was here for it so that well, part yeah was- mtv went from this thing as a kid where i could watch like you know fine young cannibals and van halen and whatever might have been on and i was like oh cool and then nothing was on and we just waited for headbangers ball to, to get like those two videos 
Sure. You know, <laughs> at the like, very end of the I was night. coming home from middle school and it was like, oh, ministry, Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana are on. And then like TLC would be in the middle of that, but you didn't care because like the next video was going to be like Onyx and then like Danzig. And you're like, this is so <laughs> fucking strange what's happening right now. You know, well, like, it was cool that there yeah. was that kind of variety. Yeah. You know, I, I, was, I miss that. It was a it was a pretty awesome time, you know, to be kind of formed into. But um yeah, so we kind of go from Spanky Machine to uh, an EP uh, called To Mother with a tune called Map Pilot. And I said, you know, this is kind of probably a shot towards um, Kat's mother, um, who she's pretty openly accused of, you know, kind of having been abusive uh, when she was young. And so you know, there's another song we're going to hear called Mother uh, off Fontenelle, you know, and so it's like, yeah, the, you know, definitely kind of things happening there. But, um, you know, it kind of reminds me of like Ultra Mega OK Soundgarden in terms of the sound of it a little bit, as well as a little bit of like Melvin's and kind of noisy pieces as well. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the who's who did the production? Is this Jack? I don't know I don't if know Jack did the EP and the it, it would make sense if it was Jack, because these two are kind of like both together. And I think Caroline Records put both those out before yeah, they got. But the map pilot has a very more like raw yeah. vibe to the production i think it sure. sounds better spanky machine for sure yeah. uh, the two mother ep so and then we're going to hear a pair of tunes from fontanelle on our way out and we'll come back and talk about them and fontanelle um, oh, this is so, their uh van halen cover uh yes yes right now uh after all um so <laughs> we got, yes we've got a uh, teenage horror from hole from pretty on the inside 1991 then uh from 1994's live through this we've got gutless from hole <laughs> Then we've got Swamp Pussy and Dust Cake Baby from Spanky Machine from Babes in Toyland, Matt Pilot from Babes in Toyland's uh, To Mother EP from 1991. And then a year later, we get a pair of tunes, Right Now and Mother from Fontanelle from Babes in Toyland.
That was Mother and Right Now from Babes in Toyland's Fontenelle. Then we had from Babes in Toyland, Matt Pilot from To Mother, Dust Cake Baby and Swamp Pussy from Swanking, Spanking Machine. Oh, my God. Swanking Machine. <laughs> swanking Machine. Yay. And then from Live Through This, Hole, Gutless. And we opened things up with Hole's Teenage Whore from Pretty on the Inside. So those last two tunes, Mark, were from 1992's Fontenelle. Um, and that was kind of their breakthrough. Um and we'll uh you know kind of talk a little bit more about that but right now that's kind of when uh the, the tune when when cat breaks into the riff and the vocal of the line that says like well in the right uh now um mm-hmm. i said both the melvins and the pixies are served well it's this monstrous like heavy fucking riff um that part that part gets me it's very like quiet loud dynamic and just really raging and stuff but again I understand if it it works for me because I kind of go back to where I was when I heard this for the first time on cassette tape. Sure. Um, but um, well, like you know what what right now makes me think of what's that Rollins band? Yeah, it's the same era. Yeah, and I I don't like Rollins band. <laughs> oh, you're never into those guys? Okay. No, I I, I didn't like. I, it took me so long to check out Black Flag because I didn't like Rollins band. Because that was just like liar was constantly on rotation. Yeah, that's that's true. And I didn't really understand where they were coming from. It didn't sound punky to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was the, like that kind of vibe. So there's there's like a '90s chip on my shoulder about some of this stuff. Yeah, just like a personal preference kind of thing. But um, nothing else has sounded like this since. Like no, the, the '90s I was do. able to kind of capture something that's really not ever been captured sense like I, there's not to my knowledge there's not like any kind of you know how metal has all these different you know like tribute bands about a certain type of sound or you know like uh, early death metal or early black metal or you know hard rock or whatever it might be yeah i don't think this type of music has any of that does it i think the closest you get is like these sort of like retread bands that are like stealing like alice and chains riffs that's about as close as you get you know, who's God's that though? Nickelback, like... Godsmack, all that kind of shit. That's oh, okay. Kind of, okay. You know, there's there's other bands that I because like some of the the bands that have like, but no one's doing Babes in Toyland. You know, what I mean, no one's doing no. like no. I think Mel- with, you know, um, and... I was thinking like the the yeah yeah yes is definitely pulling in some of that old you know energy yeah. from probably that Riot Girl stuff and the name of the band in general, but. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. but that but also like a pop element and sonic youth stuff like that that's the thing is it's weird when there's eras where things don't you don't hear it again yeah it's a really interesting thing and so and if that's something why. you hear when you're a kid and you're like fuck this i really this really gets me or you know i really feel this yeah and then like you never hear it again well it's one of the reasons why like i've been so devoted to Sleater Kinney that whenever they release a new record, it's just like there's they're singular. It's like always just gonna sound like Sleater Kinney mm-hmm. and like no one else will sound like them. And they've evolved. They've definitely like changed their sound through the years, but they're still always Sleater Kinney. And it's like I can't get that from anyone else. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And that works for me. You know, and I'm sure it's that way with the like certain metal bands. Like you're always just gonna sure. Paradise Lost is always gonna be Paradise Lost or or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So I had to make sure people could drink uh, this far into yeah, the Yeah, Catatonia is always going to be Catatonia. <laughs> Got to get them a couple drinks in there. So, yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting that it is such a singular sound, singular era. But um, 
basically, um, then we got mother and that's unpacking some definite issues talking about mothers and sisters and, um, you know, that main grunge punk rift and her fucking creepy little girl vocals that move into guttural screams. That's some, uh, that's really kind of some dark kind of psychoanalytical kind of shit. Uh, I, it works for me, you know, but mm-hmm. again, maybe that comes off to you like, uh, you know, like corn kind of like singing well, about like, their childhood or something, but it's, it just, it just comes across as more like the, like, uh, unrefined teenage emotion. Yeah. I think is like the, the most succinct that's, way I could say it. What it is. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I remember what, you know, going to see Pantera and I, man, I fucking felt like fucking hostile. Like, oh yeah, man, I'm, this is it. I feel I'm fucking hostile. Yeah. And I can't, any of like the raw, like emotion of that stuff I've really felt. And I, I can't go back and listen to it again. It's just weird. Like I, I think Cowboys from hell is good. I, I think uh, like some of the earlier stuff the the more power metal shit I like. Yeah, but man, the real aggro stuff—I don't, I don't get it. it I'd be really curious if we could somehow sneak in a listen of Great Southern Trend Kill. I actually, think I, I've that's never the, listened to it. That's the one that's like got grindcore parts to it. Okay. That's, that, that's where well, I'm. That's like, when Phil was wearing, you know, Dark Throne shirts and shit. Yeah, I think I think you would actually like find that record fascinating. I think it <laughs> that record—it's a lot like. Um, what was the dark or the satiricon record that everybody like kind of was annoyed with, but we kind of loved Rublik Stravaganza. Yeah. It's kind of like that in a weird way. It's just a fucking weird record. Like it okay. doesn't make sense why it is the way it is, you know, whereas I, I could see vulgar and far beyond are pretty aggro, pretty traditional. It's pretty like meat and potatoes shit. There's interesting stuff, stuff, but like, like vocally and thematically it feels yeah. um, unrefined teenage angst to me. I think Great Southern Trend Kill, they grow up a little bit, and it's also like just weirder ideas, which I think yeah. is kind of cool. Um, it's a record I don't give enough credit for, but sometimes when I hear songs, I'm like, this was weird that this was so popular. <laughs> like, it doesn't like, you is know, that the one that came in at like fucking number one or something? Far Beyond Driven did, but still, I think Great okay. Southern still did pretty well. Like five or, um, and that's back when like units were actually being mattered. sold. Yeah, that mattered a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's not like when, you know, Enslaved gets on like, you know, number 14 on the billboard charts in the u.s yeah yeah <laughs> so with fontanelle they um they bring in a new bassist maureen herman um and they sign to uh warner brothers reprise and they bring in sonic youth's lee ronaldo to do the production and both like i think him and cat kind of both helped uh produce the record and of course the the aforementioned song both from the beginning of this episode and mark and i i think talking about last talk said a little too is bruce violet and that's mm-hmm. the song that kind of kicks everything off and i think the one-two punch you're going to get from bruce violet and handsome and gretel are fucking epic these were the two songs i locked into as a kid and they still like sort of bring me this like kind of great joy um i think you know the drums what Lori does with the drumming on bruce violet is is pretty awesome uh cat's laugh that she does on both bruce violet and handsome and gretel like the, some of the sinister like laughing that like it <laughs> comes in there i mean how can you top a line that says you fucking bitch while well, i hope your insides rot i mean that's like everything a 13 year old wanted out of music when i heard this shit. oh you know totally I mean? totally and um, uh, i'll say that bruce violet i think is the best song that i've heard that they did it's it's pretty incredible it's it's hard to beat you know as far as like they they had uh, they managed to get in elements of 
like <clears throat> melody. There's variation in it. There's like a lot of aggression. There's a, like the the hook is basically her screaming. Yep. Yeah. Like it reminded me of fucking Beavis, like going off. Yeah, exactly. Which is why you know, connecting back to Beavis. That's why they love Beavis and Butthead, you know, or why Beavis and Butthead love this song so much. Yeah. Probably visceral for them, you know. Um, and according to Cat, it's not about Courtney Love. So we'll, we'll okay. just leave it. Um, now, Handsome and Gretel, quote, my name is Gretel. Yeah, I've got a crotch that talks and it talks to all their cocks. Again, as like a 14 year old, that's like hearing this, like hearing that line, I just remember being like, this is the greatest fucking song I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> like I've never heard women talk this way, like powerful women that yeah. in heavy riffs, like all of it. I was just like, this blows my fucking mind. This is the kind of like shit two live crew said, but like, I never heard a line like that in my entire life, you know? And so like, it just lays waste to any of the terrible like hair metal double entendres that were still like being per- like there's no subtlety to that it's just like boom there it is you I know think I'm maybe that's i want maybe, the sex here yeah it is. maybe that's what's um like as, as stupid as some of the later on kiss stuff at least there was like bad innuendo like log in your fireplace oh, no, kind of stuff. They're just, yeah it's just there it's it. all it's all like just you know raw naked anger and stuff and i like i was i was talking with lisa about this earlier tonight about like when um wolverine blues came out and there was just songs that just ended with fuck yeah i was like (laughs) "Ah, this sounds kind of stupid yeah (laughs) like just like blatant swearing for no like extra reason always kind of like i don't know like kind of like if you can't come up with something more clever like when, sure. I was, when I was younger, I thought it was great. Like, oh yeah, I want to hear fucking shit and all these things on these well, things. To be but fair, now, I do it seems like like they're la- a little bit lacking. But I do think it's like this idea of like being a sexually liberated person. I think they do it clever enough with like you know I've got a crotch that talks and it talks to all their cocks. Like it's, <laughs> I mean it's it's avert with what it is, but it's also like kind of smart offensive in a weird way. I don't yeah. know. You know what I mean? Like, I get what you're saying. They're not just like swearing for the sake of swearing. And I think Handsome and Gretel is like, I don't know. There's there's just other things kind of going on. And to me, like, this is where she does her best baby girl voice. When she says, oh, you feel so bad, like in that baby girl voice. Yeah. If I can blow my mind. And there's a moment. And, and, you know, maybe it's worth listening to like after the show. But like, go to the last 20 seconds of the song. And there's a moment in the last 20 seconds where like it does like the false finish where like the song like should end and like cat screams back into the song with the fucking melvin's riff and there are moments i remember driving listening to the song when i was a teenager where i fucking probably almost swerved off the road because i was just fucking like 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 beating the drums on like the steering wheel and not paying attention and so like it's like a minute and 45 seconds the whole song is but yet for it, it kind of encapsulates like whatever the the energy of the scene kind of was and it's just this really solid fucking heavy riff with like these just i don't know it's 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 probably very personal i think you know what i mean I'm, i'd be yeah. curious to talk of like to another babes in toyland fan and be like do you do you hear the song the same way and they'd probably be like fuck yeah Whereas like to an outsider, it's like, yeah, it's a fine song. It's got some cool riffs. It's got a couple Melvin's vibes, but it's just like, I've heard it for 
25 years or whatever, 30 years. And so it's like sure. in my brain, you know, on some level. So, and then you go spun and spun is, this is the one where like for newer babes in Toyland, this is very Voyavod, especially in the chorus with the drumming, the staccato, like kind of dissonant riffing. It's very moody, very dark, doomy, heavy. Um, I don't know. I think it's like underrated how heavy sometimes they were because I think so much of the attention was put on the fact that they were, you know, girls or the baby doll dresses or or whatever, you know, just all yeah. the other stuff that was going on. But like when you cut through the bullshit, there was some pretty like kind of cool, heavy stuff going on here. Um, and then to sort of wrap up Babes in Toyland stuff, we got the from the Painkillers EP. They do, uh, you probably didn't know this, but this was a re-recording of a song from uh, Spanking Machine from back in the day. Okay. Um, so my they, thing. Did, they did an Aerosmith then. They did, yes. Uh, and both versions are pretty badass, actually, I'll be honest with you. But, like, she is off the fucking rails with her her vocals here. And, like, when she does, like, the, oh, my God, it's the, um, the way she sings, like, oh, 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 own. And I can't do it with my voice because my voice is so fucking torn up right now. But it's like she like almost does this like rapping thing with it. Like, why don't you get your oh, 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 own? Like, it's like really fucking funny and yet like brilliant at the same time. Um, it's not quite like Steven Tyler scatting in like, you know, uh, Ragdoll. Kind of yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it's definitely an earworm for me. But one of the coolest things about this EP is like some of the songs on it are pretty decent. Actually, it's a pretty good EP. And it's like, it's called an EP, but the final track is a 35 minute live recording of them playing Fontanelle at CBGBs. <laughs> so it's like a 60 minute EP. Is it or a hidden whatever, track? 45. Yeah, it's not even a hidden track. It's just called track six. It's called Fontanelle. Okay. And like, it's literally a 35 minute long. And it's, they start with Bruce Violet. They end with Handsome and Gretel. It's like fucking brilliant. It's like a really great concert. And, um, so like for EPs, it's worth the price. You know what I'm saying? You get like fucking five songs plus track six is 35 minutes long. So yeah. And this is after they stopped doing vinyl for mm, most exactly. things at this point. Yep. So good stuff. And then we end with Ariel, which is um, their last record, uh, you know, Nemesis sisters. Um, not a great record. It's, it's a lot of forgettable songs. The big song off of it was sweet 69, which is actually a pretty cool song. It's very catchy. I can kind of, I, caught myself singing it a little bit but ariel kind of like spun that we just talked about before is pretty doomy it's got like kind of some eerie kind of dirge qualities to it especially in the chorus that i think is is pretty interesting mm -hmm. uh, yeah and it's their final album so like they haven't really done anything since 95 they've had some reunions since then um i talked to nick green he 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 was gonna maybe put me in touch with Lori because he had some connections and he says cat is off the radar screen she is deep into the throes of heroin yet again so at fucking like 50 something i know it's very unfortunate to hear that so Jeez. they had a reunion a few years back and it was short-lived and i think it's because of that so it's very sad to hear so um so i doubt we'll get anything ever recorded again from babes in toyland you know let alone reunions or anything like that so they basically were around for five years of recording and that's, that's kind of it, you know? So, but uh, yeah. And then we're going to end with a pair of L seven tunes, but we'll kind of talk about L seven when we come back. Cause that's like the last band that we're going to kind of chat about. So we've got um, Bruce Violet and handsome, uh, handsome and Gretel and spun all from Fontenelle from babes in Toyland. 
then a re-recording of He's My Thing from Painkillers, the 93 EP, Ariel from uh, Nemesis Sisters in 95, and then Miss 45 from L7, self-titled uh, debut in 1988, and right on through from Smell the Magic in 1990.
was right on through from L7, uh, Miss 45 from L7 as well. Then we had Ariel, uh, He's My Thing, Spun, Handsome and Gretel, and Bruce Violet from Babes in Toyland. So the last band, here we go. Um, so L7 was formed by Danita Sparks and Susie Gardner in LA in 1995. And um, Susie Gardner had actually kind of done vo- backing vocals the previous year on the Black Flag song, uh, Slip It In. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of where she sort of entered the, the you know, the punk scene, the, the L.A. scene a little bit. And I think about a year later, they brought in Jennifer Finch on bass. And of course, Jennifer Finch had been in Pagan Babies with Kat and Courtney uh, back in like 85, 84. And so it's kind of an interesting connection between those three bands that they are all at one point shared members. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's weird. How wildly how different. This stuff kind of, yeah, kind of works. Um, and Jennifer Finch, um, she was the most kind of fully tapped into the sort of L.A. punk scene uh, a little bit. And she actually knew uh, Brett Gurowitz from uh, Bad Religion mm-hmm. and also Diorant. Circle Jerks. Uh, Wasn't he in Circle Jerks Gurowitz. for a while, too? I don't that I don't know. He might have been. Um, is that where he came from before he started Bad Religion and Epitaph? Like I'm gonna have to check this real quickly. Continue. All right. So, <laughs> but yeah. So that uh, that got them kind of uh, their demo and their debut, which came out in Epitaph, and it was a self titled debut. Um, we just heard Miss Forty Five from it, and it's just you know, L.A. metallic punk. Um, it's got some feminist anger, you know, about. Uh, Miss 45, you know, like kind of standing up to the man a little bit. But I would say in terms of debuts, it's relatively, uh, it's okay. You know, I picked it up. Uh, it costs a little bit of money because it's hard to find because it's uh, low print on Epitaph. Yeah. But, um, you know, now I guess I, I own the L7 debut. So <laughs> for whatever it is. <laughs> but um, really, to me, they don't really become the band that they, they're going to become until Smell the Magic in 1990. And we, of course, already heard... Um, pair of tunes that open up the whole show from smell the magic and um that's kind of really where the band coalesced their their sound and their lineup um they bring in d placus on drums they had originally had a guy named uh roy kutsky on drums that's who played on the the debut so they actually weren't an all-girls band at first and actually they never really set out to be you know they kind of were like that was never our intention it's just whenever we tried to like hire people in our band boys didn't want to be in the band with us because like we don't want to fucking be in a band with girls and so it was a lot of that so like they just kind of had to like do what they could do you know what i mean yeah um yeah so they end up with with four women and they bring in um um trying to think who recorded this uh, I, I thought i had that written down uh, but they get shove which we open the whole show up with um they get that sort of hooked in with sub pop and it becomes the sub pop single of the month which was kind of a big deal in the early nineties. Cause sub pop was such a, you know, taste making label <clears throat> at that point. I think that got them over to Europe or something early on, didn't it? <clears throat> yeah. That got them the Nirvana tour. Basically they uh, went on tour with Nirvana, like right after bleach came out and stuff. So like, that's kind of when they befriended the band and things like that. And um, then that got them the record deal with sub pop to put out smell the magic. And, you know, you can hear it on this record and on the song, you know, right on through that it's definitely more metallic than what you heard on Miss 45. It's more attitude. Yeah. Uh, the twin guitars, um, they've got this kind of runaways kind of swagger mixed with kind of some motorhead ACDC kind of boogie to it and things. So 
they're definitely thinking in terms of like, you know, a hard rock band, you know, they're definitely mm-hmm. not as punky as they were probably on the, the early stuff. Um, and yeah, like you said, that's kind of, um, they became close friends with Nirvana before Nirvana kind of broke punk. Um, and they stayed friends with them after. In fact, it's Jennifer Finch who kind of reacquainted Courtney with, uh, Kurt, um, okay. led to, led to magic as they say, Mark, ah, then, then you could smell it. You could smell the magic indeed. And that got him signed um, after they put out uh, Smell the Magic. This gets him signed to Slash Records, which I believe was what the label you know, Faith No More was on and, and some other kind of, I think it was a sub-label of Elektra, I think. I can't remember what Slash uh, was. I think it was it all under Warner Brothers. <laughs> Maybe it was Warner Brothers. Yeah, that's what it was. I knew it was okay. something big. Um, Gerwitz was not, I, I was full of shit about that. I thought I heard oh. something about him being part of Circle Jerks for half a second, but, you know, I know everybody hey, was waiting with bated breath to more find you know. that out. Right. And NBC <laughs> was right. The more you know. And now we know that Brett Gurowitz was not in Circle Jerks. So not even not even for a second. Not even for a second. But he wasn't bad religion. And that it's counts true. for something. So I really like uh I really he co-wrote, like he co-wrote the song Spun. Oh, he did? No, he didn't. It was no, not that song. Sorry. Oh um I'm gonna have to reopen close tab now. I just I saw it got some knowledge and then I I thought I thought you were forgotten that he reopened uh that he uh co-wrote spun from Babes in Toyland. I was like, no, it's uh connections are weird. Shit. Uh he co-wrote the song Scrap on Bricks Are Heavy. Oh, okay. There you go. Cool. Yeah. So yeah, so he's obviously you know friends with them and stuff, which is cool. And um basically around that time too, after they get signed to Slash Records, they uh help co-found the Rock for Choice benefit shows, which was mm-hmm. a kind of a pro-choice kind of thing. Um and then like every any band that was anything was doing those things like you know yeah every every huge band that was at Lollapalooza and all that shit but I think it's cool that they were like co-founders of it too like it wasn't just that they were playing it but they were like kind of part of the the building of that and it kind of helps kind of the the spirit of like what a lot of these bands were trying to stand up for you know um well they they always kind of had like a like a fun vibe but they but they they stood up for more you know they were more kind of political with their causes and stuff yeah, and I think there's uh, there's something I'm going to read from the Despel interview where they kind of talk about how, like, you don't have to, like, sing political, but, like, the way you live your life is, like, how you can be political, too. Like, yeah. just your values and your ethics and things like that, the choices you kind of make. Um, speaking of kind of the pro-choice kind of thing, one co- kind of cool story for, for people that don't know it is um, – so Kurt was hanging out with Kathleen Hanna and with Toby, and they were um, – actually like spying on a abortion clinic um and it was an abortion clinic that anti-abortion people had set up as a fake abortion clinic (laughs) jesus and so basically what it was it was a way to like lure like women in and then they would like shame you and talk to you about like how terrible it would be for you to get an abortion and all this kind of stuff try to get you to, to come to god and yeah all that kind of stuff and so they were basically like kind of trolling it and waiting for it for to like close. And then they basically did like some graffiti and like spray paint on it. And that's the night like Kurt, like, like spray paint it, like God is gay and things like that on it Mm -hmm. and stuff. But anyways, they went back um, to uh, like their place, wherever they were staying, they're squatting somewhere or whatever. And they had spray paint still. And they were like kind of getting fucked up and all that stuff. And that's when Kathleen Hanna with the spray paint from like, you know, kind of, you know, housing or casing this like abortion or anti-abortion clinic or whatever spray paints Kurt 
Kurt smells like teen spirit on the wall. <laughs> and he didn't know it was a women's deodorant at the time, but he thought it was a cool fucking sounding thing. And so that kind of was the the impetus for the idea right there. Um, so I don't know. I thought that was a kind of a cool little connection. But yeah, speaking of rock for choice, there's the other uh, abortion story that deals with this episode, I guess. Um, and this gets them kind of in contact with uh, Butch Vig and Butch Vig is going to record uh, Bricks Are Heavy, their 92 sort of album. And um, I want to read. He was in garbage, right? He eventually. Yeah. So okay. he'll do he'll do Nevermind in 91 and then he'll do, um, you know, Bricks Are Heavy. And he does quite a few like kind of big records in the early 90s. And then what do you do oh. before Nirvana? What did he do? Production wise, because he's got a pretty, pretty huge. I can't think of. I've seen him like on so many talking head things, but. And I'm trying to remember what he did that got him the Nirvana gig, but he had done at least a couple things, you know? Um, Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to like, look that up. Uh, Maybe in the next talk set, I can kind of look it up real quick, but um, yeah, but this record bricks are heavy. This is kind of their, their breakthrough record in a lot of ways. And it was inducted into the decibel hall of fame um, way back in, Boy, 2014, Mark. Um, I'm going to tell you what your lead review was. Illustration. I don't think it, I was. Was I doing them then? Oh yeah, in 2014, for sure you were. What year? What the? Uh, what number? Issue 121. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. I totally. I, yeah, I forget. I've been doing this for like 15 years. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it was right around when we started Requiem that because uh, we interviewed Albert and kind of got got the gig. I think hooked up then. Um, yeah, you did Godflesh, Suns Out, Guns Out. So okay. uh, for a world nice. lit only by fire. So it's the burning crosses from Street Cleaner in the background. And uh, G- GC is holding the the flame. And Justin's just kind of sitting there. Okay. They're not sitting there, standing there. Yeah, it's cool. Oh, it's shit. Fine. Okay. Real quick on Butch Vig. Yeah, tell me. Tell me more. Uh, we got a Michigan connection here. Laughing Hyenas. Okay. John, John Brandon, previously of Negative Approach, uh, he did their 1985 record, Come Down to the Merry-Go-Round. It killed those or De Crimson, oh, um, nice. several of them. Did he? Um, House of Pain, Shamrocks and Shenanigans, Sonic Youth, Dirty. Uh, oh, yeah, I knew he did Dirty. Yeah, that's the one I was kind of thinking. Tad, of. Eight-Way Santa, Smashing okay. Pumpkins, Gish. Like, yep. he, he was some, some fucking big hitters here. Yeah. I mean, Shamrocks and Shenanigans is my favorite House and Pain song. To be real, we could do a whole. I mean, that was a pretty. That was a kind of a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, Jump Around is great, but Shamrocks and Shenanigans. I mean, that's got a line in it, Mark, that says, "You make me sick like strawberry quick." And <laughs> I, I really, in, to, in the great pantheon of lyrics, I just it's hard to beat that. You know. Yeah. So um, he also did the last two Foo Fighter records. Oh, okay. I knew that. Or no, I guess no. He did "Wasting Light" and "Sonic Highways." They probably, I think they have another one after that, right? Yeah, I think they, they've done one since. Okay, but yeah, yeah, he's got a pretty prolific career of this type of music. I mean, just the just the residuals he makes off "Nevermind." Oh, he doesn't I, need to do anything anymore. <laughs> you know, that's probably why he's like, "I'm just going to start a band, and if they suck, who cares?" And, yeah, you know. and then they became like fucking huge, pretty big. I saw Garbage Life. They opened for Smashing Pumpkins when I saw them at. Uh, I think the palace when I was in high school, 96. Okay. Yeah. So I crowd surfed, got to high five. I think either Darcy, I think it was Darcy from Sanction Pumpkins. So, you know, 
again, when you're in high school, it's a big deal. So, <laughs> but uh, Jean Fury uh, did the Hall of Fame, and I wanted to read what she wrote as kind of the intro piece to the Hall of Fame, and then read a couple of uh, just choice passages from it real quick, uh, so we could kind of get through this. I still can't believe that was that long ago. I know. I thought Fucking. that was only a couple years ago. What that this was in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I think a lot of the decibel stuff is like bled together for me in a weird way. Twenty fourteen. So, yeah, yeah, they're talking. Okay. Maybe the they, they did like a reunion tour or something. That... So it has a book excerpt from the Peter Steele book from Jeff Wagner. No, and it's second printing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the cover is at the gates, and it says, "Can the Swedish death metal kings top slaughter the soul?" So this was just about where their comeback record was going to come out. Okay. So that's Jesus. that's that's a time and a place, right? Yeah, yeah, be interesting. Um, so Gene says we can debate at length about what caused the demise of hair metal and the rise of the so-called grunge era in the early '90s, but one thing is indisputable: the latter's mainstream takeover was absolute. From the radio to the runway, America had had its fill of glam ham and was increasingly obsessed with waifish anti-rock stars who slung gloomy dirges and ugly noise. Not coincidentally, this cultural sea change foretold a shifting political climate. The Reagan-Bush reign of the 80s would come to a close in 93, with the swearing in of President Bill Clinton, and not before the U.S. went to war abroad, the invasion of Panama, the Gulf War, and fumbled its way through the Iran-Contra scandal. There was also loads of strife at home. Women's reproductive rights were being threatened by anti-choice clans. AIDS was a full-blown crisis. Reaganomics made the rich ridiculously richer. Homelessness surged, and the crack epidemic caused a spike in violent crime. One can see how platinum-selling, spandex-clad dudes scissor-kicking their way through mounds of blow and boobs could be considered out of touch. And yet, while the newest crop of MTV-endorsed bands were unabashed feminists who leaned hard to the left, their music didn't overtly reflect their political views. That is, until L7 stepped forward. Guitarist singers Danita Sparks and Susie Gardner, bassist singer Jennifer Finch and drummer Dee Plackis, were products of the L.A. punk scene <clears throat> who radiated brute strength, shrewdness, and a scathing sense of humor. There was a toughness to them, an impenetrability that both genuinely fearsome and completely fucking awesome, or that was both genuinely fearsome and completely fucking awesome. L7 were acutely attuned to the turbulent sociopolitical climate. Of major alternative albums of the early 90s, it's hard to find one as brazenly political as L7's third release and major label de debut on Slash Reprise, Bricks Are Heavy. Bricks aired a variety of grievances, patriotism as pornography, girls getting bullied in mosh pits, dickhead exes, and societal apathy. L7 paired their contempt with a thicker, heftier, more melodic sound than their previous release, 1990s hardcore punk ambush, Smell Magic. The move paid off. Of its many critical accolades, Bricks reached number one on Billboard's Heat Seekers album chart and peaked at 160 on the Billboard 200. The single Pretend We're Dead hit number eight on the Modern Rock Tracks chart. More than 20 years later, Bricks Are Heavy remains startlingly relevant and badass. The reason is not only because we as a society failed to dig our heads out of the crapper, it's also because songwriting of this caliber is immune to trends and expiration dates. L. Stebbins still felt like a fresh threat. Now get in the pit, but don't cross the line. So that's the the intro piece. And I think you, you know, kind of would disagree a little bit with maybe some of the timelessness of this, in your opinion, you said. Uh, yeah, but that's, you know, that's my opinion. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, lots of uh, yeah. people involved with 
you know, a magazine I've been a part with for years think differently, but that's, that's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I think pretend we're dead. We're not playing it. Cause it's, it's really kind of like a pop song in a lot of ways. I mean, it's not poppy, but it's, it's got hooks and poppiness to it. It, that that song when I hear it still brings like it still brightens my day a little bit. It's it's like it's the song, you know, for them. Yeah, uh, I think it's kind of uh, unrepresentative of the rest of the record. That's the thing. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I was like, yeah, you know, like not sure. Like um, I, I think that's why they the management or the record label probably picked that because it was probably the easiest, like most digestible thing they were doing. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to read a couple like quick quotes from the actual interview that I think are interesting. Um, Gene asked them, I think it's the second question. She says, Decibel had wanted to induct Bricks back in 2012 in our women in metal issue, but you turned it down. And uh, Danita Spark says, we don't do women in music issues. So we're already fucking up with this, Mark, by the way, Mark, just so you know. Um, I think it's silly. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. I, we, <laughs> like, we I think good up. music's good music. Exactly. Um, this is this is uh, highlighting a, a specific thing. That's yeah. That's that's what we're doing. You know, we're this is not like a, a be all end all mm-hmm. treatise on, you know, women and music. No, I know. You know I was like just, a, I was I was just poking fun at us for oh, for failing to. <laughs> she goes. I think it's silly. When I first when I was first approached about that, I was not told that it was a women in rock or metal or whatever issue. I thought we were getting inducted because we were a good band. Decibel certainly didn't mean to offend, but that's just been kind of our policy. We don't care for women and music issues. If you're always categorized due to something that doesn't necessarily have to do with anything, it's frustrating. You're never in the big leagues if you're always thrown into these categories. Susie Gardner says, yeah, pigeonholing doesn't let the band stand on their own as what they are. It's identifying as gender first and musician later. It's annoying. It's not just about us. It's about all the gals who rock. We want to be known for what we are, for being rockers versus having pussies. I used to get asked a lot, what's it like being a gale in a band? I don't know. I've never been a boy in a band. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And then I mean, I, I, I kind of feel I have a similar sentiment to that, but yes, exactly. It's uh, but there, you know, it's a, it's weird because, you know, trying, trying to spotlight something in a way that's, that's trying to show like underrepresented people. Sometimes you get, you know, it kind of bounces back and like, Oh, okay. Well, we're, we sound like we don't understand or something, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they ask another question. They said, uh, Bricks came out during the height of grunge. The mainstream made the jump from hair metal to sub pop sound. What do you remember about that cultural shift? And uh, Spark says, because we were pretty tight with Nirvana, we saw what was happening with them, the trajectory. It was kind of like, oh, wow, we're getting on this right. Uh, we're getting on this ride, too. That time was interesting because metal was all of the sudden not in vogue. It felt triumphant in a way because so much metal, I'm not saying all of it, was stock, played out, and misogynistic. It felt like this big dragon had been defeated, and this new sensibility came into rock, which was more diverse and cool. It wasn't just white guys with long hair playing, that's the the sound that she makes. Um, All kinds of people were playing heavier stuff who looked more like freaks or more like regular guys next door. The lip gloss was gone. And Gardner says, I was happy that the alternate grunge era happened so there was more variety. And also, you might not have been uh, noticed for being a heavy rock band unless you were kind of mainstreamish metal. There was another genre opening up. As far as being in it, it was a whirlpool, making that sub-pop single shove, then the EP, Smell the Magic, then the Epitaph self-titled punk rock record. It's easier in retrospect to look back and go, wow, what a trip. We lucked out so hardcore. 
as much as persistence in part uh, of being in a rock band, just making it through rehearsals without ripping each other's hair out. I mean, we got along really well. There were so many others trying obstacles that came along. It just takes a certain ridiculous persistence. It's just very fortuitous. So um, it's kind of weird that the Smell the Magic's referred to as a punk record when it sounds like Fu Manchu. Oh, it's definitely got those kind of big fucking meaty riffs to it. I, I mean, I it's got like, uh, uh, Jesus, what the fuck's the band? Uh, they ain't no cure for the summertime blues. Um, oh, big, uh, blue cheer. Blue, yeah, it's, it's got heavy blue cheer vibe. Like, I don't hear a thing punk rock about it. I think it's because they came from the punk scene. I think, so that, yeah, yeah. I think that's always just going to be kind of tagged on them a little bit. But yeah, to me, it's like more of like a. It's like calling St. Vitus a punk band. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just because they're an Because, like, yeah, just like whatever that, you know, pedal setup and amp setup they have is just like, Jesus, this just sounds like Blue Cheer and Fu Manchu and that whole kind of, you know, before the stoner thing became kind of a stereotype of itself. Oh, for sure. Well, and they ask him, this is the last thing I was going to read. It says, the album, uh, Gene asks, this album is heavier than Smell of Magic. Was Bricks influenced by heavy metal? See, Mark, you always read my mind. Um, <laughs> Spark says, oh, for sure. Susie and I very early on love Hawkwind and Motorhead. Susie was very into Black Sabbath. I liked a lot of metal songs, the distortion, the muffle, downstroke tone, the mm -hmm. tones of our lead guitars, even though we didn't indulge in the sort of doodly 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 a lot. We either got really out there chaos on our leads or we got melodic, singable, hummable riffs. We didn't go for that in-between stuff. You know, it was really cool. We got a lot of love from the metal scene and that wasn't really our scene per se. We were on the cover of Kerrang!, I felt support from that scene, even though before that, I thought it was kind of a misogynistic scene, but I felt like we got some love there. It was a nice surprise. And then Gardner says, I have to say, if I make it to the uh, make it to 90, I'll still be listening to Black Sabbath. I saw Black Sabbath in my local auditorium at 15 and put my head into the speaker on substances and almost blew my hearing. <laughs> um, Mahogany Rush, Black Sabbath. I grew up on that stuff, but I also grew up on the blues. No, nobody ever talks about Mahogany Rush. No, I know. That's a cool little get. Um, Motorhead, Deep Purple, these kind of things. But I also love Black Flag and the Ramones. And then uh, Finch says, my plane has always been influenced by heavy rock. My musical taste has always been influenced by heavy metal. I still go see Cannibal Corpse when they play. So, <laughs> so there you go. That's a little bit from the Decibel Hall of Fame there, you know. But yeah, no, it is. Uh, Mahogany Rush does not get name dropped very often. I can't remember what their... I, I've heard like a couple there. Let's some of those bands when I was working at the record store, we put one on. I was like, oh, there's some more right stuff on here. I think I put them in the history of heavy metal countdown, but I can't remember what the songs were offhand. It's not ringing a bell. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't tell you a single song, but I remember like just pulling it out and asking the uh, manager of the place at the time, like, what the, what the fuck is this? Like, check it out, dude. There's some cool stuff on here. Like, oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, so we got four tunes from Bricks Are Heavy. They're kind of cool. their masterpiece, I would say. Um, you got Wargasm, um, very much kind of Dead Kennedy's kind of grim humor here. You know, this idea of getting off on war, the sort of masturbatory nature of like, you know, masculinity being attached to like killing people and some of that sort of stuff. I think yeah. it's kind of a Pro profit a of the war machine, too. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's like the, the idea of the wargasm sounds like something like fucking Jello Biafra would kind of come up with and is like yeah. twisted by the holiday in Cambodia or something like that, you know. Um, great grinding riff, re really cool kind of riff there. Um, speaking of riffs and, and doom and Sabbath, uh, Diet Pill has that like Sabathian riff that's fucking awesome. Um, 
I think one of the things I do appreciate about L7 is how underrated the two lead guitar players are. I think they do like a lot of really cool, like dual leads that are really tasteful. Mm-hmm. They're not like, you know, trying to do anything too flashy, but like. Well, a lot of this cool. like predates uh, uh, the Queens of the Stone Age. Exactly. Yeah, a, lot of that, a lot of that vibe, you know. Yep. This sort of simplicity, but like musicality at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and there's a lot of killer mini leads throughout Diet Pill. They just kind of like fluctuate in and out. And I think that's pretty awesome. Um, especially the ending lead in the song is, is also pretty cool. So, um, and then we get Everglade, one of the first, you know, again, another political song. This one's the aforementioned one that uh, Jean mentioned in the uh, her intro about uh, it's about a Southern girl going to a concert and kind of getting thrown around in the pit by a bunch of like fun, you know, bro culture dudes and kind of standing up for herself and basically saying like, no, like, you know, I'm not, you're not going to do this. And uh, so that's cool. That's kind of a, you know, protecting yourself in the pit and kind of a sort of a pit feminist anthem maybe. And, you know, that's something I know, like, you know, you and I and Lisa, when we saw carcass uh, had to deal with a lot of that kind of stupid, you know, um well, go back to the Tom Mariah, you know, if you see him if you see him, somebody go down on the pit man, help him up, right? But just there's obnoxious people that sometimes don't like read the room of the people they're kind of near sometimes. And yeah, I think like with with uh Pantera was the worst when I you know got trampled in a pit. Any yeah, of the other ones, cool. it was more the you know, the Tom Mariah thing, like you know, we're all in this together, like so you see somebody go down, you help them out. Yep, absolutely. That's kind of what happened at the Morbid Angel show is that recently, like the pit kind of opened up pretty wide, but people were for the most part looking out for each other, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we get shit list. This is a uh, one that like I first heard this uh, from the natural born killer soundtrack before I picked up bricks are heavy. Um, this is definitely it, got some, some jello Biafra warbleisms on the vocals. Yeah. The sort of emotive, metallic fury of this song is 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 great and uh they actually use this for a uh, wrestling entrance anthems for a couple wrestlers um one in the 90s and then one in the 2000s which Who, is what wrestlers um trying to think of the one in the 90s oh it was um oh fuck brian pillman um i don't know who that is he he was in WCW. He had blonde hair. He was actually a tag team partner with uh, stunning Steve Austin before Steve Austin Ooh. went to the WWE and became uh, Stone Cold. Okay. Um, Pillman actually died pretty young. He died in like 1997. Um, drugs, pain pills, some of that kind of stuff. Steroid but, abuse. Uh, but he was a really fantastic wrestler, like really good. Um, I think he would have done really well in the Attitude Era. But um, his son wrestles now, I think, in uh, AEW. But um, yeah, I think. But uh, yeah, he was like part of like the Heart Foundation faction with like Brett the Hitman Hart and mm-hmm. uh, Bulldog and, and some of that crew for a while. But um, and then um, a guy named John Moxley uh, when he was on the indie scenes and he became Dean Ambrose for a while in WWE. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. He was, he's like a newer big guy. He's really huge in AEW right now. Um, okay. one of the I, it guys. always feels weird when the, the wrestlers are just like somebody's name. Yeah, I know. I like mean, I'm, I'm, I'm back, you know, the era of like, you know, ravishing Rick rude and oh, Bruce the artist beefcake. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like all this stuff. And then when it, like the, the attitude era was where I was like, I was no, I was an adult watching wrestling yeah. and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Right. Yep. 
Yeah, uh, you, that, it's, you, it's like it's crazy how that how I can't believe how resilient that that shit is. It's pretty amazing because like I was way out of it even before the Attitude Era. Like I was out of it by like ninety one, um, yeah. and I skipped the whole Attitude Era. But then uh, I would just watch it occasionally on TV. I wasn't really following it, but I knew enough to like know wrestlers and stuff. It's more it's more now like the curiosity of like kind of like i don't watch it regularly i i record raw but i don't watch it unless i hear that there's something worth watching but i listen to like wrestling podcasts mm-hmm. so it's like it's like people who like keep up with soap operas but they don't always watch the soap operas i just want to know what the plot is <laughs> like comic books or something like i don't have to read it sure. monthly but as long as i just kind of know what the characters are up to and then like when they have pay-per-views i'll watch that because like whatever that's where the good stuff happens that's where the good shit is exactly you know so but yeah shitless there you go great uh great tune then we end with a, a pair of tunes from their 1994 record hungry for stink and this was um you know this is a big record for me because this is 94 i'm at like peak buying music at this point you know and i'm buying everything i'm seeing on mtv and headbangers ball and so i saw the video for andre and i was like oh here we go. And I think at that point I'd gotten bricks or heavy on cassette tape used at new moon. And so I kind of knew who L seven were and I was, I was kind of here for it. And so, um, I like this record. It's, I know you probably only listened to the two songs, but the whole record holds up still pretty well. I think even Jess mentioned it in her little piece that he, she recorded that this was a big record for her as well. Um, I mean, Andreas, it's just, you know, catchy, uh aggressive noisy leads kind of fun stuff but baggage is just fucking doomy sludgy the way she screams baggage and that fucking chorus is just like pained it's uh it's it's pretty good stuff you don't hear that from them too often but um yeah just acidic vocals real classic kind of like iggy stooges kind of guitar solo that's pretty good in Mm -hmm. this as well so um yeah not a lot i mean it's it's oh seven's just very um I think if you like them, you like them. If you don't like them, it's just sort of not like. There's nothing offensive about L7, I would say, right? Like it's no, not it's, like, I mean, but it's it's kind of um, there's a lot of meat and potatoes there. Yeah, they're they're like kind of like got an ACDC Motorhead kind of vibe to them on some level. Like I can see where, and some people probably find those bands kind of repetitive and boring. And uh, well, I get and that. there's also like you know, uh, they're kind of like a good time band. Yeah, it's how I'd, I would associate them, and I normally don't like good time bands. I no. like bands that are fucking miserable, or that if it's like a good. I, I'm trying to think of like what is a good time band I like. Uh, I don't know. Is, would you consider like Fu Manchu and some of that stuff good time bands? Is that too good time, or is that heavy enough that it? Yeah, I, mean, I guess I guess so. But like, I don't. I I feel like Fu Manchu is one of those weird things where it's not um i feel like they've got like a a vibe they're like a they sound remind me of like a rise above band or something like where they they're like this very specific thing where they just talk about it's like dismember like they talk about murder and death and you know stuff but it's not like there's never anything personal to any of their stuff yeah that's true that's true it's it's like very you know just kind of like i don't know 15 year old boy type (laughs) stuff before not even 15 like 11 year old boy stuff like i'm into robots and i like boogie bands and um <laughs> but it doesn't it, i don't know it, it feels more timeless to me yeah but that's just that's purely my own my own thing but yeah. but they're definitely one of those bands i've always had a hard time with silliness and punk rock um, yeah. back then i don't have a problem with it now 
But like when I was younger, I thought everything needed to be, I thought Entombed was dead serious. But they were totally not dead serious. They were, no, you know, very tongue in cheek. They're talking about fucking evil dead shit. And like it was, there's nothing serious about anything they did. I yeah. thought all this stuff was completely dead serious because I was a young, I was a teenager that never <laughs> knew what any of this stuff was from mid Michigan, you yeah. know, like the, the suburbs of middle class life. <laughs> like this seemed like, wow, this is fucking, this, this shit's fucking crazy. They're from Sweden. What's from Sweden? Like nobody knew Ikea. Like we, we just knew. I mean, I guess. I guess Abba. like pretend we're dead, like kind of has like that good timey feel to it. But I, I you know, I don't know. I, there's some like kind of venom in some of like baggage and shit lists like here and there. But sure. uh, but I, I threw, I think I threw them more in like that whole, like the white zombie thing, which seemed more like kind of party music. Maybe that's a better term for it. Like I didn't, it didn't make me want to like reflect on the lyrics on okay. any of this stuff. Like, like if I was listening to like, like a ministry song seemed to be more serious to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I think they, like I said, I think they hide their politics more in their, like their interviews and, and things like that. Sure. And they know? were, but they were also really like in interviews and stuff. They're like, they're engaging and funny and they didn't seem serious at yeah. all. It seemed like a fun band. They're a party, you know, they're kind of a party band in a lot of And at of that ways. point, when I was when I was a younger kid, I thought like I, I don't have any I don't have any space for party bands. This is all serious. This is fucking serious this is a heart attack. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, but then you hear like the tampon story and some of that stuff, and yeah. you realize, okay, they're they're like real fucking hardcore punk rockers, you know, um, in terms of their attitude and their Iggy popisms and stuff, you know. Well, and they're, you know, in the nineties, I didn't know what the fuck I I didn't understand punk rock music i understood what it sounded like but i didn't understand the political stuff i didn't like i was you know we growing up in like the midwest it's not it's a pretty like mellow area like you're you're seeking out extremity because you don't yeah. have any in your life <laughs> yeah, you're trying to like create causes you know yeah you don't like just trying to understand the stuff like i didn't i didn't know anything about shit from Shinola at that point but um yeah so i i couldn't unless it was blatant i didn't identify it unless yeah. it was like like something like napalm talking about nazi punks fuck off which at the time i don't even think i knew was a cover i was like oh yeah. that's a bad thing that's good that they're talking bad about it sure yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess it'd be like a thing where i'd be curious and i think you know jess spoke to it a little bit but i think she heard she heard the stuff in it you know what i mean so sure. i think like maybe a I don't know if i did i'll be honest i'm not saying i did it by any means because i don't know if i was looking for it but i think like if you know the right audience especially maybe the the sort of female audience that was into punk or heavier music maybe you were like okay i get what diet pills talking about like i get you know like oh sure like what i was subtle nods or things that are hidden messages or whatever for sure like when i was looking for stuff that was like anti what i thought like okay slayer awesome i went to catholic uh i went to you know i was a cat raised catholic i mm. hated going to church i hated the doctrine I wanted like that made sense to me. It was very easy, like you yeah, know, Jesus saves spoke to you, you know, anti-Catholicism. It's, yeah. it, I mean, it, it, you know, as a you know, almost fifty-year-old man, it's 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 pretty simplistic ideas about a lot of the stuff too. But at the time, it like that really hit home, and sure. uh, there wasn't a whole lot of subtlety. I think in my yeah, yeah. my life at that point, I was like, <laughs> it was like on or think, off. I, I was gonna <laughs> say, I think teenage boys are very unsubtle in a lot of ways, you know. Um, 
No, we, we don't know shit. We're, we're just trying to figure things out. We're trying to figure out where, what our place is in the world. One well, testosterone is pumping through your body all the time. And you're just you're, fucking you're changing. Like, yeah, you're trying to figure out what it, you know, what is it, what does it mean to be like a good man? Like, yeah. uh, what, what, what are ethics and all this stuff? It's easier just to, you know, listen to Andrew Dice Clay records and, you know, fart on each other and, you know, have the occasional beer. There you go. There you go. Well said. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into it so we can kind of wrap things up here and say our goodbyes when we come back. We've got uh, Wargasm, Diet Pill, Everglade, and Shitless from Bricks Are Heavy from 1992. And then from 1994's Hungry for Stink, we've got Andre and Baggage.
That was Baggage, Andre, Shitlist, Everglade, Diet Pill, and Wargasm. And so, uh, yeah, we kind of wrap this up, this kind of crazy uh, Patreon takeover experiment. Um, you know, hopefully we did these bands some justice and maybe, you know, got you a little bit of interest. Perhaps there's some some new discoveries, uh, either old or, or kind of 90s era um, that people kind of dug on, you know. Um, hey, you know, Mark found whole, you know, so anybody can find anything. You know? We can all find true it's love probably, somewhere it's probably, it's probably the last thing you would have expected from the no, show, but... You know, it's, it's funny because, I don't know, it doesn't surprise me because, like, you like good music and once you like once the artifice of like some of that stuff like goes away like holes objectively just a good band regardless of what your feelings towards the participants are you know yeah so uh yeah so it's just interesting because i was like i thought i was gonna have to come in here and be like oh man it's just gonna be like mark's not gonna like hole or courtney love or you know i mean i had no Mm -hmm. idea what your feelings were from that era because like we weren't really hanging out when all that shit was like going on so I was kind of like, well, you know, I, I know I can defend Courtney Love because I, I kind of, you know, am a, always been an apologist. But, um, yeah, so that's pretty funny. But, um, but yeah, L7 ended with uh, two last records in the 90s. Um, you know, they kind of faded a bit after Hungry for Stink. They did do um, a beauty process, triple platinum in 97, and they actually filmed kind of like a mini movie for it that Chris Novosav- Chris novel Salik from nirvana um actually filmed for them and it was kind of like playing on the idea of like being like a corporate kind of like rock band that had gone triple platinum and it's it's pretty interesting it's on the dvd special features that i have yeah so i watched a little bit of it but um that was something that me and lisa were talking about like what the fuck happened to chris Novoselic? yeah i mean he's living off residuals um but like he's he's been like some uh, some forgettable bands yeah he definitely was not the songwriter of the band that's for no, sure i mean you can definitely tell that you know that Grohl and <laughs> yeah kurt were the, that kurt were the guys yeah. but it's um, just like yeah he's just like some kind of old bald guy with a mustache yeah. he looks like some weird dude that hangs out at the public library or something yeah. now, but he's, yeah. he's probably doing pretty well with his residuals still um he was on a song he was on a foo fighters record uh probably a decade or so ago and on a couple of really good songs actually like he kind of did some vocal hooks there so okay you know dave just gets him a little work when he can or you know whatever just yeah. like friends helping each other out a little bit like yeah hey, well, i mean none of those guys need to work again daily no they're, they're all doing fine you know yeah. so but um yeah beauty process triple platinum um and slap happy these are kind of the two records that end the 90s and that's pretty much it for L7 until recently. They've actually uh, reformed in recent years and they put out a pretty good record in 2019, I think it was. I actually listened to a few songs from it. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, this is half bad. Um, but um, Slap Happy, I never had. Um, I think I had Beauty Process or at least I listened to it or a friend had it. Um, but I mean, I this really... one, like the song Drama is just, it sounds like Helmet. Oh, it's fucking earworm for me, man. It's it's all yeah, the fucking solos are fierce in it at times. Um that's good. I didn't even think of helmet. That's, that's oh, just that that riff, just like a dan it, dan it, dan like that very like just dead simple riff. Yeah. I don't think anybody did it as pure as Helmet did. And it no. just started I mean, they basically did one record that way, then everything else kind of like, you know, Betty changed completely. Yeah, but uh, that's that one like meantime record. Like, I can't believe how influential that fucking thing was. Yeah, no, you're right. 
That's good that you said that because I never would have picked up on that. I just like I thought drama was like kind of earwormy and catchy in my brain the last yeah. like, week or so. But it's probably the helmet parts of it. So <laughs> but uh And that was yeah. like meantime was nine what was that ninety three? Uh ninety two, I think. Ninety two? Okay. Betty was like ninety five, right? Uh ninety four. But yeah. Okay. But yeah, um, that, I mean that and Sepultura just like blew up everybody's Fucking yeah, those, those are you know. records for sure. Um, yeah, it's weird the people you talk to now that like got into Helmet that like shouldn't have gotten into Helmet. And you're just like, huh? They just they know that song, you know? They mm-hmm. know like um, un, uh, unsung and you know, yeah. It's like so. Well, but, see, I've seen them like Sepultura, Ministry, and Helmet in one show at Van Andel and like fucking what was it? I don't know, ninety four maybe incredible <laughs> yeah I bet. that was probably 93 even it might have been yeah might have been because that was kind of ksad it was 93 mm-hmm. you know so well i saw that sepultura twice that year okay because they played with um they played with fear factory and fudge tunnel as well oh. God. that was in flint damn it that sounds fun sounds like a good deal fun it was just like that was that that era is kind of what how i felt like how other people thought about the indie like the alternative rock era yeah because those really weird like all those band none of those bands sound alike but they had some type of i don't know some similarity that some somehow they work together when he's like when they were on a package tour it's just like jesus man this is yeah. this is crazy yeah no and i think i think eh, it's so weird for me because like by like 93, 94, I was doing both. Mm-hmm. And so it all made sense to me. Like, so it's all always been that like, to me, like I had mixtapes that were Bruce Violet, Wolverine blues, like fear factory song, helmet song. Like that was, that was how my brain was working. I, and I would throw like carcass heartwork on there too. Mm-hmm. And like that was how, I thought of this whole era, like it was all just good music that was heavy. It didn't relate to each other necessarily, but it was like, it was all in the same club, you know? And I didn't yeah. know anybody. I didn't know that like, Oh, okay. Death metal people don't like this. And these people don't like this. I just was like, I don't know. It's on headbangers ball. It's on the concrete corner tapes. It's on mm-hmm. whatever, like it all, I like what I liked you know, at the time. I didn't really know what what I was supposed to like and not like, and that's pretty cool, actually. What's well, how Fudge Tunnel? It was on earache, but it didn't sound. It sounded like, you know, not anything that should be on earache. Yeah, yeah. It was just like fuck. This is heavy as shit. Like this sounds awesome. Um, I never at that point. I think we were we didn't really care about genre tags quite so much. It was neat that we like. There was something that we were really into that other people liked too. Yeah. Nobody'd fucking heard of. Like like Fudge Tunnel was one of those bands for a lot of a lot of people are like, Oh, you like uh I don't know, fucking Jesus Lizard or whatever it might have been. Some more like underground heavy thing, like, oh check this out. I was like, Oh, this is fucking great. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a it's a good times, man. And that's it seems like we go back to this era quite a bit for a lot of reasons, you know, both mm-hmm. in the extreme metal scheme and, and other things, because it just was a pretty fascinating time to like kind of unpack for sure. You know, yeah. so, but uh, thanks to Jess for uh, being a, a donator, uh, obviously as a Patreon and doing the, the matching donations last summer and uh, really 
contributing a lot. We do appreciate all that. And uh, thanks for giving us the task of having to put this, this pain in the ass episode together. It's, uh, it's a big one. Sharp. Yeah. It keeps us sharp, you know, mm-hmm. it keeps us on toes a little bit. Um, if well, you would it's like, good, it's good to do any, like any of these things that, that seem semi out of left field for what we normally do. It, it kind of all makes sense. Like it's just, you know, I could, I could talk about the Eagles for three hours, but I wouldn't be super happy about it. No, me neither. Me neither. Yeah, I could. So I just like talking like music, contextualizing music is really a thrill to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think, yeah, I like being given like a little bit of a challenge because it's like mm-hmm. fun, like figure out the pot, the puzzle of how this stuff fits together. Cause I know it does. Like I, I know well, we always my- get surprised about one thing or one band or one thing about a certain thing we're talking about. Like, I would not have expected that's where I would have been drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I'm trying to think if there was a something on here, I guess maybe for me, it was, I was really kind of getting into X again. That was kind of mm-hmm. like really drawing me in a bit. Um, let's see, looking through um, most of the other stuff. I kind of was already more or less a fan of, I would say um, not too many. The gets, you know, I always like to kind of be forced to like pull them out. And then it just kind of, I think, reaffirmed my appreciation for how, like, good Live Through This is as a record. I was like, okay, yeah, it's still good. Yeah, I was doing more historical stuff outside of uh, song analysis on this one. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, which was interesting. So, like, and then that, that guy, like, Lisa, that she was, like, reading some or listening to an audiobook about uh, the whole Riot Girl thing oh, as cool. well. So, like, us talking about it encouraged her to, like, dive deeper into you know, remembering stuff. And it's like, it was just all, all around a good experience. That's great. Yeah. I'm glad uh, that Jess got to force us to go on this memory lane <laughs> and for her. I hope she's proud of the episode and enjoys yeah. it and stuff like that. But uh, you know, speaking of patrons, if you would like to become a patron, um, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Requiem podcast, uh, or you can go to Requiem and click on the Patreon link there. Um if you haven't yet switched over uh, to our new feed uh, or you're not seeing all our old episodes, uh, maybe you're still on Apple Music. We do have a separate feed on Apple Music that you need to resubscribe to. Uh, we're still feeding both right now, but we hope to get everybody sort of moved over to that other one or to somehow link them together. We still got to kind of fuck around with that. Yeah, it's trying to figure that out, but yeah, yeah. moving and everything um, else is <laughs> taking yeah, priority. Yeah, for sure. For some so reason, for, like for the I, next, you know, probably like three or four months, I'll probably keep uploading to both. Yeah. And we, if you're on Spotify, it works like we managed to merge on Spotify and Stitcher and all the other ones. But for uh, some reason, Apple's been just, a fucking pain in my dick, man. They're like, they keep I changing we stuff having, all the time. I think we were having login problems. We couldn't find how to log into like through our Apple account or, or something. It was like, well, weird, it's like, because we started this back when it was part of um, iTunes. And wow. now it's changed. It's become its own thing where there's, you have um, Apple Music, but then you have Apple Podcasts. They kind of split the two apart. Yeah. So there's like some disconnect there. And it's just like, oh, Jesus. Like I I was going through old emails and reading Reddit things, trying to figure out what the fuck to do. So, oh, Jesus. yeah. Uh, we do want to give a shout out to a Patreon that we got a couple weeks ago. Uh, thank you, Ryan uh, Tvort, uh, for for signing up to become a ten dollars patron. Uh, we thank do you, appreciate sir. all that support. Um, so welcome to the club. And um, yeah, uh, one thing for patrons that we did sort of load uh, up there lately is all of the actual videos of the interviews that uh, we did for the Venom uh, episode. So if you want to see 
you know, Tom G and and all those kind of guys and, and, you know, some of the other jokes that got cut out and some of the other like kind of side conversations and fun kind of little things that were kind of going on. Plus there's some previews for future episodes. Cause I did some uh, future investigations predicting some episodes that we'll be doing down the road. You can get some insight into that. So again, if you want to come few. Yeah. and uh, support what we do, cause I mean, this is a, a, a quite an endeavor, quite a lot of time. I mean, I had eight pages of notes for this and I thought I was going to be like, I thought it was gonna be an easy episode for notes and I didn't write that much for songs. It was just more like little band history stuff and things like that. But I got um, six. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's a lot of research that we did. Plus I mean, I spent, I spent, I would say at least eight hours on Tuesday watching documentaries, you know, making notes about like historical kind of stuff just to kind of reacquaint myself with what was happening. Yep. Same. I had the day off of school today and had I not, I wouldn't have had this episode ready because it was just required a lot more time. So, uh, yeah, and we're just doing this for free. Um, cause we like doing it, you know, it's non-commercial. That's what we're trying to give to you guys. And we hope you appreciate that to the integrity, the punk aesthetic, the punk attitude, the punk, uh, you know, purity that we're you, trying you will, to, you will never hear us do any, uh, you know, type of commercials for bespoke post, or anybody else that you know you hear on your your favorite podcast, we will not be doing any of those breaks. So, so we just uh, off your uh, your Patreon donations and things like that. So again, patreon.com uh, forward slash Requiem Podcast. Um, do appreciate it. Five dollars a month, whatever you want to give. Cup of coffee, and that's really just one. Ten dollars. I mean, at this point, ten dollars a month is uh, that's like probably one trip to Starbucks. I was gonna say, you know, you could do that. You could do that for us. We Inflation, like yeah, with with how much we give you, probably more content than you get on your, you know, any of your uh, Paramount Plus or any of those type of things. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, if you want to give us some feedback on recent episodes, uh, the Intune episodes, if you're still catching up on the Venom stuff, um, please reach out requiempodcast at gmail dot com. You can check us out on Facebook, uh, Jason and Mark. Um, you can go on Twitter at podcast requiem, um, or just look up requiem metal podcast there or on Instagram as well. If you want to befriend us and follow us along there, um, as summer happens, I'll probably update that a little bit more. It's been kind of a rough little stretch. Excuse me. My voice barely made it through this episode, Mark. So, um, so we've got, uh, drama from L sevens, the beauty process, triple platinum and on my rocking machine from slap happy from 1999 so for uh l7 and babes in toyland i'm jason and i'm mark